Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by the fine members over grandtheftworld.com. This is episode 125. This is American Struggle Sessions, and we'll get to why it's called that as we go through the show. If the clips don't illustrate it, we'll have to uh, maybe do a research, a little deep dive into what is a struggle session, how did they play a role in 20th century history, and how might history be repeating right now? But before we get to that, we got to dig into this week in news. We had a lot of things happen this past week, things you never thought you were going to see happen, and some things you never thought you were going to see happen that didn't happen. So first, Fauci went to poor neighborhoods and was trying to get people to get up on the vax, and he got himself an education. And aside from that story, parallel to those ongoings, we had the uh, last week we were told that Donald Trump was going to be arrested. In fact, Donald Trump himself had told the world he expected to be arrested. And then we found out midweek that there was exonerating evidence that was now circulating and there's no longer uh, an indictment pending on the former president of the United States. So that was an interesting uh, uptake on what's going on. We had news this week that the countries with the highest mortality rates are also the countries with the highest vaccination rates with respect to COVID. So things that were said a couple of years ago that would have got you banned in all these sort of places is now becoming official knowledge. And it seems like they turned off the valve on some of the gaslighting, albeit being three years too late for a lot of people and their health decisions. We also have new exonerating evidence in the January 6th uh, saga of the alleged insurrection that turned out to be more like a directed tour by the police. In fact, the Capitol Police are not alone in that. The D.C. Police, there's now surface footage that the D.C. Police were specifically helping to aid the riot, to get it started. Almost as if they were working on some plan, so that's yet to be revealed. But the Twitter files and these other exonerating evidence pieces coming to light, I think, are it's refreshing because people had smelled that there was censorship and what's being hidden. Now you're seeing what was hidden, and it was hidden for purposes of power, and they have gained power so that they no longer need to hide these things. They can let it be seen in full view, which is another expression of their power when you find out, but it's too late. Uh, also, the banking collapse. Is it a pinch on the cryptocurrency world? Kim Iverson thinks so. We're going to do a deep dive later into uh, SVB and Credit Suisse and all these other things that are kind of begging for central bank digital currencies to be introduced into the world. And uh, before we get into tonight's show and get into all these deep dives, let's get a little summary from earlier today with Luke Radowski from wearechange.org and the best and the best political shirts.com. Let's get fact up and uh, get prepared for tonight's journey. Let's go. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, that's pretty romantic to me. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. My name is Zuckerdowski here of WeAreChange.org, and we have a huge plethora of absolutely crazy and wild news to get into today that, of course, you will not expect, especially with the shocking news 
when it comes to the very angry agent provocateurs that are responsible for some very bad things. We're going to be talking about that, plus the longer history of it here on this independent media broadcast. If you like the shirt that I'm wearing, you can get it on thebestpoliticalshirts.com. And the clip that we played in the beginning of this broadcast is, of course, from Paris, France, where a lot of the people there are not bothered by the heaps of trash and electrical scooters or bikes being lit on fire in front of them as the meme becomes real life. And uh, yeah, the cuisine and cafe culture in Paris is, is strong. It's real. It's awesome. And it's unbothered by what looks like a larger revolution happening in that country right now. All of this as the former Rothschild banker and now puppet, excuse me, now president of France during an interview is doing his best to hold on to power as much as he can. This as he's asking the people of France to, quote, sacrifice for the better good of the country during an interview when he suddenly realizes he has an 80,000 euro luxury watch on his wrist that he carefully takes off under the table. But don't worry, you shouldn't be spending your time worrying about fractional reserve banking systems, larger wealth inequalities, and major social movements fighting against the government. You should worry about white people using memes. Yes, you heard that correctly. This is the latest article, not from the Babylon Bee. This is really seeing that wrote an article and proudly posted that if you're quote white and we posted a gif or meme of a black person you are now guilty of wearing digital blackface as they literally posted a meme <laughs> of a black person committing the horrible act that they describe in there what some people think is still reporting when it's absolute delusional propaganda meant for a larger divide and conquer agenda that of course is forcing people to fight each other based off petty differences rather than, of course, actually look at the true source of their problems. And that, of course, is the internationalists, the banksters, and the multinational corporations that are robbing them blind. Don't worry about that. CNN has you covered with all the latest nonsense news. And, of course, to continue that, another story going viral right now is of a trans woman that was, quote, left sobbing because the TSA agent gave them the blue glove treatment, which, again, they do to everyone else. But clearly, the TSA is very transphobic and should be canceled immediately. Let's not even wait for it. I mean, it's clear as day. They violated this trans woman. Clearly, cancel culture needs to step in immediately. Now. Right now. And cancel these disgraceful bigots immediately. Hopefully. You know, it's not like there's other pressing issues and, and things to worry about or to talk about or to have larger conversations about. Like, you know, the tests that people were forced to take within the last three years, how some of them were total scams or how American foreign policy and hegemony is leading us towards a direct global world war conflict with, of course, the proxy war between the East and the West heating up in Ukraine. This as Russia has just officially announced that they have stationed nuclear weapons in Belarus. Ukraine, of course, called for an emergency meeting to the United Nations Security Council over this announcement as these are specific tactical nuclear weapons now placed in Belarus on the border of Ukraine, which there's a higher and higher probability by the day could be used in some kind of low yield way as a way to, of course, further escalate this conflict. But before the Russians moved in their nuclear weapons, France also previously announced before that that they are going to arm their fighter jets with nuclear hypersonic cruise missiles. And yeah, you would think that would be a little bit more important than CNN lecturing people about what kind of memes they should use, essentially telling everyone that they want white people to only promote white memes. But hey, who am I to judge? And there's this story and... You know what? 
I'm just I'm just not even going to get into it. It's too much. It's too much even just for me. But hey, not so long ago, I told you that this man was going to be a central figure in our political landscape to the point where I even went as far as to create BidenFetterman.com. Yes, that's an actual website that you could go on right now to support Biden and Fetterman's bid for 2024 and the larger presidential election. This idea is catching steam. A lot of very powerful influencers are tweeting about this. I've been tweeting about this since October 25th. And yes, it's a real idea. It's a real campaign with the real t-shirt behind it because it's a quote, no brainer. Of course, the main topic of discussion here is about the term agent provocateurs. Something that I think is worth noting and talking about, especially in the new digital day and age, where the real world is being changed by the digital world. And whether it's Apple's cozy relationship with China, the US Pentagon saying that they have just wooed Silicon Valley to join their ranks of arms makers, or personal adult toys spying on you, we have to understand that the digital world and our perspectives are being shaped by some individuals who, of course, don't have the best track records here, as, of course, I specifically want to talk about agent provocateurs, as the Epoch Times has just released a very explosive article specifically detailing how federal prosecutors have just admitted that the D.C. Police Department used their own officers as agent provocateurs during the January 6th incident at the Capitol that were there inducing others to be violent and commit illegal actions. Yes, you heard that correctly. All of this as we have new footage of undercover police officers saying, go, 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 help them up, push them up with D.C. Metro police officers from Washington, D.C. encouraging people to go towards the Capitol, where in some incidents, police officers allowed people in the building. This as there was even clashes outside of the Capitol of many Trump supporters even stopping what they called agent provocateurs from creating some of the violence, like this video that shows a man being stopped from breaking a window at the Capitol. But specifically, this is important since, of course, the government, the state, the prosecutors have filed motions to keep this footage under court seal. This document, this video footage, seems to have been removed now after a new court motion that revealed that three D.C. Metropolitan Police Department undercover officers admittedly acted as provocateurs at the northwest steps of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And again, the, the fact that the government tried to keep this video footage under seal so no one would ever see it is, is very telling, to say the least. This, as of course, these are local D.C. police officers and not even the federal agencies that were involved here, as of course, a lot of the heads of the federal government have been very quiet when specifically asked about the use of agent provocateurs during that specific day, as well as undercover agents. Now, how many undercover agents participated in all of this? Well, we don't know. I met one of them actually in, in real life, and the stories he told me were absolutely shocking. Now, I think if local police departments used agent provocateurs, I think it's fair to say that the federal government probably did the same. This as extra security was denied to the building days before this larger incident as people online were telling everyone that they were going to, quote, take over and go to the Capitol. And some of these interactions with these police officers are extremely telling. In one of the newly released videotapes, you could see a protester saying, hey, be careful, someone, quote, is going to get shot here with a police officer, undercover agent there saying, quote, 
They're not going to shoot anybody while encouraging protesters to specifically go towards the Capitol. Now, this footage is very telling as, of course, very known public individuals like Ray Epps that also incited the crowd have not yet been arrested as, of course, they have clearly violated many laws as many people have been calling him a Fed even before that particular date. Why is he not charged yet for the crimes that he knowingly, openly committed? Well, that's a question that I think a lot of people have to ask themselves as, of course, the use of agent provocateurs is nothing new. And throughout protest history within the last few decades, police officers and intelligence agencies have been using them in order to incite crowds, cause violence and allow the state to have a bigger backlash against protesters whose messages were muddied by, of course, the violence that proceeded from government agents that created it. U.S. law enforcement has infiltrated many protest groups and on many occasions in the Western world, police officers have been caught going undercover, dressing as protesters, many times even dressing up as black bloc and deliberately destroying property, causing violence, starting fights, and instigating very dangerous situations where police officers then had an excuse to crush and shut down any form of dissent. We saw this in some extent from my earliest understandings of this from the 1999 World Trade Organization protests in Seattle. I saw this personally myself at Occupy Wall Street, where undercover police officers even physically assaulted me, hit me, and then tried to run away, which, of course, I made sure to give chase to them, screaming like, hey, this man punched me and police officers for a number of blocks specifically decided not to do anything at all. This is a, a, a very telling <laughs> incident. You could actually watch it on our YouTube channel. It happened 11 years ago. And I'm like, hey, hey, guys, hey, officers, um, this guy just physically assaulted me. Can you arrest this man? Stop this man? And uh, no, they, they didn't. And whether it's left-wing protest or now right-wing protest, we have to understand that this is a tactic used by local police officers, federal authorities, very often. And it's something that, of course, a lot of people could should be keeping an eye on at your local upcoming protest. Now, how many federal agents participated in a January 6th event? How many federal agents infiltrated Occupy Wall Street and created incidences where fights were started? People were assaulted, people were hurt? Well, that's a very important question I think is worth asking in the, in the context of the DC police admitting that they had agent provocateurs instigating the crowd on that particular day. Oh yeah, the video that you're seeing right now is this police officer work, walking behind police lines and then getting into his cop car. In Canada, there was even an incident of undercover police officers literally wearing police boots, grabbing bricks and trying to throw it at the police, throwing it at local businesses that were called out by local protesters there, which of course they ran away, which makes you really wonder when it comes to, you know, Black Block, when it comes to Antifa, how many of their actions are just genuine? How, how many of them are state paid for? Huh, really makes you wonder since, of course, they've been attacking a lot of independent journalists that are usually the ones exposing that. Now, what's happening here? What happened exactly on January 6th? What happens during these larger protests when the feds infiltrate this? Well, I don't know, but I think it's fair to say that with these larger actions, there's a lot more bad being done than good. Now, some police officers are also undercover, of course, to arrest a lot of the criminals. And I think there, there's an argument to even make here when it comes to policing and their involvement here that should be debated. But 
when they're going undercover and, and creating and inciting violence and crimes, they're doing the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be doing, and they have a long history and record of doing that. And that's why, for many reasons, I've never been a back-the-blue guy, and let's be honest here, I think the people who are are a little bit ridiculous. All right, so France on fire. They had the yellow vest protest. They had the protest during COVID. Macron comes around. Now, Macron's an interesting study in and of himself. First, he's a World Economic Forum young leader, right? He married married a teacher of his, substantially his elder, which is an interesting situation in and of itself, but I'm not going to comment on that. That's not professional. But I will comment on his previous employer, the Rothschild Bank. And they said, you're doing a good job. And they were able to make him president of France. I'd say there's there's some power there that's being flexed. And the fact that the people don't like it and the juxtaposition of him with an 80,000 euro watch while he's telling the people they must sacrifice and them catching that, that's hilarious. I mean, that's you can't write comedy like that. That just has to happen in reality. That's the irony of the situation. And um, that meme of the dog sitting in the cafe on fire now coming true. It's like art (laughs) inspires reality. Yeah. Life imitates art. Art imitates life. Something like that. Uh, France imitates the Louvre. No, they're not burning the Louvre. (laughs) But that would be a a real tragedy. It seems like those people would say most stuff there is not the real thing. (laughs) They've been uh, quite conditioned uh, to accept that level of absurdity. You know, uh, sitting there with fire in the background, just minding their own business, having a glass of wine or an espresso or cappuccino, whatever they were doing. You know, if I you made it black and white, amazing. it'd be like a scene out of Vichy France, World War II. <laughs> oh, boy. Something like that. Yeah, it, it's very strange. I mean, apparently these protests are about the pension system um, where the I guess Macron's government is attempting to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 something like that ah and, sly devil just yeah. cut them out just push them a little further yeah. you know so, and what's the average uh lifespan in that country it's a very good question and also like how much is that just one of many issues like they're the claims i've been hearing about is has to do with the pension system and the fact it's insolvent, and the fact they need to raise the retirement age. But then there's also, like you mentioned, the yellow vest protests. There's the COVID lockdowns. So, like, are the people upset because they locked down the country, stopped production, and then printed a bunch of money? And all of a sudden, now they can't cover it. And now they have to manipulate the retirement age, you know, as well as raise taxes. If they're not raising taxes, the taxes are being raised through a passive tax we call inflation that's hitting most Western nations now is from due to COVID policy. And we're seeing a number of bank failures associated with that as a fallout. So it's a lot of, there's a lot of questions. I remember watching, I think Luke earlier in the week where he mentioned that it's like, let's not quickly judge that's just this one thing. Like it right now it's being sort of cast as that one issue, but it's probably an amalgamation um, a synthesis of many issues over the past couple of years, give, you know, climaxing to this moment where the protests have reached, um, you know, these sorts of levels and meme to, magnitude. Yeah, meme magnitude. The the simulation we call reality. So the caricature of reality. All right. The other <laughs> things I wanted to touch on from that was um, the the infiltration of protesters with police and undercover agents and this sort of thing. 
that history is a long and interesting one, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody about that footage that now exonerates people being released because like, it's been three years. People have been held as political prisoners for three years. It's about time the other side that has been censored gets to come to the, the forum and tell people what's going on because uh, the Seattle protests in 1999 were a perfect example of internationalism and this type of jackboot thuggery, cover your face, wear protective equipment and attack the crowd and have the crowd attack you so you can attack them. That's not only in documentary form in all the Alex Jones police state movies but from back in the day, very good documentaries, very educational, yeah. but also there's a documentary, not a documentary. There's a movie on Netflix back in the day called Battle in Seattle or Battle for Seattle, some one of those two. Woody Harrelson, maybe Sandra Bullock are in the movie. They're in the protest. They show you all this stuff in the movie because it was kind of made as an activism, anti-authoritarian you know, authoritarian type movie. Now that left of Hollywood that was against all that stuff is pro all that stuff just 20 years later. Right. And that's also a good arc in history to take in and see how how these these things ebb and flow and it's not really liberalism or progressivism or dem democrat you know any of this sort of stuff there's there's a political milieu that precipitates down on these what, what you know as politics right there's a internationalist geopolitical stronghold and they might have influence over governments and nation states and central banks and these sort of things and so when you see it you know over here uh, authoritarianism is bad and that's 1999 but these days klaus schwab and the world economic forum and all these groups they are uh, wholeheartedly surrounded by people who would just say i'm just doing my job which is not that much different than what the nazis were doing however pointing out history uh antifa was organized in nazi germany it was a communist force against hitler's nationalist fascist force right so by what's going on today with one side hiding within Antifa to attack itself, there's a theory there, and it would have to be fleshed out with some evidence, of course, but there's a theory that maybe the fascists were enticing Antifa to take negative actions because that gave Hitler and Nazi Germany the ability to go to the people and say, we need more authority. You have to give us more power. These other people are attacking you know, if you've got somebody on the other side throwing bricks and they're throwing them because they're wearing the same boots as you, throwing at your shield and not your head and not your back and these sort of things, it makes it look like violence is kicking off. But if you scrutinize those actions, you're like, wait a minute, these guys are both playing the play, play on the same side, and they're doing that, doing that to control the front line of an aggressive, what could be a very unpredictable riot, and so they have their own guys dress up like that. It's not exactly false flag, right? Because yeah, they dress up as the enemy, right. but it's what they did in the Boston Tea Party. Mm -hmm. They dressed up as a scary indigenous enemy, and it scared the wits out of the red coast. <laughs> That's true. I mean, this to Luke's point, to your point about the Boston yeah. Tea Party. I mean, this is a um, this is not a new situation. It's not a precedent that's been set. This is something that goes back actually centuries. We can think of Palmerston Zoo. We can think of you know the young movements in the late nineteenth century. Um, the formation of nation states all across the world. Uh, even in early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century America, there were many 
uh, situations of riots and like uh, communist sympathizers and anarchist sympathizers back in the day, essentially against the big corp or uh, manufacturing to sort of robber barons that were controlling so much of industry and the working conditions. And you hear about in those stories, there's elements of potentially, you know, the cops infiltrating or, you know, different sort of agencies infiltrating them on purpose to sort of get them riled up, get them, you know, ready to commit, you know, acts of violence potentially or destruction. And then you can frame it in the newspapers a certain way. So this is nothing new in history. It goes back well over a hundred years, not hundreds of years in regards to, you know, making it's since so much is about narrative control, making sure you can sell your story to the public, um, a public that may not be aware of the events of what's going on. You know, this is one of the unfortunate, but easy tactics uh, that has been employed time and time again in order to be able to sort of bolster the story or narrative you're trying to drive, you know, so. So we're going to expect to see uh, not repeating history. Mark Twain says history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. Mm-hmm. It's been rhyming a lot lately, and it's been rhyming kind of faster and faster. The durations between the, ca- the cadences are getting shorter and shorter, much like that countdown back in that movie Independence Day. So if we just get a cold and sneeze a virus onto the enemy, I think that might. No, I'm just kidding. Speaking be of biological Day, warfare, later on we might get to a Brian Wilson clip. We played he's one who did the Templar uh, presentation last week, um, reduction, and he uh, talked about the Pentagon coming out this week, saying that uh, the potential for an alien invasion with motherships and all these crazy things. First thing I thought about was Independence Day. I'm like, hmm, why would they be coming out with this Pentagon report? You know, saying this is going to be a reality, and uh, you know, just a, more and more absurdity in regards to. The news and it's a very agency. look over there tactic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or do they have advanced technology and we'll just start using it against the public, you know, commercial airliners or fighter jet? Who knows? You know, it's a lot of different competing and absurd and pretty avant garde theories out there in regards to what or what may or may not be the reality behind all this. Obviously, it's a massive distraction, but who knows? Like they've been, this is something that's been common on, you know, uh, for a long time and we'll have to see where it goes. Um, I think I was listening to Redacted talk about that actually in regards to some of the ways in which if any of this is true or they have any advanced technology, they would, you know, pose as though it's an alien threat, but actually be of human origin. Or it's just, as I suspect, a massive, with the evidence that's available now, it's nothing more than just a massive misdirect because there isn't, your UAPs and UFOs are something that's not been fundamentally identified. So there's interesting theories around, you know, what they could be, you know. No, I was just thinking how funny it is. It's like a factory that produces psyops and people are like, look, it came out with truth. It's telling the truth this time. It, it's got a new product. It's got a, right. like, no, that's the factory of psyops. Exactly. And misdirection and uh, cloaking like the their corporation, you know, cloaking their activities as extraterrestrial, this or that just for, you know, national security purposes. And it seems like 1947, we're going to just throw out morality and integrity because we got, well, didn't we learn anything from Nuremberg and Eichmann and these people like Amtsprache just doing your job just makes you a war criminal. That's how that ends up. That is not a valid cause or justification for taking away someone else's rights or coercing them or killing them or any of these types of things that were going on. But they found a way through words, the power of words. Remember the intermission from last week, all about Mm -hmm. the power of words. to get people to do that and we need the intellectual self-defense as individuals and overall as a population to insulate ourselves from that ill rhetoric so that type of thing does not repeat again even though people who help the nazis like george soros want that tune to repeat again and funds a bunch of chaotic societies like antifa 
formally, informally, and adjacently, and supportingly, and DAs and legal to get him out of jail. I mean, that's a complicated structure that Nazi helping dude has uh, precipitated on the world. And he had $18 billion of his own money precipitated on that. That's a lot of money. That's like Bill Gates level all in with his chips. He has one goal and it's to uh, embolden the world with democracy, but uh, democracy is two wolves and a sheep deciding on what's for dinner or who's for <laughs> dinner. And he's definitely a wolf and he works the, with, with the people with uh, the Fabian socialist wolf and sheep's clothing logo. So it's, it's Best years of his life, though, apparently. Just years. Best years. <laughs> Best years. Something like that. George Soros. Oh. Yeah. At least he didn't get to Anne Frank. She was able to leave that tiring. All right. So moving beyond the, uh, the that situation that Luke just brought us, NATO is also <clears throat> committing or an- announcing that they'd like to put 300,000 human troops on this uh, Russia-Ukraine thing that shouldn't be going on in the first place. So as... You know, shenanigans are going on. Oh, Trump's going to be arrested. These sort of things. Major political chess pieces being moved around. And if you know the history of NATO, cool. If you don't know, if you don't know the history of NATO, I have something very special, very nice for you. But LD, you're going to have to help the audience find it. I'll tell you what it is. It's the Peace Revolution episode on Operation Gladio, because that's a NATO project. And essentially, don't want to spoil the whole thing. But when Germany got conquered, Nazi Germany gets conquered, while the Soviets go in, the British go in, the Americans go in, all sorts of skullduggery and concoctions of plans and conspiracies and psychological warfare and Nazi rat lines and Operation Paperclip and MK Ultra and all sorts of things come out of that endeavor. And Operation Gladio is something that went on for decades, posing as terrorists to drum up the ability to go in and, and justify war. So when you own your own customized terrorist force on demand, on command, NATO over the next 60 years really came to dominate. And dominate, uh, they said, uh, when the wall came down, they said, not an inch will they encroach on Russia. And now it's many, many countries, many, many thousands of miles of encroachment. That was so the they deal. really are responsible for bringing about this potential world war three situation with ukraine in the middle being used as a a, a prophylactic unfortunately they're in the middle of it and they have leadership that is not indigenous from the will of the people they took a guy who's a comedian a very sketchy comedian and someone who played the president on a comedy show just like trump they took the trump model and they installed it in ukraine and the people behind that were soros and Vicky Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt and people that work very closely with NATO. So understanding what, who, what, where, when is, and why, how is NATO? What's it all about is essential. And there's probably, I don't know, that podcast is probably many hours, so you won't get through it in one day, but if you get the history, then you'll understand more of these major moves when they're announcing these things. I would also point out uh, if I can real quick. Yeah. Jump in. I just wanted to bolster your point. A lot of the Gladio funding came from, you know, what many Americans know and what's taught in history books is the Marshall Plan. So in 1948, that was the plan to sort of rebuild Europe, Western Europe. That was something like $13.3 billion was transferred over to Europe. And many of those were uh, transferred to essentially bolster these like neo 
um, nationalist groups, you can call them neo-Nazis, but these hyper-nationalist groups support these sort of terrorist cells within these various um, countries that have been devastated by World War II. Uh, so it's something to just keep in mind. Let's not for, also forget Eisenhower then becomes president, what, in 5052, something like that. And he was head of psychological warfare, uh, shafe model. So, you know, it's something to keep in mind that the Marshall Plan combined with Eisenhower, like you have psychological warfare, you have the beginnings of the OSS becoming the CIA, you have the the creating of essentially quote unquote terrorist cells through you have the you inheriting know. of the British groomed terrorist Arab cells into mm-hmm. American yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood. culture. Yeah. All right. So on this uh, thought in the history blueprint, Operation Gladio, uh, it says 1997 as oh, Gladio B. Sorry, I I thought we had Operation Gladio here. I have to go up here to Operation Gladio. Operation Gladio from 1948 to 1996, officially. It's a NATO MI6 CIA joint operations. It involves the Vatican banking scandal. There's a whole bunch of great resources on it. Um, Operation Gladio 1992 documentary. Uh, NATO's Secret Armies about Operation Gladio is a a book and a video here. Uh, The history of false flag terrorism, or at least dressing up as your enemy or going and hiring your enemy to attack you on command has led over decades of refinement up to events like 9-11. So you can look at 9-11 on face value and say, oh, it's just, you know, these hijackers and they attacked us and they hit us for our freedom. But when you see that our intelligence agencies, the British intelligence agencies, even the Israeli intelligence agencies had been using former Nazis for training and hiring Arab fascists to do dirty work so that they could, uh, you know, aggrandize their own agendas. So there's a lot to it. It's a deep topic, but it's worth knowing about. And you get to know about it by learning the individual parts and how they fit together. And then you come to, uh, you know, a better understanding of events in history and other places where like they crashed a plane into this, this guy's building. Hmm. Right. Pinochet crashes a plane into the, the building of uh, the presidential palace of Salvador Allende in an Operation Gladio MI6 CIA joint op. And this was September 11th, 1973. So they had, there's a history and pattern of these people doing these sort of things. So when you start to learn about like Operation Condor and these other app, you know, and the Enterprise, which is part of it's a slush fund. Yeah. Uh, associated with into right. a huge so, detail about the enterprise and uh, chapter seven of her first volume. People are right. interested. So then seeing how that trickles down and how it works for, you know, banks and all the crazy stuff going on today, like learn, these are all in an infrastructure and in a history of institutions that don't have a clean track record. You know, the, the same guy that's involved in BCCI, this big drug money laundering to narco terrorist trafficking bank, he created the National Security Act in 1947. His name's Clark Clifford. And just knowing the story of that, you know, 30 or 40 years in between those two events, uh, there's a whole lot of history that these people are tied into. It's a finite planet. There's only so many of them participating. But uh, they sure are interesting to learn about as you encounter news and you're interested in what what happened before today's events, you know, so you know how to put it in context. Otherwise, you're just assuming that the mainstream media is telling you the truth. So, Rich, were you talking about episode 87? That's what I found. Yeah. Uh, The Bill Binney interview from about an hour and 50 minutes into nine hours and 30 minutes. 
And then is uh, is there is, is it is Operation Gladio in the title of that episode? It's not in the title, but it's in the footnotes referencing mm. the the Benny interview. I'm relatively sure that there is an Operation Gladio in the title Peace Revolution episode. So we'll have to. I'll look uh, when we play the next clip over here because I do have a browser up. I can probably find it. Um, this week, the the Christy Lee situation over there, independent media, Christy Lee, uh, they've got their cameras pointed at some other targets. So we didn't have an update, a daily brief, the sort of th- weekly brief from her. But we are going to slide into that slot tonight. Darren McBreen, who has done fine work at InfoWars for, I'd guess, 10 years now he's worked there because I met him in 2013 and he wasn't new then. So uh, someone who was behind the scenes, helping out, doing editing, these sort of things, became a recognized voice, a recognized style of delivery of news content. He's really come a long way. And I haven't seen this particular video, but Tony thought it'd be a good idea to play it next. So I'm going to blame him if it goes sideways. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. That's a fair point. And then LD, did we have, uh, did you find that in the show card? Yeah, I have it queued up. All right, cool. Let's go to Darren McBreen, Infowars.com. It was not botched. It was not bungled. It was not a blunder. It was not incompetence. It was not lack of knowledge. It was not spontaneous mass hysteria. The planning occurred in plain sight. The planning is still occurring in plain sight. The philanthropaths bought the science. The modelers projected the lies. The testers concocted the crisis. The NGOs leased the academics. COVID vaccines are now available for children. The scientists fabricated the findings. The mouthpieces spewed the talking points. A pandemic of the unvaccinated. The organizations declared the emergency. The voluntary phase is over. It's time for mandates. The governments erected the walls. The departments rewrote the rules. If you have travel plans, there is one more thing to add to your packing list, proof of vaccination. The governors quashed the rights. The politicians passed the laws. The bankers installed the control grid. Individual carbon footprint tracker. The stooges laundered the money. The DAD placed the orders. Is it likely that American tax dollars funded the gain of function research that created this virus? I think it did, not only from NIH, but from the State Department, USAID, and from DOD. The corporations fulfill the contracts. Pfizer is making tons of money from its vaccine. The regulators approved the solution. The laws shielded the contractors. The agencies ignored the signal. She developed severe abdominal and chest pain. The behemoths consolidated the media. The psychologists crafted the messaging. Get the COVID vaccine. The propagandists chanted the slogans. The fact-chokers smeared the dissidents. The censors silenced the questioners. You guys censored Harvard-educated doctors, and you silenced those voices. The jackboots stomped the dissenters. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you, and we will take you to jail. Screw your freedom. The tyrants summoned, the puppeteers jerked, the puppets danced, the colluders implemented, the doctors ordered, the hospitals administered. The menticide is scripted, the bamboozles bleated, 
the totalitarianized bully, the Covidians tattled, the parents surrendered. The hardest thing was I let him get that shot. The good citizens believed and forgot. This was calculated, this was formulated, this was focus grouped, this was articulated, this was manufactured, this was falsified, this was coerced, this was inflicted, this was denied. Anybody is lying here, Senator, it is you. We were terrorized, we were isolated, we were gaslit. You really need to get vaccinated. We were dehumanized, we were wounded, we were killed. Don't let them get away with it. Don't let them get away with it. Don't let them get away with it. That was very well done. Very well thought out, very well presented. And I think that makes it a very shareable nugget of knowledge. Uh, a widget of wisdom that people can pass around that's good for sparking conversation, realization, coming to terms with reality, because uh, something that wasn't said there at the end is that we survived. And something that I learned from 9-11 is we should never forget. And I think these people who said, oh, we want the COVID amnesty, I'm not so sure they have a full list of what we received on our side of not being in that story. Those of us who heard the claims, but those claims lacked evidence and contradicted other things that were on the market. And the proof of that was the censorship and the canceling and all these things told those of us who were looking at those things, well, they would only do that if we were right. Cause if we're right, it's a threat to their whole profit campaign. The World Economic Forum, we had to clip played, it was probably six months ago, admitted that COVID was their most successful product of that year, that it made everyone, you know, World Economic Forum is like 500 of the world's biggest companies. They all went, Burr. they went up. All the small businesses. Greatest wealth transfer in history. Greatest, when yeah. We, and what yeah, is that? What is a wealth transfer? It. Is that what Mao did in the 40s and 50s in China? Yeah, it's a euphemism for what Mao and Stalin and these other, yeah. Plunder, Hitler. pillaging, murder. Genocide, exactly. democide. Oh, it's a euphemism for that. Oh, we should really euphemize genocide. Who does that help? The people, the abusers. I think it's a, it's a predatory thing, and we should stop using the euphemized words. We should use the actual words: genocide, democide. Democide is death by government. And Mao's China, the uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin, and uh, the Holodomor, forced starvation of oh, starvation of Ukrainians. It's like a common theme. It's, you know, it's like repeating again. Yeah. So learning a little bit of history puts you in a position where you don't have to buy in. You can't buy in to these mainstream narratives very easily whatsoever. It's like trying on a shoe that's too small for you. It's like, you know, they're like getting the shoe. Don Lamont's getting the shoehorn. He's like, ah, oh, we can make this fit. We can make this fit. No, you can't because you've outgrown it because you got a bigger <laughs> brain and they gaslight their audiences, which means like uh, a news channel that tells lies to its audience isn't helping themselves it's not helping their audience and nobody outside their audience is believing that that's why they're not in that audience so it's like an abusive relationship it's like stockholm syndrome that people have when they get dependent on people who lie to them for a living that's an abusive relationship 
And that's basically what we've been seeing for a long time, even before COVID. It just ramped up to epic proportions in regards to, and it's not just segments of the population of, of a part of a particular nation state. It's the entire world is under this sort of abuse that, you know, other terms have been applied to it now, like mass formation psychosis or, but it's just mm-hmm. sort of all sort of modalities of Stockholm syndrome, to your point. And I think that was Tess Laurie. She's the one who did the meta-analyses for uh, ivermectin. Yeah. And sort of that database, I believe, and worked with Pierre Corey and the frontline uh, doctors um, helping to find repurpose therapeutics or, you know, um, nutraceuticals and vitamins and so forth to help, you know, fight COVID and to give people, um, you know, a more uh, uh, the ability to fight COVID without all the coercion involved. So oh, I thought um, she was the one that called it horse paste. I'm sorry. I get those two mixed up, you know? <laughs> We should consider these two things the same. Somebody who risks their career to tell you the truth during a pandemic and somebody who doesn't risk their career by lying to you all throughout the pandemic, gaslighting you, your family. And let's face it, in many people's families that listen to the TV, a lot of people died in those scenarios. I know. I've heard the stories. It's very tragic. But it doesn't have to happen again. And they are planning. If you Bill Gates and Fauci talking about the next pandemic, oh, these things used to happen like once a century. And now they got like the predictability because they got fish on the line. They're working with Pfizer and Moderna and DARPA. They got a built-in audience. They got an immune system on subscription. It's like a Windows license now. That's right. That's exactly right. As we move towards this techno techno uh like technocratic future. Yeah, I was thinking technotronic, technocratic, you know, cybernetic, um, but essentially biology mixing with machines. So using information to control people, cybernetics. There we go. But uh, it's also worth noting the reason why I thought that was a good clip to play as well is because they really, I thought the clip really did a great job with her monologue over it, highlighting the fact that this is a calculated, well scripted, well organized uh, series of events that transpired and let's not forget that like we're fighting fighting or dealing with an enemy that is very sophisticated they're they're very organized they're i hate to use the word i hate to use this word but intelligent like they 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 are you know thinking many moves ahead they're planning out and game theorying the potential you know scenarios that could manifest and so we should be aware that of the level of calculation and precision and try to act accordingly based on that so we can also as you say get fact up get an idea of what's going on with our reality. Again, focus on our reality, have an understanding of history so we can better position ourselves not to be coerced by these very sophisticated mechanisms that are in place by the mainstream media or by the government or by multinational corporations, so forth and so on. I'm going to, it's going to seem like a tangent, but I promise you all I'm going to bring it back. Tony, do you ever go to the theater? I used to a long time ago. Culture. So you go to the theater, right? Mm -hmm. So, there's a, a thing called a stage play. Oh yeah. So somebody has an idea and they write it down, they get some funding and other people go and they rehearse and they coordinate and then they invite an audience and then they conduct it. Now, imagine yourself having just seen a fine stage play. You get up and then they come out on the stage and you say, hey, we just want you to know that the 50 of us who just did this thing, we don't know each other. We were all surprised. We found ourselves accidentally here and everything just happened to go right for us. Right. And we have no association to each other, right? We're not talking behind the stage. We're not setting up lights and props. We didn't, you know, we just, it just, it just magically happened. No, that's not how it works in reality. And, and, and even with event 201 and uh, Crimson Contagion and uh, Lockstep and all these documents and exercises where they practiced exactly what they did, 
right? The same people sitting in the meetings as in the real thing. The simulations were carried out in reality almost simultaneously as if as if the exercise suddenly went live in real time, just like, uh, just like 7 7 7 in London, 9 or 7 7. Yeah, sure. They yeah. just happened to be running drills that went real time. Boston oh, sorry, but no one gets no one gets fired, everyone gets a raise. You know, that's not freedom, that's not what America stands for. That's not moral, it's not ethical. Uh, and people. I think they know it, but they don't want to realize it. Yeah, I agree with you there. I do think there's a hunch, especially now, even with the sort of, I hate to use this pejorative, but sort of the normie crowd, um, those that pay attention to sort of this mainstream perspectives. I think they have a hunch something's very wrong, but they have no idea that they have that free floating anxiety, you know, as part of mass formation psychos. They don't know where to redirect or where to go and it, like where to get valid information, how to even validate the reality for themselves, how to use the reason that's nature or God ordained, whatever you want to ascribe to that. Um, and that's, that's part of the education system. That's part of the gaslight. That's part of the uh, lack of historical knowledge and nuance, uh, the gaslighting by the mainstream media. I mean, it's total warfare. Uh, it's it's the air you breathe. It's the water you drink. It's the food you eat. It's the media you consume. It's the assumptions you've made about your religious biases or cultural biases or uh, political biases that you have never checked. Um, and you were only losing until you did something about it. And then you're no longer losing. But now you realize all this stuff. Exactly. So it feels like you're losing, exactly. but actually you're winning because you were only losing when it was going on and you couldn't do about anything about it. You didn't know about it. Now you start to know, now you start to see, now you start to avoid, now you reallocate uh, time, attention, energy, resources to the things you want to see going on in the world, right? So right. there's people who are never going to stop watching the mainstream media, right? But for someone like myself who got, I got bitten by that. I believed and then I saw reality and it's, there's a difference. So for me, when COVID's kicking off, I'm not going to CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, I'm not going to anything that most people know about. I'm going to The Last American Vagabond. I'm reading DARPA articles written by Whitney Webb that show me an ominous continuity and pattern. And then I'm watching stuff like InfoWars and uh, Dr. Francis Boyle, who wrote the you know Biowarfare Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989. He's an expert. And he's like, this thing clearly came from the lab there. And I was incredulous. And I said, I don't believe you, expert. Even though I trust his work over time, he's been very credible over the years. So credible, he's banned from mainstream media. <laughs> and I said, there is no lab in Wuhan. No, there's two. There's two labs in That's Wuhan two. that they That's do this true. at. So as my incredulity, and, and as I encountered these things, I was incredulous. Even though I'm off the main, mainstream path, I got to be very discerning. I can't just believe everything people say. Like I got into looking at uh, Event 201. Because Benny Wills had said something in a video, and he's a friend of mine. And I thought, man, Benny's like being really cavalier and like this is like hyperbole and this is a serious situation. He shouldn't be saying this about these people who I know are criminals already, but it's just like it doesn't help if it's not true. Then I right. looked up event 201 and I was like, oh, October 2019, all the bad guys had a meeting. It was when like was Spectre had a live second. stream and they 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 had a YouTube page, man. I watched like five hours of their meeting. I'm like, okay, all right, I was wrong. And the faster I can admit I was wrong and move forward with the correct information, yay, freedom, I'm winning. So it, you know, even if you're a discerning person going to alternative media sources, you still have to have your thinking cap on and you still have to be prepared to like dig into some stuff to satiate incredulity to see what's oh, really yeah. there. 
It's actually something I addressed on the forum recently, but we can't even trust all by many, many orders of magnitude, a lot of alternative or media as well. You have to apply your own reason to it. You have to remove the contradictions, try to verify the evidence for yourself, try to get an understanding of the ethos of the presenter. Like what's their background? Where do they come from? Where are they educated? What do they participate in? Where do they give their funding? All these sorts of you know avenues, and then you have to see the evidence they're presenting. Does it can is it something you can verify, or is it something only they know and that they've you know discovered and have access to, which is a big red flag. So it's also rife with an alternative media, which is why on this show we try uh, our damnness to make sure that we present the evidence for everyone to see. Like here's what they said. Here's what they wrote about. Here are the darker documents. Here's Project Diffuse that was submitted on behalf of EcoHealth Alliance. Like here's all these elements that you know go into it. Here's what John Rockefeller said. You know, like let's read the memoirs. Let's look at what Bertrand Russell said. You know, let's look at all these 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 technocrats, these these philosophers, these thinkers have said throughout history have such weight for academicians and political scientists today. So I think it's it's an important element that you know you always have to be engaged. And you know, cognitively focused on reality and on verifying the world for yourself. Find the evidence that's being presented to you, verify it, and you know, draw your own judgments and conclusions from that, and act accordingly. And uh, you know, it's very important because even on this show, we've shown clips from CNN and Fox News, NBC, oh, sure. um, all the time, just to point out, like, well, here's the evidence they present. Here's what we present. We see a little bit of a contradiction. Yeah, they're not wrong all the, the time. Two. No, and sometimes they're not always wrong. That's but really they're always gaslighting you. They're always gaslighting. They're consistent Absolutely. about that. You know, <laughs> they will tell you fact or fiction, but it's always going to be an angle of gaslighting. I don't. I don't think that. I don't need that. And they're right, right. uh, well Yeah. So uh, it takes a particular discernment, and you got to have objective research skills. But if you know you're just looking at documents or people are just presenting that, it can be very dry. So you need to mix that with like the knowledge of a chef and how to take these ingredients and put them together in an interesting recipe that is like tantalizing to your mental taste buds. And that's where I found myself on Monday. See this podcast earn it, it, it. We go to like four or five in the morning. I get up after that. I see that Ryan Christian was doing a live stream on Monday. He was doing a fundraiser and all my best friends are there. All the coolest cats are there. It's like VIP central. And uh, he had a successful fundraiser. I'm going to play you a clip of it because I really like this part. Like, you know, there's the audience and what they think. And then there's we who are participate participants in this milieu and what we see each other do that's inspiring. And something that I saw that was really inspiring out of my colleagues was Derek bros stepped over the line of fear because it was like wrapping up and it was like, okay, we're going to move to the next thing. And he stepped over that line of fear where he might like, you know, interrupt. And he said, he asked a really big question, an important question, a question that took another 20 minutes for everyone to answer. And that's how they ended that segment. And I thought that was such a great way to end that segment because nobody was expecting it. It wasn't planned. You had to be a little edgy just to throw that question out there and sit back. And he fielded it himself. He gave his own version of the answer. And I, that's the part that I asked LD to, uh, to find. And then Stephanie actually found the clip and got it to LD in control room right before we went live because uh, it was a great event. I encourage you to go watch like when you get time uh, this week, go watch uh, either on T-Lab or the Conscious Resistance or Rockfin of the three places I think it would be for a replay watch, right? People who participated in it usually post it to their site, these sort of things. So um, a whole bunch of all-star influencers uh, bringing uh, their best facts, evidence, these sort of things to the table as well. 
and coming together for a good cause. Because if you want Ryan to continue producing this juicy content that he does so well, and you don't want him to take advertisers like CNN, like, yeah, you know, there has to be an exchange of value. And I was really grateful to see that his fundraiser went well and that uh, the support that is out there that I know is out there for him is actually getting shown and it worked and, you know, you don't have to do that every day, but it helps projects get funded and new expansion and these things that he needs to do over there. So uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to, uh, to Ryan and everyone who got to participate. I did have an invite and uh, I was watching the live stream and I didn't check my email that morning. I got up, I started watching the live stream. I didn't check my email and Scott Armstrong had sent me the, the invite I didn't see it till right before my admin meeting, which takes two hours every Monday. So I didn't get to be on it. And uh, I, I, I would have liked to participate in that, but I didn't. So we'll have to do something special for Ryan. He also has a course on our Autonomy Agora Marketplace. That's marketplace.autonomyagora.com. It's on objective research. It's not a very long course. It's not a super challenging course. It is a highly useful use of, of your time and energy and attention to understand the concepts that he uses to do his work every day. So it's kind of like a behind the scenes of how the last American vagabond is not only able to bring research to the table consistently, but also have a whole, you know, uh, artisserie, uh, arsenal. I was thinking artisanal and that's food. Now I had to get back to arsenal, arsenal of writers, researchers, and other people that we hold in high esteem likewise. So let's go to this uh, clip from the Monday live stream because not many people, I think, were uh, a lot of people were working on Monday. And if you didn't have a heads up notice, if you weren't on somebody's list and got directed to it, you know, it's hard to come across these things. So I want to give you a sample. And that sample is on germ theory versus terrain theory. And I think uh, hearing the answer and position of each of the speakers on the panel at that time is uh, interesting, educational, good examples of leadership, human limitations, uh, expectations, and a whole lot of other things. So let's go ahead and roll that. Ryan, uh, go ahead. Could I ask a question? Of course, go ahead. Free for all. Um, just, I'll ask a question. Let's create a viral moment here, and whoever is interested in answering this particular question can uh -oh, answer it because I know there's people who are wanting us to address it. Um, where's everybody standing on the existence of the COVID virus these days to open up that can of worms? <laughs> we'll see how many times this oh, gets no. clipped up and shared. Or misrepresented, I'm sure. Go or ahead. misrepresented. <laughs> I mean, I can start. I'm just throwing this out there because I, I already saw the comments in Odyssey, like, where do they stand, this and that, shills, blah, blah, all the usual stuff. Uh, and just whoever, right. you know. Before, before you even get into it, somebody in the YouTube chat over here is, it apparently thinks that the first thing we did with you guys was a staged clip that I share, and that makes me dishonest. Who knows what people think today? Even though it was all live. I and mean, <laughs> People uh, think what they think. Uh, you know, it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. But go ahead. Let's, let's get into it. I, I, could, I could say a little bit on that and, and I'd love to hear. I mean, <clears throat> okay, so my, my approach, I try to speak of things that I've researched that I've wrapped my mind around to some degree before I, I speak. So I, I'm gonna tread a little bit carefully. Um, I, I've seen enough argumentation to uh, convince me that the official uh, standard theory um, of microbiology has a lot of, it's systemically flawed. And the idea of what we've been told in mainstream universities is a virus has a lot of assumptions that are embedded on a lot of, um, I think, lies. I don't think, I don't think a virus itself, I, I, I'm quite persuaded, has never been 
actually isolated? Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that mean that I deny the possibility that pathogens of some sort, bacterial or other, could be either generated in nature or in a lab uh, to get effects if introduced into the micro or into the, the biome of, of a human being? Um, I, I do. I, I still think that that's possible. Um, and, and so the whole like, you know, germ theory versus, you know, uh, the, the, the pastor versus Bechon debate is something which I'm like, well, I, I think that, that the, the, the polarized nature of it tends to be a little bit like um, overly uh, dualized. And I've read Bechon. I've read some pastor. I think that there's po- I mean, pastor didn't even know of what a virus was. Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at, at, and so um, I don't know. I'll, what the hell this thing was. I know that I got super sick and I thought I was going to die in like September, 2019, even before um, this thing was sprung onto us. Um, I don't know what it was. The doctors took like 30 blood tests on me. Um, I was in the hospital. And again, I never got that sick. They have no idea what the hell it was. I got a few other friends who had similar experiences. There was weird stuff early, early on, like, you know, in November and December regarding like people coming down with weird illnesses, not, not diagnosed regarding like vapes. Remember that for a while? Like they were like, oh, there's something yes. spreading vapes. Um, and the I, Fort Detrick shuddering. Yeah. And the yeah. Yeah. home that was just a, so many miles yeah. away that had the weird cold outbreak where everyone died. Yeah. Ground, ground glass opacity and all that stuff. Yeah, there's clear overlap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I've, I've seen also... Like Larry Romanoff, and I'll stop and let other people talk. I'm sorry, but I'm just like take your sort of like flood, flood, flooding of, of thoughts and memories, right? Because it's a it's a loaded question. But I remember I remember Larry <laughs> Romanoff, uh, uh, a professor, a Canadian professor who works in in uh, some university in Shanghai. He he wrote a, co- a couple of good articles early on, published at Global Research, where uh, they were just evaluating the the uh, um, ethnic targeting or the the evidence of ethnic targeting of certain um, uh, attributes of of this thing called COVID early on in like Iran and Italy and in like three different strains, apparently uh, in China. I don't really know. I, I have no idea. What I, what I can say is that I've listened to Denny Roncourt, who's another Canadian um, mm-hmm. uh, scientist who's done some really good, good work on data analysis um, over, you know, and, and I think I mean, he's, he's persuaded me that there really wasn't any COVID pandemic per se like this thing called COVID that killed all these people and I think every all all of us have talked about this on our various platforms in a variety of ways was a giant statistical fudge we just basically the the flu disappeared Mm -hmm. and we were told everybody who normally dies of the flu died of this thing called COVID even the people who broke their necks and then we killed a bunch of people by intubating them on top of that too unnecessarily or in midazolam with the U in the UK yeah so no there there was a lot of a lot of that going on a lot a lot of uh, psyop and then the, the actual overall increase of excess mortality happened only after the the vax rollouts so those are all phenomenon as far as the virus there, there's probably pathogens i'm not sure what a virus is ah, that's my thought <laughs> so i guess i'll, I'll go, go. For it, so I, I would i would agree with a lot of what matt said the only thing i guess i would add is that this reminds me a lot of how 9-11 truth torpedoed itself by arguing exactly. about Exactly. Uh, details that were sort of uh, not necessary to push the public in terms of understanding that we mm-hmm. were lied to about 9-11. So similarly uh, with COVID, regardless if you think it was, you know, uh, what you think it was or it wasn't, you know, the fact that, you know, we're trying to, there's a lot of uh, polarizing debate about, I guess, germ theory, terrain theory stuff. 
uh, I don't necessarily think is that productive. And I'll just give you a recent example from my own experience. So I've never really waged into this debate myself. And I'm definitely uh, too understudied on the topics to really have what I feel like is an informed opinion, which is why I haven't participated. Um, but, you know, so my website's Unlimited Hangout. We have uh, people who subscribe who are members. And so we made like a member exclusive Telegram chat. Yeah. And uh, in the first day, it devolved into uh, name calling over this exact issue. And it was like, right. no, guys, this was supposed to be a happy space for everybody to hang out. <laughs> you can't have nice things. <laughs> well, not not even that, right? Like I understand because a lot of those people bring up stuff like like Matt brought up, like there are holes in, in some of these fields of study. And that's true for uh, various aspects of science in general, because science is not supposed to be something that's settled exactly. uh, in the sense of how it was, you know, treated as sort of religious dogma in, in the COVID era. You know, it's, a, it's supposed to be a system of what constant inquiry, right? So you know, uh, I, but I don't necessarily see it as productive to be like, oh, if you don't agree with me about the nature of viruses or you're on the wrong side of the germ versus terrain theory debate, I'm going to ignore everything you have to say. Um, I think is problematic and speaks to a broader issue with independent media where people go, oh, you don't agree with 100% of what I currently believe, thus you are a shill. <laughs> Isn't that just ridiculous? Um, I mean, yeah. on the on its well, face, it's dumb. I mean, I guess well, whether yeah, you're right or wrong. Here's what it is, right. though. People are holding up journalists on a pedestal, right? And it's yeah. the same. And the problem of it, I would argue, is that we've been trained to sort of celebritize journalists. Yes. Because we're looking to influencers and celebrities for what to think. People don't want to critically think for themselves. And one of the reason I teamed up with you, Ryan, after I left Mint Press was because you were the exact opposite of that, telling people <laughs> to use their brains and question stuff. Right. Which is definitely the ethos that I want to instill in my audience. Um, and ultimately what anyone should be doing is trying to figure out for themselves using their own brain uh, what's going on by taking pieces from this outlet and that outlet and information as it's put out. Um, and I'm not, you know, uh, and also like there's this idea, too, that like, you know, I have we have to be right all the time. Like uh, we're humans, too, dude. And people make mistakes. And a lot of these people making these claims on social media, um, if they were held to these same unattainable standards, would be kind of annoyed about it, probably. But they have no problem like, you know, uh, bugging. Yeah. Uh, you know, people about this kind of stuff. But, you know, it's impossible to be an expert on literally everything ever. You know, I'm not an expert on every aspect of geopolitics of every country in the world, dude. Right. It's impossible. Right. And, and exactly. frankly, um, with COVID, you know, a lot of my views about geopolitics, which I used to write about geopolitics pretty much every day for Mint mm -hmm. Press for several years. Um, and then, and then when I left, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a different ball game. And with COVID, we saw so many countries that are supposed to be adversarial collaborating. And that really opened up to me the nature of the transnational power structure and the influence that wields on specific aspects of, of either economic or biosecurity or other types of policy. Um, and so a lot of my views, you know, that I had before uh, have evolved, right? And I think that's normal. It, you know, ultimately what I'm trying to do is be like, well, okay, I researched this stuff and I'm taking you with me on my journey as I study this stuff, basically. And right, it's very right. silly to assume that someone is going to start off at one point and stay there for a decade of 
of research and work. Like obviously the more you learn, the more you're going to uh, adapt and change your worldview with as new information comes in and things shift and things that weren't apparent before become apparent. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, people are really unfair and there's uh, not everyone. Right. But there's some people who will be unfair about that stuff. Like if you said something that was deemed pro Putin in 2018, even though like, for, ex for example, Unlimited Hangouts published stuff that's critical of uh, Russia's fourth in industrial revolution policies and stuff like that. Like, it's just not enough for people, you know, or if mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not sure if I buy that the multipolarity paradigm is, is if it's going to be so UN centric is going to be any different from the unipolar paradigm. Paradigm, you know, I mean, I, I openly will talk about that stuff, but people might look at my earlier work and be like, oh, well, look at her talking about U.S. versus Russia and all this. stuff." I mean, you know, I mean, people change. Right. Um, right, right. As they get new information. Yeah. So well, I don't know. Okay. It's again, this un unattainable standard, like we're supposed to be gods for some people. I mean, it's crazy. It's the savior complex. I don't know if you were going to answer yeah. as well, uh, Derek. I'm going to answer, and then yeah. I'm going to run out for a quick second, and I'm going to bring in uh, wait, Charlie wait. and – go ahead. Okay, as, as, as Ricky and Charlie are coming on, and before you, you deliver, it is uh, – hey, guys. It is uh, quarter – 10 minutes to 3 a.m. Uh, where I am. Oh, day, sleep so. time. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bye, yeah. Bye, Good night, man. But uh, I wish you guys all the best. I'm looking forward to future collaboration. I hope everybody out there makes a donation of whatever they can. And, uh, yeah, have fun for the rest of the night or – afternoon for you guys thank you brother. thanks matt nice to meet you man. Man. all right thank you brother you. ryan did you want me to answer before no. we head out i'm gonna head out in just a moment too or you want me to go after you go after me and i'm gonna answer really quick sure. i mean i really it's, it's, it's the answer is i don't know right let's be on like the reality of where we at and where where we are in all this it's kind of what you guys have already said and i've made this abundantly clear on my work repeatedly over and over because of the same game where people act like we you know being in the middle of this is somehow unacceptable Right. I have interviewed people relentlessly about this Kaufman multiple times. Um, here's my uh, Denny Rancourt um, interview, as well as another one I did with uh, Stephanie Seneff with him. And the whole point is, statistically speaking, like with the numbers, not talking about whether viruses exist, exist or not. This was an illusion, guys. Undeniably so. There was a, a hundred different ways this was lied about, manipulated. So that's one, the obvious first point. So then whether or not there was this thing, the, from my perspective, I personally feel like the terrain germ theory on either side hasn't fully answered all of my questions. And I, I, I even put questions to Kaufman before where we end up going, well, yeah, that's not explained. Maybe he's come to conclusions of that now. Like same thing when I, got, I mentioned a point about how some of them argue like the bacteria causes a different, you know, I didn't say every single person in every conversation in terrain theory has that opinion, but that's how it gets framed. My point is there are people that just simply see it differently. And I think that's an interesting point. And I, so my opinion is I don't think I know yet. I think I'm at a point now where I'm still trying to define how this plays out. I think there's manipulations or rather just misunderstandings on all sides. And, the, and, and you can argue that that's somehow dishonest of me. And that's your opinion. But that's where I actually stand. That I've looked at everything people have sent. I've gone through this in depth, had many shows about it. And I just genuinely think that there's something going on and maybe we don't fully understand it. And I don't know why that to some people is in like question it, question everything, question whether well, I may have ulterior motives. But my point is that you don't, you, how does anybody make these allegations unless they know that or prove it? And I would argue those in those circles, ask that question of them, right? Are you well, supposed he, to be objective, but you're telling me, go ahead, go ahead. Well, here's what I think is sort of happening. Well, go, and Whitney, one people thing, might quick. be offended Whitney, by this. Really quickly, really quickly. I'm going to, uh -huh. I'll be right back. Go ahead and answer that. And then let Charlie and, and Ricky <laughs> jump in and then I'll be right back. And then, you know, that way we don't miss a beat. So I'll be right back. Keep going. Okay, sure.
So what I was going to say is that I think when you're being pushed to choose one side or this side, it reminds me so much of George W. Bush being like, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. <laughs> this type of like, um, you know, left, right, black, white thinking gets us nowhere, really. Um, whether it's about like virus stuff or something else. And I think a lot of that um, mentality discourages inquiry. And if you want people to do things like question the existence of viruses, shouldn't you supply them with information instead of like um, join my team or I'll hate you forever. I mean, I just don't really see it as being uh, productive, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that question since I'm the one asked it. I'm going to get out of here. What's up, Ricky? What's up, Charles? Um, (laughs) But I'm glad. I'm glad we got everybody answered because I'm sure there will be clips of these answers for sure. I can already see them and hear oh, them in thanks, the shoot comments. <laughs> but what I, I just want to pretty much say, like similar to what you, Matt and uh, Ryan all said, which is for one, like I think um, any anytime there's like this super line in the sand where you got to believe this or that, it makes me skeptical. Um, that doesn't mean that all the people promoting these ideas are bots necessarily, although I think there probably are bots amplifying that. I'm sure some people are going to hate that. There are real people not saying it's all psyop or anything. Um, but it is this very much like every video and of the last couple of weeks, particularly I've got a flood of, of uh, influx of haters coming in different channels and in my emails and making memes about me and claiming that, well, Derek is pro germ theory. Because, or, and even saying the same thing about you, Whitney, and James Corbett, and uh, Del Bigtree, and Ryan, and everybody else who doesn't make this the only thing that they ever talk about, and who does videos that don't only focus about this. And if you ever mention COVID and you don't mention that, you know, there's questions about isolation or this and that, then clearly you're a shill. Like that to me is where we get into like the counterproductive and people out there issuing. Uh, challenges saying like, I want to challenge this, uh, you know, journalist or this influencer to a debate and just try to make it all about this. You know, I've heard their reasoning. They claim that this is the crux of exposing everything. If we can expose that there's no COVID virus or no viruses in general, some of them believe, of course, differing opinions there, then that would, you know, bring down the whole house of cards where personally I've argued that we already have so many other pieces of evidence, even if that is true, that you could get people. And I think all of us have gotten people to question COVID and the official story without even necessarily going there. And I'm not saying you can't or shouldn't go there, but to me, it just, yeah. And so I've been doing some of the research. I've interviewed Kaufman several times, just like Ryan and others and Tom Cowan and the, uh, the uh, Don uh, Lester and David Parker and plenty of people have talked about this. And I'm reading this book, which by the way, I plan to do a video on and doesn't say what a lot of people publicly claim they think it does when you actually read it. It's interesting. Um, and I've been looking at different pieces of evidence that people put forward, like, hey, go back and look at the Rosenau studies during the Spanish flu. And they are putting things up people's nose and injecting people with stuff right out of sick people, having sick people cough on them. And it wasn't getting anybody sick. And I found those studies. I was reading them just the other day. It is true. It is accurate to say that. But of course, there's studies that come after them. And this doesn't, they don't conclude this means no viruses exist. They say that there could be questions about the transmission time. There's all kinds of stuff. I don't know that we know. And I think anybody who is trying to say, I've got it all figured out, stand with us on this side, anybody who's against us is the enemy, is probably full of ego and maybe, you know, worse. But at the very least, is just, I guess, full of themselves and thinks that they're the one who has it all figured out. When there are so many things that even the no virus crowd or people who are asking questions, can't answer. And, and that doesn't mean we have to have everything explained to ask questions, just like with 9-11 or COVID. But I do think, again, just naturally, and as you were saying, Whitney, people are going to have different conclusions or different opinions, or people might even be like, hey, 
I don't need to know everything about that particular topic. Why is it that some of you out there in the audience think that every single one of us should know everything about every single topic and we should talk about every single issue or that's a sign that we're controlled? Maybe it just doesn't interest us. Maybe we're busy as hell living our lives in addition to doing all the content we do, right? I mean, there's just a lot of reasons why people do or don't talk about these things. And I think we should be okay with that. And anybody out there telling you that there's a line and they're either on this side or that side is part of the problem. Boom. Oh boy. Bros dropping bombs. Now, before, before you get excited, Tony, because there's a lot of tangents we could take here. Oh yeah. I gotta I gotta unfold something. There's a they all there's did a, a great job, by the way. I'm just saying, like did. I really they, appreciated their perspective. I largely agree with most of them, actually all of them to to a to a point. Because they think for yeah. themselves and and none of us has enough information to be right about all these things all the time and these sort of exactly. things. So exactly. they came across as very human, authentic, yes. genuine people that I'm proud to associate myself with. Now, amidst that, that you see on screen, there is something known as the Rockfin chat. I happened to be watching that. <laughs> Again, I feel bad because I texted Ryan right before uh, Grand Theft World last week. I said, hey, you got an event tomorrow. I need the link. And he, he wrote back to me. We were writing back and forth on text. I expected to get the link on text. It was sitting in an email that I didn't check for hours. So I missed out. Shame on me. That's Monday for you. But while I was watching the Rockfin chat, I was just about to make a donation and I'm looking at the chat and it's a bunch of negative Nelly naysayers, yeah. uh, people like Derek was just describing all the distractions, the haters, all these things that influencers, researchers, people trying to get some truth out to the world using a personal media platform. They're experiencing all this not signal. It's noise. It's just, it's not constructive. <laughs> it, it can be distracting. It can be destructive, all these sort of things. Right. He was talking about having to deal with that. I saw a sample of that. It was, <clears throat> I'm not going to say who's Rockfin I was watching on. I'm not trying to bad mouth anybody in the chat directly, <laughs> but one of the comments was shout the out one to the that, Rockfin chat. Yeah. Shout out to our Rockfin chat. Who's not, uh, who's not full of haters and people who have quit on themselves. But in this case, there were some people, it, the comment that grabbed my attention was, oh, great, Burmese is here. We're going to have to pay to pay behind this pay, get behind this paywall to see what, you know, they were just making fun of the, like, I'm proud of Burmese that he's learning how he's learned very well, how to make an offer to the market, stay self-reliant, stay independent, stay genuine and authentic. So when people in the chat are hating on people for trying to make their offer, trying to keep themselves genuine, authentic, and, uh, you know, insulated from the world economic forum and all these other things going on. I see that as a cry for help and I'm not jumping into the chat to answer cries for help or try to like coach or mentor through there. But I'd say if you stop feeling sorry for yourself for just a few seconds, you'd see that some of the solutions that are being purveyed through the people on screen are effective. Like you could maybe take Derek Bros's self, uh, a holistic self-assessment, get some direction because People who are happy with themselves, who are thriving, who are successful, they don't watch a show and then hate in the comments. That's just not what they do. But people who are successful see people who are doing that as, wow, you're completely at contrary. You're, you're in contradiction with how you're using your time. You're watching something just to hate on it and make fun of it. Unless you're a bot, a troll, a paid informant to be making chaos in the chats and stuff like that. And then the genuine authentic viewers, they notice that too, because they're not acting like you. They don't make comments like that. They say useful, uplifting, uh, constructive criticism with here's a potential solution. If something's going wrong, they aid and assist. That's what normal human beings do. 
We don't like, oh, you're struggling. Let me poke you while you're struggling. They don't do that. They say, oh, you're struggling. Let me give you a hand. Let me offer service utility. These are the things that competent, mature, successful people have learned to do for each other. And that's how society functions. That's how everything that makes this internet work between what I'm saying and you hearing it. Competent, successful people have to make these things happen. So in the, in the realm of, I couldn't be there for the fundraiser, but I just want to help to clear the, clear the, the runway here for the people trying to take off. And those of you standing on the sidelines, throwing rocks at people, put down the rock, pick up your pen, start using technology that avails itself around you, add service utility to people that you enjoy watching their work. You know, maybe it's not the show for you. Go someplace where you do enjoy it and, and add, contribute, be useful to other people. They will appreciate it. You'll feel better about yourself. You'll gain competence and confidence. Those are essential elements that people need out there. Now, Tony, what did you think of that clip? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, where do I start and how do I end? Um, so this is been... essential for flying. Yeah. Yeah, that's where do correct. you take off and where do you land? How do we land? That's right. So first, I just like to say I largely, especially I thought Eric um, and Whitney did a brilliant job breaking down the issues, specifically even approaching it from. A and she more. was on the German lawyers COVID panel. So she has looked into all these things. But as far as like germ theory or terrain theory, you heard her position. But she has done a whole bunch of research on DARPA, <laughs> gene editing, gene splicing, liars, and and all those other things we're going to talk about later tonight. Yeah. But go ahead, please. No, 100%. Um, I would just add on to, first of all, I largely, I agree with all of them, but mm -hmm. I thought Eric and, and Whitney did a, the, summed up my perspective the best or what what would be my perspective i would just add on to that and say i take a, a the same approach they do i guess in this case first and foremost none of the people commenting on germ theory or train theory are fundamentally trained as scientists you don't have to be to be able to make a judgment or to apply reason i'm not saying you have to be but one of the disadvantages that whitney has that matt Arrett has that myself has uh, that rich you have is that we aren't trained scientists with the ability to go and verify for ourselves using electron microscopy and all these various techniques and technologies that are available to very specific research scientists in microbiology to verify for ourselves their conclusions. All we can do in the absence of that without committing what's called the ad vericundium fallacy, the appeal to authority fallacy, is those specific uh, individuals who have specific uh, knowledge in certain areas, like these certain scientists, microbiologists, so forth and so on, that have access to the, this, these equipment and data analyses and statistical uh, analyses, so forth and so on, is to rely on the evidence they can present, the evidence they present, and see if it corresponds at all to our worldview, our experiences, how you know we've all had diseases at some point, we've all had some form of symptoms emerge, and see if some of the theories in this regard, like in the mainstream perspective, it would be germ theory, coincide with our lived experience. Can we verify it in some sense for ourselves? Is the evidence they're presenting from this very sort of somewhat nascent science, so to speak, it's really only been born in the past hundred years and it's really, really only taken off in the past 50 to 70 years um, for us to, uh, you know, cooperate to some extent our lived experience with the evidence they're presenting. That's where everyone has to start. You have to start with your ability to have confidence in your ability to make a judgment about the experience of your life 
uh, how you experience it, how you perceive it, and conceptualize that first and foremost. And you have to be able to then go back to those who have specific knowledge in areas that we just don't have access to and rely upon, does the evidence they're presenting, one, is it being communicated in a way that makes sense? Can I actually like understand what they're saying? And two, does that seem to correspond at all to my experience in life? That's first and foremost. If you're relying on a germ theorist or a trained theorist who says, believe me, because I'm a germ theorist or a trained theorist, I have a specific academic degree, I have you know access to a laboratory, or yada yada, then you're already that is committing the fallacy of advericundium. Now, if these specific scientists come out and present evidence, then we have to judge the evidence for ourselves. And that's right there the big problem. That's right. the so now let me ask the dangerous question, the edgy question. Uh, what if you have a position and you haven't looked at both sides yet? <laughs> and that's where we're going. All right. Ex so my next, exactly. I'll just jump that. So, let's just yeah. jump over that stuff for a second. And let's go to uh, a, a potential peacemaker. Let's build bridges in this conversation, not make chasms. I would offer the option of also and. I've, I, yeah, I do believe I that they have on. bio labs, that they do mess with things that are infectious and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I believe that my mental state and the state of health of my body makes a whole lot of difference. I want to have tough terrain. I'm not a hypochondriac. I'm not someone who was around sick people and think, oh, I'm going to get sick. I'm somebody who, if I have some symptoms, I take some uh, liposomal vitamin C. Usually uh, I'm back, I'm better, get a little rest, reset your brain, right? These sort of things. People who are in negative mindsets, they fall prey to this because it's the nocebo effect. You're not getting a placebo. You're getting a constant nocebo. That was last week's episode title, by the way, the nocebo effect. Because you're being inundated by there's a killer virus and nobody knows what to do. Listen to Dr. Fauci tonight at 11 p.m., right? It's like a bunch of you don't have any responsibility in the situation. But if you took responsibility and said, I'm responsible for my terrain, they can make stuff. I hope I don't encounter it. But if I do, I would like it not to attach to my my ACE2 receptor. Is there something for that? Oh, yeah, there's these, these therapeutics you can take. To make sure it doesn't attach, right? There's a McCullough's protocol to knock it down in your nasal passage in your throat before it becomes a, a thing in your chest, right? And I'm pretty sure, just like that guy who tried to like make a rocket ship in his backyard, I'm pretty sure there's some people who didn't believe in such a thing who passed away from such a thing. Now, we don't know the name, nature, shape. There's a whole bunch of ambiguity, but in the absence of that, it seems like if you wash your hands before you touch your face or eat food, you can live a pretty healthy life despite all these things going on. You know, you can know about Plum Island and them making all sorts of bioweapons, some of which run rampant in the woods around here, <clears throat> Lyme disease, and still be able to go outside and have fun because you know such a thing exists, how to recognize uh, how long it takes for it to take effect, early treatment protocols. It's just a thing you learn to integrate. But during the pandemic, they hid all the useful information. They censored it. They deep six. They fired doctors to prevent you from having anything but fear and dependence on their single solution set that came from DARPA. DARPA, DARPA, DARPA. Yeah. I mean, it, there's, you know, not to embellish That's this. gene editing and a whole bunch of other stuff. The Last American Vagabond, January 23rd, 2020. 
Yeah, and not to embellish this more than it needs to be because it's something I've addressed uh, voluminously in the town halls uh, on both the Discord and now the forum, which is for GTW subscribers. It's a platform where we can share in discussion together, share resources, information, uh, opinions, experiences, so forth and so on. I have addressed this question more than many times, and I know I've been, um, I think, unfairly at times... Uh, admonished and at other times reprimanded and castigated for my opinions on it because what i challenge people to do is look at both sides uh and try to juxtapose the best source of evidence for each theory and then come to your own conclusions and i found a couple how dare you found a couple resources that took specifically uh um thomas cowan um, Andrew Kaufman and Stefan Lanka and a number of other major train theorists throughout the pandemic took their specific claims and su- substantially debunked them, in my opinion, or showed they don't rest on very firm ground. And so be careful, be skeptical. There are problems with germ theory. I've mentioned this many times. Um, the problem with the tr- train theorists is that they oftentimes will just start the more extreme of them will start to disregard all microbiological phenomena so we're at a point at which like even talking about the train that flat earth of that realm exactly so we get to the point where even talking about using therapeutics like vitamin d or liposomal liposomal vitamin c and things that doesn't really count because that's not how disease uh manifests under train theory and my favorite placebos though tony you can't deny me that that's freedom So there's there's a um, and I forget the specific term in which how the cells specifically emanate uh, disease uh, pleomorphism, I believe, is the terminology. And I won't get into the weeds. The point is for all of you who had that on your bingo card for tonight, go ahead and drink. You have to finish the <laughs> glass at this point. I've seen two competing definitions within the train theory communities as to what pleomorphism is. But see, this is where it gets problematic. OK. One, exactly what Whitney said. It's actually something Leonard Peikoff, who also has a fantastic, it's an old um, both uh, logic course and uh, history of Western philosophy. Um, That's where I sort of uh, began learning about philosophy many, many, many years ago. And he pointed out it's impossible in today's day and age to be actually a a fundamental polymath of, of those, you know, 300, 400, 500 years ago, because there's just too much data. There's too much knowledge, too many, uh, there's just too much um, for us to have in one lifetime, the ability to specialize in every single knowledge inquiry that humans can potentially discover and understand. And that, I don't that, think that's a, that's an extreme definition of polymath though. But, but so you can be a polymath in the sense that you can develop your reasoning skills. You can develop your skills to be able to analyze evidence for yourself, but to be a specialized expert in every single field from nuclear physics to, um, you know, artistic uh, criticism to whatever is is a difficult difficult in the sense to be able to have enormous detailed data sets with co- corresponding memory associated with every single field. Doesn't mean you can't develop your logical capacities to have sound judgments on these things. It's just the ability to be a hyper specialist in every single field pertaining to the amount of knowledge we have in today's world is very difficult, if not. You know, possibly impossible endeavor, which is something Whitney mentioned. So you're like, telling me I, I got to take polymath off my off my resume now. <laughs> you, if it's you, impossible if, in our day and age. If we were to sort of re redefine polymath as someone who has the ability, um, maybe high IQ or the ability to analyze 
complex topics efficiently, I would say polymaths are in very many much different areas are still right? a real thing. But polymath in history, polymaths in history, though, meant that yeah. someone had specialization in all Aristotle, for example, was considered or Da Vinci. Like these, these were considered polymaths because they were specialized in multiple fields. Uh, almost every single field of knowledge inquiry available at those times. Both so we're bringing it back. It's science. like a throwback jersey. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Tesla was a polymath and a polyglot. A polyglot, you just have to speak more than three languages or five languages, something like that, right? So you don't have to speak all the languages. You just have to be a specialist in, in several. Mm -hmm. And if you were a polymath that knows, uh, you know, with expertise, like uh, Kubrick was a polymath. He knew mm -hmm. his job and all the jobs around him and could do the, all those jobs himself. Right. So it didn't have to have the whole because it's very unrealistic to have the whole extent of human information and be expert and all that stuff. Of course. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why they sort of defined it in the past. But we were to redefine it as like someone who can apply very strong critical thinking ability to, you know, very complex areas and, and provide sound judgments through the correspondence theory of truth of Aristotle, the idea that truth is that which corresponds to reality. Then you are in a sense, in a, in a sense, a polymath. We just can't be hyper specialists in every single area, knowing every single detail of every single thing. That's sort of what Whitney's alluding to, and that's what I'm sort of bringing up here is that we don't, you know, we have lives, we have jobs beyond this. This is a hobby for us, and it's also a comedy show, and that's right. it's impossible for us to do uh, be knowledge experts on every single specific detail about every single theory that may come up as part of uh, the debate in regards to alternative uh, media or in the larger space of what's going on in the world and what's being presented in the mainstream. So in the absence, if we haven't had the capacity to take in both sides to our uh, satisfaction, then we have the right not to have an opinion on something. And, and that's exactly mean, right. where I'm going. And everyone so jumps to a conclusion, but the people who jump to those conclusions are also the same people that complain about like somebody making their offer because everything should be free in a communist world or something like that. Right. And my mentor and, and you know, uh, someone we both uh, conversed with and, and gained great knowledge from, like Gino Denning, he made a great point when I was learning logic that this is what we call the fallacy of ad ignorantium or aspects of it, the fallacy of the appeal to ignorance. Hmm. And in this capacity, when there isn't a enough evidence on one side or the other to draw a very strong conclusion, or it, that it, there are, or maybe let's say, let's modify this and say there is evidence on both sides that seems legitimate and contradict each other. That's problematic. We, the negative holds the field. We can be skeptical about both. There are problems with germ theory. There are a lot of problems, though, with germ theory. A lot of the claims have been made by this, this specific three individuals during that COVID period or the COVID era and the height of it, 2020, 2021. So in that regard what i've done for individuals on and for the gtw community is i presented what i found to be the best counter argument to the train theory it's not saying i agree with germ theory wholeheartedly i actually agree with you rich that it's very likely this might possibly be an also and because there's a lot of holes in germ theory there's also a lot of holes in and they hide theory. the part that we would have control over to put us at the beck and call of whatever their exactly. fear virus is at the time exactly and the, all i see is this unfortunate debate doing nothing more than dividing and conquering whole communities. And, and to Bros's point, Derek made a good point. That's that the argument is, well, if this finds, uh, if this ends up being not true, the whole house of cards will fall. No, I agree with what Ryan said uh, before that is like, and actually, no, Derek reiterated this point as well. After he stated this, we don't need the debate between train and germ theory. We had enough information, even from the mainstream, to combat their own narratives. Yes. Why do we get lost in a debate that we fundamentally don't have enough evidence to 
preclude one side is more substantial than the other. Oh, I know uh, the answer. Ask me, ask me. I go, yeah. It's go because ahead. it's how they successfully crashed the 9-11 truth movement. They did yes. the same thing. Divide and That and worked very well. They had a lot of people, 2002 to 2008, there was a lot of people in that uprise. And then they got everyone kind of divided and conquered and infighting. And this one's an agent and that one's an operative. And this one's COINTELPRO. And nobody had any evidence for anything. And those people that were making those claims didn't have platforms, didn't have anything at risk, weren't using real identities or any types of things that we should all be on the watch out for. Yes, be on exactly. the lookout and for that's people rich. without identities throwing rocks and stones and sticks into your bicycle wheels and stuff like this <laughs> as we're trying to ride around. And that's why I gravitated toward you and your 9-11 synchronicity and you know your experiences. It was a different way of viewing a very complex situation. Instead of starting with the how, because what I saw happen with the 9-11 truth community, community is everyone started with the last sort of idea within the trivia is like how something happens. Or yeah, we knew the where and the when. But then everyone could have the you have the options to look for the who, the why, the how, you know, and these other these other functions around it. And they chose to look at the thing. It's like, okay, they chose to look at how come down instead of saying, like, who benefits? You know, what are what is the situation? What are these people? What are the policy documents? What's PNAC? What are all these elements that seem to portend the potential for this? false flag that ended up manifesting. Why would it be done? Why it becomes actually before how in this case, who, what, when, where helps you identify something. Why is the logic and how is then um, understanding and communicating that? I so, believe they said as to, to answer the why question, I believe they said they desired a new Pearl Harbor. Oh, that's right. To radically transform the situation. Just like the BARDA meeting at the Milken Institute, they said they, they requested a crisis where they could throw away the rules and bring exactly. in mRNA. Exactly. History exactly. repeat like like a like a mofo tonight. Yeah, We're not even it, that far into the show, you got a lot of repeating history so far. That's so well said. That's exactly what's going on, and that's exactly what's going on here. Everyone got sort of bogged down with like how the towers went down, all these wayward theories. Did the towers even come, or, or they did come down? But like, were they? Would the planes hit them? Was it missiles? Was it micro nukes? Was it you know nanothermite? Like, it's just all these different arguments. And I'm not saying that question isn't legitimate because I have a lot of respect um, for uh, uh, architects and engineers, uh, particularly. Oh, for sure. And we can just start off with, on the name. We um, don't have any respect for any of the illegitimate information. And that's what everyone was fed up front. So it's like, you do have questions because you weren't given any real answers. And what of was course. his name? Uh, Richard? Some, or, uh, Richard Gage? Richard Gage. Yeah, he was like, in the I thing ton, with T-Lab on Monday. Oh, that's fantastic. So they would have had two Richard G's. It would have been two and confusing. he's approaching it the best way. If you want to talk about the how, then we have to have a discussion about all the potential theories without just judging that one is legitimately true, just in the situation of train versus germ theory. Yeah. Uh, if you're really interested in this debate, what I've done for individuals is I've presented- Host a summit and get everyone's perspective, because Gage actually did this for he did the Pentagon. That. That's right. And he had like five or seven people come with different perspectives, different arguments, different evidence. And then as an audience, I'm like, I don't, I, I, I still don't have a conclusion, but I'm still not believing the official story, but there's a whole lot more contradictions, pieces of evidence yes, that don't fit yes. in that I ever knew about, because now I got to hear everybody on the panel's perspectives and that makes each person in the audience so much stronger. Yeah. That's so almost in a debate format. That's what classical debate was supposed to be is moving towards truth, not just being a posturing of who's more popular because um, who can shout louder and, you know, gain sort of notoriety by creating the committing the fallacy of ad populum. But yeah, anyways, you can not, go into each like debate situation, not trying to beat the other person, but trying to gain some essential bigger part of the truth that you didn't have before that learning experience, then you're doing it right. 
Exactly. Exactly. The audience should also go on that ride with both of you. And it should be an articulation of something that they can come to understand the world better or themselves better or both. And another thing I would just say um, about this whole debate is that what I like to do for individuals that come in, and there's been a number that have sent me direct messages. I've uh, I've answered questions in our community about it many, more than many times. And so I just what I do is I present the evidence to them. This is what I've used to formulate my judgment on the situation, where I've judged that there's a lot of contradictions in both theories, and I'm holding out for more evidence. Um, right now, it seems to be uh, I've taken a, maybe a slight edge to aspects of germ theory because it helps to cause or it has corresponded to my own lived experience of being around sick people and a couple of days later getting sick throughout my life when it comes to being a child or going to school or being around like my p- parents when they got COVID and then I got sick and had a very strange experience with that alluding to what Matt Eret went through to something very different. So there's, there's a cause. Have you ever been healthy? been around somebody sick like have you ever said oh that person's sick i'm gonna take some vitamin c go interact with them and not get sick have you ever had the the opposite of the experience that you had absolutely and that's the complexity of the the, uh the uh the um uh what's it called uh adaptive versus the other form of immunity i forget uh well it's almost like the biology of belief and the nocebo effect because like for instance if i were run down and tired and there were like my my son's playing with some kids and they're sick i might think to myself oh i'm gonna get sick and if i were to think something like that to myself i probably do get sick in all honesty but if i see that situation and think oh i'm healthy right now i'm well rested i have a strong immune system i'm not gonna get sick and I continue to have good protocol of just washing my hands. And I'm not like Jack uh, Nicholson and as good as it gets, you know, I, before meals, before you touch your face, before you put food in your mouth, have clean hands. That's it. That's yeah. There's, there's not there's, unrealistic. There's two general types of immunity, innate and adaptive and innate immunity just gives you the ability to fight disease. that's all around you at all times. And so there's a causal relationship. In other words, is it always one-to-one? Do you always get around someone that's sick and then get sick? No. If you're healthy, if your sleep is very important, you know, adequate levels of vitamin D and just, you know, you eat well, you exercise, there's less likely chance that you're actually going to get enough viral load for your body to become inundated because you have a strong innate immune system. And so that's one of the things to consider. It's, it's, and this is something that was mentioned by the early germ theory uh, practitioners. So it was something they recognized that not every animal host that they tried to implement or tried to uh, you know provide a pathogen to it got sick. So it's one of the complexities, you know, and many of the, and and is given rise to the question of you know what are all the functions, what are all the concepts associated with what it means to be a healthy individual to avoid disease, to live a long life, a happy life, one free of as much disease as possible. There's a lot of questions, but to get back to the the main point of all this is that, you know, although I've rested on certain, and this follows up with what Whitney said and Matt, but especially Whitney, could I be wrong that I've taken a, a slight based on the evidence I've seen juxtaposing both sides, spending way too much time with both sides, quite frankly, early on when this was such an issue, it was being sort of... Yeah. Did you run that scenario? If if it's this, what happens in your life? And if it's this, what changes in your life? And you're like, oh, neither one changes anything. So why should I change the processing power? But yet I still did. I spent some time with it and I ended up coming to a conclusion. I made a judgment and this is something that's totally uh, because of our free will. I have the... I could be wrong. Uh, but it is I've your made judgment to make judgments and choices for you. More of a causal relationship with the germ theory theory than there is with train. But that doesn't mean 
that I'm ultimately right. And I also think there's an also and um, that I've mentioned many times on the town halls and with the GTW. And I always provide my references, the information that I've used to formulate my judgment. Perhaps people can use the same uh, references and see if they come to similar conclusions or maybe opposite conclusions. We can share a discussion together and get closer and closer to an idea of truth there if people are really fascinated by this the the one big issue in training theory is they don't have a causal explanation um for why disease manifests and the ones that would be really good to have just like flat earthers having an accurate uh portrayal of the night sky and constellations and exactly all at the same time exactly different models does that make train theory or germ theory perfectly substantial no there are a lot of holes um just isolating them alone is a very difficult process and there are numerous techniques some of which are actually pretty good but then again, it's only a small subset of individuals that have the special the specialty and access to the technologies to improve upon our senses to be able to witness these things, document them, you know, analyze them, provide statistical models of how they replicate all these different things. And so there's many layers, in other words, of abstraction that we have that has to take place between what we see through these technologies and then how we communicate the the cause and effect relationship that then ends up being the identity of the thing in question that we call a virus or we call a bacteria or whatever it might be. So in the absence of that, what I did, someone actually messaged me and I'm going to just read the last line I wrote. I thought this is really a, a, um, a sort of uh, an important aspect to consider, um, something Whitney mentioned and Matt mentioned, and something I agree with wholeheartedly. So this is uh, John sent me a message, shout out to him, uh, who was interested in this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It was, in fact, someone left us a donation at the end of one of the GTWs and said, "Can why are you guys you know, dealing with uh, germ theory This is, or talking about COVID coming from a lab and all this sort of stuff? And I, I said, look, there's a lot of different opinions around it. We have to go where the evidence presents itself the best, regardless if you think of it as a virus, a bacteria, you can call it a toxin, you know, um, like David Martin does. He calls it a toxin. Like it's maybe not of the origin, doesn't have the identity that germ theorists associate with virus. Maybe it's a toxin. Maybe it's something that's totally different. Maybe it's something synthetically engineered, which, you know, with uh, mRNA technology, whatever one wants to come up with, nanotechnology, nanolipid te- particle technology, whatever. But this is what I said to him after presenting. He's like, I'd really like to follow up with your evidence that so you said you had counter evidence to this theory. But I'd like to see it. And we had a wonderful discussion. Awesome, dude. And he's really appreciated the fact that like, oh, you gave me substantial evidence that runs in, in, contrary to, you know, a lot of train theory ideas. It, and also it doesn't actually perfectly substantiate germ theory either. So this actually leaves us in a point at which the best judgment to make oftentimes is to be skeptical about both. This is what I said to him. This is one of the last sentences I wrote. To me, this issue of terrain theory has been more of a divide and conquer within alternative communities rather than a point at which we can recognize we're all being lied to about the origins, lethality, reality of SARS-CoV-2 itself, and that we should all remain skeptical, not necessarily of the ontology of viruses and their part in disease etiology, but of how these organisms can be used to create mass panic or fear to galvanize the type of reaction governments want from their citizenry around the world. In other words, we shouldn't be so focused on this theory, especially considering how many holes train theory has, and so does germ theory, to be fair, but more focused on the reaction and policies this has created around the world to quicken the movement to worldwide tyranny. And that echoes the sentiments wholeheartedly of Matt Arrett and Whitney Webb 
and the rest of them, but those two specifically mentioned that. So I just wanted to give a shout out because that's what I've been saying for a long time. I see this as nothing more than a major divide and conquer. It's really disappointing to see people who, quite frankly, when there's lack of evidence for both, just immediately, almost as though they're religious dogmatists, run to one theory. And it just reminds me of Jordan Peterson said, like, people are fundamentally ideological creatures. If you don't check yourself with logic. Red team, blue team. Yeah, you're going to end up becoming a sort of uh, a, a proselytizer for a specific theory or religion or viewpoint that lacks a, a good amount of fundamental evidence to be sure that you're, that's the real, real thing in question. So that's, that's good points. That's good points. So uh, maybe the path, uh, maybe T.H. Huxley is right in this instance where he brought up the idea. He coined the phrase uh, agnosticism or agnosticism not having enough knowledge to make a decision at this time, which is actually an intelligent position. Which is making a, which is making a, which is making a decision that is making a sure. judgment because you're making yeah. a judgment that there just isn't enough and that we should yeah. be skeptical and not someday be maybe later. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You're still making a judgment. That's actually very science profound. is still unfolding. It's not all like, uh, it's not all computed yet as it were. And to Whitney's point real quick, to Whitney's point, if the science comes out and there's more evidence in support of one or the other, my I'm allowed to change my opinion. In fact, we should. To be logical, as new evidence comes in, you should align yourself to that which is corresponds to reality. If new evidence comes in that supports that one or either both theories being having some veracity or one or the other having more veracity, we should attune ourselves to that. Well, we you can't stay do that. You have paradigm blindness. Right. Exactly. Right. That was an episode three weeks ago, four weeks ago. The titles was, are useful. They give you handles for right, big uh, ideas. That was mentioned on Melissa and Aaron Dykes' uh, pub, uh, production about East Palestine and white noise. Last week in the intermission. That's right. And all, it's, all, it's all coming together. Now, um, we talked about agnosticism, mm-hmm. right? That's an A word. It's a big word. You might not have heard of it. Interesting history. I got another A word. <laughs> a, don't worry. Don't, 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 don't jump to conclusions. <laughs> it's called acedia. And... Uh, it's variously defined as the state of listlessness or torpor or of not caring or not being concerned with one's position or condition in the world. I think that's a, a phrase that might handle some of that rock fin hater chat. Cause that's, that's kind of what it is. They're not doing that because they're happy with their decisions in life where they're, you know, right. So it's, it's like a, I, I interpret it as a cry for help. And I, I think we should aim to try to open the doors to people like that for opportunity and not shun them because they're there. They're already watching. If they just had a little little tweak in improving their thoughts, they could make a lot of uh, gain a lot of ground. Also, at this point, I wanted to direct you guys to this site. Now, if you haven't seen this before, shame on you. You're a listener of this podcast. Getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. Here it is here. It says time is up and time is up because we started the season. We started the global meet and greet. We did four or five hours on Friday night. We did five hours this afternoon with the new students. There's a, you know, 60 or 70 new students. And from hearing all their stories, I can't imagine that those who haven't clicked on this site are much different than the people who make it past the obstacle course and get into the course and start gaining their skills. So if you've never clicked this button and seen the obstacle course, it's like uh, you get to try something on without having to buy something. It's something a lot of other offers don't have the courtesy to do for you to give you 100% transparency up front before you get in there. 
And you also get a whole bunch of bonuses just for trying because we want to encourage people uh, to move forward. The goal that we're expressing here, not just in Grand Theft World, but specifically through the autonomy uh, curriculum, the training, the integration exercises, the community, and then helping entrepreneurs at Autonomy Unlimited with their businesses, that's all about ending the global culture of poverty and ignorance. And that has what that's what my work's been about since 2006. There's mass ignorance out there. And it's not because people aren't smart. It's because they've been put into situations where they've been indoctrinated. They assume too much and have used their faculties of thinking too little. And they haven't been exposed to the methods, tools, principles, strategies, and tactics that successful people use to move around and meet their needs without using force, fraud, or coercion, which is a really great way to go through life. You find satisfaction at many levels if you're not taking advantage of people. But in order to do that, you have to make an offer to the market that has value and utility to a lot of people, and what you're giving them exceeds the cost of entry. So those are the fair playing rules on the field. And for places like this to be sponsor free, the membership doesn't pay for all the expenses of this show, but autonomy does. Because if I go and serve those people with those needs and I serve these businesses with these needs, I do have enough money to get this show started, to get it to a place where it's almost, you know, pays for itself. I just want it to be buoyant. This show is not about making money. It's about bringing these clips every week that otherwise would be lost, censored, and deep sixed and bringing them not only to you every week live in the stream, but giving them to the future because people archive these and they have a way of making their way into the future in a pesky way, especially when people in the future are still telling lies that we've debunked right now, this week, they don't change their script. And the more people that can see the contradistinction, the juxtaposition of these things without comparison and contrast, you can't make informed decisions, but with comparison and contrast, all of a sudden those people who are assuming can now inspect both sides and condemnation prior to observation is the epitome of ignorance. And that's how, unfortunately, most people operate, but it's not by choice. It's because they weren't given an opportunity. So in order for me to give that opportunity, I have to do something called marketing. I have to mention that I have an offer that is probably right for anyone watching this podcast consistently. And that if you figure out that not quitting on yourself gets you over that wall that you didn't think you could conquer in the first place, you get competence and confidence straight away. So we have uh, lecture one coming up this week, but the only people that get into lecture one, they have to go through the obstacle course. And there's a couple other steps that are going to be beneficial to anybody who goes through on the way. And uh, I'm proud of everyone who has made it through and got into season nine. And uh, I don't know how long I'm going to be teaching the course live and dedicating hundreds of hours of my year every year to this specific thing. There are other projects that we're pursuing that are they're bigger and adjacent and these sort of things that are going to require time. So if you want to get into the course while I'm still teaching it live, giving all the Q&A answers, giving many, many hours of my time, answering people's questions in a personalized way that gives them a better, stronger vision for the future and practical steps of action and giving them access to the resources and the people that they need to make that a success. Go to getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. I'll put the site up one more time and click your way through. See if it's right for you. And if it's not right for you, you'll know it pretty quick. It doesn't take that long. But if you're lacking skills, if you're lacking confidence, if you're lacking competence in these sort of things, then give it a try because I think you're worth it. And most of the people who are the naysayers or making fun of it, 
they lack these things. And so they're actually rejecting an offer that could really help them readily, quickly rectify their situation in a permanent way. And that might be the biggest thing they're doing in their lives to hold themselves back. So with that, I have something of the entertainment variety so we can change the pace a little bit. Uh, Steven Crowder has made his uh, presence once again known on the interwebs. His mug club is now hosted at Rumble. He has hundreds of thousands of people watching on Rumble, millions of people watching the replay. He's getting a lot more people watching him now that he's made this new, interesting, and ballsy move. And as part of the Crowder production, they like to make unique intros every now and then that are provocative, get attention, somewhat informative, always entertaining. And they did two segments this past week on Jaws where he plays like the captain and he do does a, does a mug club, you know, all the dull, dull dark eyes, the doll's eyes, he does the whole thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember yeah. the guy's name, but it doesn't matter what the actor was. Um, he was also a James Bond villain. If you're going to get down to it, but um, I didn't want to play those. They're long. They're well executed, but the one I do want to play is musical. It's a song. Most people know about the visuals and the lyrics go together very well. And it is apropos to the news. We probably have to cover at some point tonight. So with that, let's go to uh, louder with Crowder. This is the onstage musical performance of a famous song by a band called Radiohead. Uh, and this one might be politically charged. So put your proverbial earmuffs on if you need to. When you were here before Could have guessed that you were fine You smell like a bagel Adult girls make me cry You float my own tugboat In my bountiful depends I wish I was special You're so f***ing special
$89 mug club. There it is. They lower the prices. They up the value. That's a good example. He's, he's, he turned down $50 million to go run his own thing. And he's doing it as Frank Sinatra said, he did it his way. Frank's not here to say that anymore. So I had to bring that news to you in case you didn't hear it. Also, in case you're uh, thinking that was a political video from our end of playing it, it's not, we're apolitical. We didn't vote for any of these characters. Uh, we've been read in above that believing <laughs> that the, the white house is controlling anything in this game uh <laughs> figureheads uh hang out there for a couple years you might even say that that's like uh dc's uh like uh uh that uh in, that what's the, what arkham asylum i was trying to remember my arkham batman asylum, yeah. yeah yeah dc's like arkham asylum they put the the looniest person in the white house they surround them with guards and, and fences and all this sort of stuff so there's another way to look at that that might be the most dangerous person to let around, you know, loose in the world. Again, you know, he's it's sort of a not reverse. qualified to run a midnight Arby's shift, and he's got nuclear weapons codes. Come on, man! <laughs> it's like a reverse of Foucault's uh, admonishment of the history of the way in which we treat um, uh, psychologically ill individuals. So, you know. yeah, I thought that was special because it's a well executed artistic concept oh, yeah. that was, that was with hilarious. some poignant reminders of why people think that might be weird that he sniffs little kids like that and always touching people uh, I mean, COVID was going around like he wasn't president during a not covid time that was like does that is that does that look like we were social distancing on big fucking red dots in the in the grocery stores and stuff and he's all like touchy-feely with everybody i don't get mm-hmm. it you know at the beginning of the pandemic i know I wasn't in much danger or as much danger as they wanted me to think of because I looked at the people around Trump and there were people around Trump with big beards and I knew what they were saying about biolab and stuff like that. And I was like, the minute these dudes lose their beards, it's because they have to wear full mask respirators and it's a real thing that never happened. So that was like a de-escalation moment. Biden didn't give any such opportunities for de-escalation behind the scenes he just seemed to be able to trip up steps which is a, a talent in and of itself to be able to do it multiple times if you haven't seen those other clips and uh we played it because it's funny it's funny it's tragic yeah, exactly. it's, it's tragic, tragic. Yeah. it's ironic it's a lot of things but it's also quite humorous taking a radiohead song and making fun of somebody who's supposed to be the most powerful person in the world so readily great it's production so value by the Very way adept like yeah, getting the lens flares on, in there yeah. to make it look like it fits in with the whole video. Yeah. A lot of work went into that. Many, many thousands of dollars went into making that silly idea. <laughs> it's very true. Well, but it was an idea to promote Mug Club, which is his single offer. It's one offer. And then everybody goes to that. And then they stay afloat. Yeah. Then they hire uh, and they, they, Jimmy he, Brewer. 
He's then the author get... of his own script instead of being the unwitting participant in someone else's script, as God pointed out, which would have been the Daily Wire and having right. control of his seven his, ad reads productions. Right. Yeah. Seven ad reads. Any production he does while he's uh, under the tenure of Daily Wire, they control as well as social media accounts. And I know there's a lot of back and forth. I, I can't get into the intentions of becoming the, the fallacy of ad hominem uh, genetic fallacy. But all we know is that the contract wasn't what it seemed to be. Um, there is you know, we got, we juxtaposed both sides and Crowder's just one of those individuals I can't see doing well under any sort of traditional contractual obligation. So he went and did his own thing. So kudos to him. Hopefully it works out. I like to see the, uh, you know, Dick, Nick DiPaolo, he got Brian Callen. He got a whole host of talent to come follow him to his platform. And, you know, and he doesn't take their subscribers. He's treating them as equals. He's bringing likes to their productions. He's changing. He's trying to change the model around. He's not acting like a vampire because here's how it works. I'm not making fun of daily wire. Daily wire is what it is, but Traditionally in the industries, the, the companies that become mature and older, they're no longer creative and they lo- no longer attract creative people. So they go around and they plunder, Here, here's a startup that's really great. Okay, now take that startup and make a big big corporate culture and it crushes it uh, and it loses its the soul out of that company. Look at what this did to uh, Star right. Wars. Yeah. It would have squeezed the soul out of Crowder's whole operation to make exactly. him do ingenuous ad reads for things that he's not even like, he's just getting, he doesn't directly get the ad money. The daily wire gets it and then uses some of it to pay Crowder. And then the limitations they put around his ability to do that. And the, it was just unrealistic. And the expectations always produce, you know, to make sure there's a number of productions and that he is viable in the sense he's getting enough return for those productions. It's, it was, a, it was very obnoxious. And so he wanted to change the model, the way these contractual obligations are, are established and kudos to him for he's giving it a try. Hopefully it works out and, you know, uh, my girlfriend and I, we support him. I know, you know, you've signed up for Mug Club. I have his old Mug Club from back in the day too. So, or his old mug you get for joining. So that was when he's part of Blaze. But I'm excited to see him do his own thing. I always, especially because I've grown up around entrepreneurs, have so much respect for entrepreneurs because I know how much work it takes, how much sacrifice it takes on the part of the individual trying to ha- manifest their own destiny in life, to write their own script in stay life. Stay on course. Yeah. You know, and to be a principled individual, maintain yeah. ethical integri- integrity, um, be a man of or a woman upholding their own principles. And that's what Crowder is seemingly trying to do here. We'll see if he does it. I hope he does it. And so far, uh, you know, kudos to him and his operation. Well, he had a good opportunity and then he went and executed the good idea. And then as a master stroke of marketing. Tony, what would you do if you wanted everybody to come and watch your your first show on Rumble? How would you get everybody over there? Well, you bring the most banned man in the world onto your show yeah, for did. two days and have him like sleep over and run his show from your studio. That a lot that attracts millions and millions of people who are like, who's Steven Crowder? And something right? he would never be able to do on the Daily Wire. <laughs> no, never. Sure. Absolutely not. And he, you know, I'm surprised they didn't have oh, Kanye man. on next or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Go through the Daily Wire's oh, whole list of people they blacklisted and just invite them on. That would have been brilliant. That would have been brilliant. Yeah. Continual. But he was pretty brilliant that he brought Alex Jones on for those two days. That was great. So and Alex was semi-controlled. And yeah. like, you know, he's getting he was getting he was done. reserved. He 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 was he did. You know, he humanized himself. He had a good sense of humor. It was yeah. it was pleasant watching. It's and good to see him in that environment, something outside of the normal sort of, you know, black pill. The two crowder uh intros about Jaws. Right. There's the one in the ship and big con go away. Sometimes big con comes back. 
you know, and he does this whole, he's, so he's throwing the daily wire and big conservative media under the bus in these two really well executed theatrical presentations where he plays, uh, what was the guy's name? Clint. I forget his name. Um, the, the, the sea captain, you know, I'll give you the boat, uh, you know, cost you $3,000 for this, but if you want the whole fish, it's going to be t- that, that guy, right? Robert, find it. I'll get it. It'll come back to me. It's a guy from 50 years ago, trying to remember his name, but, uh, so it's entertaining and it's a good example of marketing. He's making a call to action, but he's delivering Robert value. Robert Shaw. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. James Bond villain in like diamonds are forever. One of those movies. Uh, but also like the skipper in, uh, the first jaws movie. I don't know if he makes it to the second one. Does he? <laughs> I haven't seen Jaws in so long. I can barely remember that film. To be honest. Yeah, well, there's another, you know, 1975. Uh, like, I think that film. Was. Jaws is a good example of COVID because sharks aren't really that much of a threat. But if you check out their marketing for Jaws, you'd sort of think sharks were a problem. Yep. Not well, that much it's different. Actually manifested a tremendous amount of fear around shark attacks when it's one of the least likely ways of dying or being seriously maimed. Out of all the situations that can manifest in one's life, in regards to what's the I, what what's injury. the what's the percentage of people that go to the hospital and get killed by some hospital procedure accidentally? Like there's a there's so astronomically it, higher than shark attacks. Yes, like yes, yes, and it's so it was such a big deal that back in the 1970s, Patty Chayefsky made a movie called I don't know Hospital something like that, and it's got. Uh, uh, George C. Scott, and he's a doctor, and you get to see how ludicrous, and people are just dying all over the place because it's like protocol, uh, just following orders. Uh, we forgot to, oh, we got that wrong. Sorry, he died, right? And it's like a, it's a dark comedy about how our medical system worked in like the 1970s. <clears throat> and then if you like that movie, there's several other Patty Chayefsky movies you should check out. I'm talking about uh, the Americanization of Emily, of course, not, <laughs> not Altered States. Wasn't referring uh, to that States one. was an interesting one for sure. And then uh, we do have a clip later from Network because uh, that's a topic that we need to cover. But before we got too far, it's I wanted like to make Kyle sure. Dunn again, maybe we'll have an outro. It's a little weird, but it's part of his press prez theory. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he has a new one. Press two clips making theory. fun of the, the former vice president. That's too much for the show. Yeah, We'll see how it goes. to the malarkey saga. We'll find out. How it all goes down is does is it a situation where Hunter Biden tries to get Joe Biden to filter cocaine and crack out of the White House? We'll see. We'll find out. It's so. called the White House for a reason. <laughs> Those aren't pillars in front of it. Those are big cocaine rails that hold that thing up. What a pun! That's a cocaine. <laughs> Very solid, you know. Biden's off the rails way. for real. That would be so much more interesting to see a like a coked up Biden than just the, you know, whatever they give him. You might just around. see a coked up Biden. I don't know. You might just see know. one. Well, at least in Kyle Donigan's. There'll be a coked up deep fake first. <laughs> well, there's a lot of deep fakes probably already. Well, All right. Know. So Anyways, go we, we got a variety of stories that we can break into. So we got some choice in direction. But I think uh, going back earlier in the week, if we cover some stuff chronologically, kind of as it happened, there was uh, this situation where Tony Fauci was doing some outreach work. Uh, you know, he was doing diversity, equity, and inclusion training on the uh, vaccine, uh, just doing it out on the street and just happened to have like 
a camera crew with him, right? I think that's how it unfolds. And little did he suspect that he'd bump into a fellow virologist. Oh, wait, Fauci's not a virologist, is he? I don't think he is. No, epidemiologist. Epidemiologist. Yeah, he finds is the, the source of where it came from the lab. No, he didn't even do that job. <laughs> That's what epidemiology is like. Where is the origin of this thing, right? Isn't that what it's supposed to Pseudo-virology be? Pseudo-virology is what they really Well, do. he ran into like a Nobel Prize winning laureate of this sort of thing. Uh, and he got... He got some feedback that he wasn't prepared for. He got schooled. He got schooled in the hood. So let's go to uh, who, who has that clip? Is the, it Tucker the best, Carlson? The original, yeah, the original word first. I think was Tucker. It says this new footage of Doctor Fauci is amazing. It's at the bottom of the vaccine. Stage. It is, and anything amazing it's about like Fauci definitely gets into this time capsule that we preserve for the history, the, the the future. Because I know they've heard nothing but negative things about Fauci. We want to show you this amazing thing about Doctor Fauci because we want to balance that out so you just don't think about one side of it. So the media in this country do not exist to inform you, obviously, but to mislead you on behalf of the people in power. So it's not surprising the footage you're about to see has been hidden in years. It just surfaced in a PBS special of all places. It shows the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, and Tony Fauci in 2021 visiting residents in a black neighborhood in D.C. to push the COVID vaccine. And you can assess for yourself how well that went. So this is Ward 8. Uh, it's the typical social determinants of health, where they don't get good medical care, they have a high degree of HIV, high degree of COVID-19, the lowest level of vaccination. So I'm not going to be lining up taking a shot on a vaccination for something that wasn't clear in the first place. And then you all create a shot in miraculous time. It takes years to... Well, it used to take years. If it allow thousands of people like you don't get vaccinated, you're going to let this virus continue to percolate in this country and in this world. Something like the common flu then, right? You're going to pass. Yeah, definitely. Because when you you start talking about paying people to get vaccinated, when you start talking about incentivizing things to get people vaccinated, there's something else going on with that. I won't keep you anymore. It's okay, because my my, my campaign is about fear. It's about inciting fear in people. You all attack people with fear. That's what this pandemic is. So great. The people of Ward 8 may be poor, but they're not stupid. Notice Tony Fauci gazes at them like he's walking through the zoo with contempt and a little bit of fear. So he kept getting questions like this from the poor but not stupid people of Ward 8 in D.C. One lady asked Tony Fauci if the vaccine would prevent her from getting COVID, which is the most basic of all questions. Here's how Fauci responded. I heard that it doesn't um, cure it and it doesn't um, stop you from getting it. No. So on the very, very, very rare chance that you do get it, even if you're vaccinated, it's a very you don't even feel sick. It's like you don't even know you got infected. It's very, very good at protecting you. So it turns out the lady in the tank top was a lot closer to the target than Mr. Tony Fauci, the highest paid federal bureaucrat in the world. Raymond Arroyo is the author of The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison, and we're happy to have him join us tonight. Raymond, thanks so much for coming on. You work in D.C. You're familiar with the city. 
What do you make of this amazing and highly amusing tape? Well, you, you know, first of all, this is on American Masters, Tucker. Now, when I watch American Masters, I want to see Sammy Davis Jr., Martha Graham. But now we have Tony Fauci, the master of deception, maybe, but not not the master, an American master. He also this crew followed him, Tucker, for 23 months, like he's Beyonce. You know, every move has to be captured by the camera. It is a remarkable document, though, of the common sense of people, even in very poor communities. They were saying what we were hearing from epidemiologists and virologists all over the country very early on. Mainly, these are leaky vaccines. They don't prevent infection or spread. And that man on the on the stoop, you got to give him props. There's a moment where he says, you are incentivizing this. You're paying us to take this. And that made him squeamish about it. There's a moment in the documentary, Tucker, where behind Fauci, they have a car. And on the car, it says, win me. So all it costs to win this car is to allow them to give you the jab, offer your arm. I'm sorry, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood is a lot more friendly than Dr. Fauci's. You don't want him coming knocking on your door. That's frightening. Well, what What's so interesting is I spent my life in that city, diagonally across it, in the rich part of the city, right. where nobody had any questions about the government's motives here. It's interesting, in the poorest, most crime-ridden part of the city, everybody had a kind of gut skepticism that turned out to be well-warranted. Yeah, well, and look, when, when not the cookie monster, but the booster monster comes looking for you, you better hide, <laughs> hide the kids. But I love that people were willing to confront him, but the... The arrogance, the, um, yeah. the, the arrogance toward these people was striking from Fauci. He already had a Disney Plus documentary. Now we got to get PBS in on the action. Come on. I love it. All my Harvard-educated neighbors are like, oh, if CNN says it's okay, okay. And this guy doesn't have a job. He's like, what? No. Yeah, we're not doing sense. that. I don't think so. <laughs> God it's bless so him. Great. Common sense, Tucker. It will save us. Raymond Arroyo, thanks so much. Thank you. You know, it's interesting. Common sense and street smarts is as it's as if there's an inverse proportional relationship between common sense and those that have been more highly educated. To Tucker's point, you know, being in the rich part of the city, all those people unquestionably committed the fallacy of ad veracundium, appeal to authority, and said, "Oh yeah, I'll appeal to the authorities who tell me this is okay to go and get. I won't do any research for myself because they've been properly, what's that word, rich schooled? I believed they have been indoctrinated, not to well, think for I've themselves." The people in those videos simply weren't willing to forget the obvious things that they already knew. They didn't have a selective memory. Exactly. They didn't have paradigm blindness. Like a majority of even Fox News's audience has had, still has these yeah. sort of things going on. I never expected to see Raymond Arroyo being brought in to take down Tony Fauci. But when that happens, Fauci, it's time to give up the belt, bro. Like you can no longer <laughs> hold the title. Like uh, Arroyo couldn't like he I don't know he's not a you got Pee Wee Herman twice. Thank weeks. you, thank you. So there you go. Look, you know. said it, so I didn't have to. Yep. Thanks for the clearance, Clarence. <laughs> always. So I'm not surprised to see happy to help with puns. People speaking back. What I'm surprised to see is that PBS aired that footage yeah, because that, they are so exactly. tone deaf to what that footage communicates to non-polarized, non-politically charged Let's people. Paradigm blindness. Holy shit. Paradigm blindness. Sponsored by yeah. Rockefeller Foundation. Brought to you by the <laughs> MacArthur Foundation. Yeah. You know, stock, like, Rockefeller, you know, 
all the various PBS, behaviorists. Petroleum Broadcasting System. You think it's public <laughs> service. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're telling you the truth. That's the, that's the that's the hardcore thing about like that group, like over at PBS or even BBC will do this. They'll tell you one thing while showing you the other. Like you just saw those people speaking truth. And after three years, you know, that's truth. And Fauci's like, ah, and his little mask brigade goes and focuses on other people who might not be paying attention that day. Yeah. Easily. A lot of people aren't going through life, not paying attention. Those people have too much comfort. People People who are in the struggle, they pay attention all the time. You're not going to fool them. Yeah. It's the other, the soccer moms and dads and stuff that are like in the corporate jobs that are reality, just like blind, layers right, of abstraction, terrarium mentality. Yeah, it's a terrarium. Yeah. They're artificially separated from cause and effect of what exists. And those people living in uh, desperate communities, they see reality in front of them and they know they have a certain street smart, certain common sense about, you know, what it takes for them to get through their day, how to live. And, you know, they see a con very easily, especially um, in those communities. When so if someone comes to your door saying you can win a car, just take a jab. You know, <laughs> that should be a red flag. They have anyone. offered burgers, cars. Oh yeah, let's not forget about burgers. Hookers, in New York, like yeah. they've offered yeah, everything. Yeah, I forgot about the people. hookers. Yeah, Dude. yeah, in Europe. Yeah, totally. My parents taught me don't do experimental drugs and don't deal with peer pressure. Like you don't. Then <laughs> that was like the whole formula for the official like narrative is like peer pressure and experimental drugs. Any questions? No questions. No, we don't answer questions. Right. We all have indemnity and protection, except you, you're, you're the experiment. I hope you're okay with it. Take the, take a chance at the car. No, I'd rather pay a $5 raffle ticket. And, and for I the black community, they went through something called the Tuskegee. Tuskegee experiments were a real yeah. thing. That's real history. So they might have a memory of you remember the movie about that? Oh, wait, that was the Tuskegee Airmen. They didn't they didn't make the one about Ah, the experiments. Interesting. I wonder why they wouldn't do such a thing, huh? Huh. Curious. People have memories. That's probably why. They would remember that and probably not as easily cooperate with biological experiments in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. You know, we talked about it before, but the creator of chemotherapy was a guy named Cornelius Rhodes. Let me bring him up here in the history blueprint. It's spelled different than Cecil Rhodes. There's no relation. I'll do uh, R-H-O-A-D. There he is. Cornelius Dusty Rhodes. Now, this guy, he helped create uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in uh, New York City, famous cancer battling cancer center, uh, chemotherapy. But his qualifications are very interesting. Because uh, he was into institutionalized racism and worked in uh, human experiments on Puerto Ricans. That was his qualifications. So he had chemical warfare experience from, from World War I. And then he had human experimentation research on what they considered to be, because uh, this was the time of eugenics back then, they considered them to be inferior people and they could be experimented on. And those were the qualifications for him to have this uh, huge influence on uh, how cancer is treated. And you see Simone Flexner, but Flex, the Flexner report is what changed medicine in this country that came out in like 1910. And education, forever. the Flexner brothers worked for yep. the Rockefellers and they took exactly. down, ed- they took our education system and the uh, training system for doctors and monopolized both. You got it. Industrialized healthcare. Here's a couple sources for that information. And they might be they might be uh privy to or sympathetic to ideas of eugenics. Just yes. Just so I first uh learned about Cornelius Rhodes uh studying these things. Two other references where I found it are Rockefeller Medicine Men by E. Richard Brown. I think that's 1976. It's easy to get a reprint of that book. 
Also, How Big Oil Conquered the World by James Corbett. And uh, he's in there working for the oligarchs. So the Rockefeller Empire is not the only empire, the only family that was influential, but they sure were influential in a lot of Anglo-American establishment history during the 20th century. It is worth noting, and it is not cliche. It is not cliche <laughs> to say that they had some influence control and uh, uh, at the helm type of creation of visions and steering committees and groups to make these things into a reality that we experience today. Yeah, so, it's not like there's a lot of a lot of connections under the Rockefeller Empire. Parent, no. child, cousin relationships there in the brain model. Oh, don't talk about their inbreeding. That's not what this show's about. <laughs> Another pun. There we go. Not for a couple hours, then it becomes about such things. All right. So uh other stories we had this week that we should cover. Um, that insurrection footage, I'm going to trust that you guys saw it with Luke's intro. We don't need to go much deeper into that. I would like to get into why Trump wasn't arrested because he told us like they could have presented it like, Hey, we trolled Trump. We got him to tweet out that he was going to be arrested. Ha ha. But I don't think that's what they were doing. I think they legitimately thought they could pull it off. And then what happened? A whole bunch of things happened. So which clip I had uh Tim cast with, uh, a report on the exonerating evidence, the statute of limitations, all these, they could have done this thing to him in 2019, right before he ran against Biden and they chose not to, but all of a sudden now in 2023, they think, Oh, we can prevent him from running for president. It seems like one side's getting really desperate and that side who's getting really desperate. It didn't work out for them this week. I think On the flip side, now Trump cast. has to run for president because if they would have arrested him, it would have been landslide. He wouldn't even have to run. So now he actually exactly. has to run, which is entertaining because his average order at McDonald's is two Big Macs and two filet of fish. And that's all for his little tummy along with a chocolate milkshake. So uh, be like the Prez, right? He's on the cover of the Wheaties box. Only it's not <laughs> Wheaties. Well, you can get your cardboard and many different types of cereal. So however you like to... Whatever your taste of flavored cardboard The is. box and the cereal are made of cardboard. It's the secret go. of Bruce Jenner. <laughs> uh, we should play the... That was Tim history, though. I was referring the to the 76 Olympics. So. We should see the exonerating evidence. And then we should... I, I thought Greg Reese did a really good bit putting this in a different perspective. Um, you know, uh, essentially not calling out Trump himself, but he presents some interesting perspectives that I think it's worth getting on the record in regards to how much can we or should trust the two party system. And, you know, and some of the cryptic tweets Trump had in regard to this potential arrest and some of the language he chose. Oh yeah. It's pretty cavalier, right? Pretty pretty uh, ambiguous, pretty almost inciting random people to go be fodder for the machine of government to eat them up. So I think it's good. I think we should use, we should show those both just to get, you know, and a, now that you a, bring that a, up, Tony. holistic and well-rounded perspective on what Trump might be. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the Corbett report in regards well, to what sorry. was his track record after January 6th. All those people protesting on his behalf, they're still rotting in prison, right? Political That's prisoners. He hasn't after done he told everyone anything to, go to the get... Capitol where they had that pavilion set up where he's going to give a speech and then he doesn't go. And then all of a sudden, Alex Jones and the crew, they all walk there thinking they're, yeah. that's where they told him to go because that's where he's going to give the speech or whatever. Or, you know, ended up being a different place. I don't know. The whole thing is very strange. Yeah. He ended up making a lot of money, has some very strange connections. Something we should juxtapose both um, just to give a whole a well-rounded overview. But I think first you should see the exonerating evidence, but then we should just for it's a five minute clip from. Yeah. So we'll show exonerating evidence in the, the frame of this is America deserves a lot better than Donald Trump. 
Yeah, exactly. But until, that's what Gregory alludes to. Until someone comes along. You see who's in the White House right now? Joe, I forgot what I do for a living Biden. And I don't think this country is being well served under the non-leadership and divide and conquer mentality of his entire political structure that put him in power. Somebody wiped his butt though. Thank who God. he services. Yeah, he said it was wiped. He's, was wiped. he's clean about that. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He's he's proud to admit it to the press corps too. Right. And any admission or any sort of uh, comments in regards to any sort of campaign donations or private companies from China giving money to his family members that, you know, no comment, no comment, no comment. And even the press secretary, I'm not going to talk about that. So, you know, there's just, it's like Clinton 2.0, you know, we just went through Whitney's book. We're doing the the book club. It's in the next ones this Friday. If people want to join in, come at Grand Theft hey, World at subscriber. Least... But it reminds me so much of the Clinton trying to gate scandals. I'm like, at least, that was a much more sophisticated version of it. Now we get like the dumbed down, retarded version or uh, mentally challenged version of said some people get triggered by the the r word so mentally challenged uh version of the the clinton administration it's a recapitulation history doesn't repeat it certainly rhymes and sometimes those rhymes well they uh get a little bit more dumb and perverse there's a lot of things I could say uh, from that, but <laughs> I'm thinking which of these things my mom could be proud of me saying. So <laughs> I'm not going to say any of those things <clears throat> and I'm going to leave it. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to the next story. <laughs> That's how I dig myself out of that one. I had a bunch of stuff that aren't, it's not constructive. You don't have something nice to say. You shouldn't say anything. After, Even if it would be show. funny, definitely don't say it. Become a Grand Theft World subscriber and hear us talk for five minutes after the show before we fall over from exhaustion. That's where we say those crazy things. <laughs> Sometimes. Don't tip them off, man. All right. Um, so we go to that Tim cast? Yeah. Or should we, yeah. yeah let, let's go to the Tim cast and then uh, we'll go to uh, Greg Reese. You said had a piece on it afterwards. Yeah. And again, um, this is not a political show, but we do have to cover politics. I consider politics most of the time, unless you participate in it and have a strong local connection and stuff. Politics is oftentimes other people talking about how to divvy up your freedoms and your profit for their benefit to use as they see fit in a way that you don't have any informed consent or volitional activity in. They claim to represent you. They've never met you. They don't know you. They don't represent, like they don't literally, they really don't represent you because they don't know you. How could they represent you? Right. So on a local level where, you know, your representatives, you could have a better relationship, but uh, that's why I'm not on red team or blue team. Uh, but I do have to watch what they're doing because they control like a third of the country's population between those two parties. There's another third or two thirds of this country that are adults that can see that they don't want to participate in that. And we sit quietly by hoping that that side doesn't bleed over into taking our freedom as we try to live our lives with morals, ethics, and integrity. But we'll see. They keep pushing. They keep being able we'll fire you if you don't take the experimental thing. All right. Well, is being fired the same as being shot? No, but being shot in the arm could be the same as being shot. So I'll take the, uh, I'll find a new job. And how many steps do we go from not taking the shot in the arm to being shot in the chest with some other type of lethal mechanism? Just saying, it is saying monopoly of force, the ability to redefine the definitions in the middle of the game, to move the goalposts, to obscure by saying, here's a lancet paper that proves we're right. Now we can take away your rights. And they made it all up. I think we need to learn from those things, not let them repeat. 
And uh, in order to do that, we have to keep looking at these situations. And similarly, I think it would be highly unusual to arrest a former president of the United States. It's not a thing that makes our country look good. It makes us look like a banana republic. And we've made so many banana republics and overthrown them over the years. I think those chickens have come home to roost. They refined a methodology all over the world, you know, not just starting September 11th, 1973, starting decades and decades before that. Started with the implementation of the MI6 system to the, the OSS, great game. The oh, CIA, oh thank you. Game, yeah. Okay. Watch this. Not this tab. Right here. Peace Revolution, episode 83. America and the Great Game, a strategy of tension. False. That's what Operation Gladio is. So yeah. Gladio wasn't in the title. This is the Operation Gladio uh, episode. Let me click OK to cookies. And there's a whole bunch of really cool. This is holism. This oh, is Dave Emery. right. There's a whole bunch of cool resources. Yeah, holism, and months, look yeah. at all these great clips. And this goes on and on and on. And I think it's probably it's probably 14 hours or something. Let's see. Yeah, 14 hours, 22 14 hours. So don't listen to it all in one day unless you're driving tractor trailer. Then have at it. I got many, many truck drivers out there in the audience. They love not touching their you know device and just listening for hours and hours. And it's not all the same thing. As you can see, it's comprised of many, many cl source clips that I had to find, understand, review, mark for later, cut into an artistic representation of what the history, evolution, and forward projection is of these groups. And uh, yeah, it's resource heavy. It's for nerds and enjoy. You can find that at tragedyandhope.com. And to find it, I had to go to podcasts and then search around, but I can put this link in the production chat right now. And LD will have it on his end. And you guys can figure it out from there. Cool. Cool. Let's now go to Tim Pool over at the Timcast IRL headquarters, somewhere on an undisclosed mountaintop over in West Virginia. And let's see what kind of exonerating evidence they might have suddenly found right before they were going to get the bad guy and have him go to jail. It sounds like a Perry Mason episode that has two parts. So let's see what the certainly first a part production. Is. That's for sure. Enjoy the stage play. Let's see what part one is. We got the story from the post millennial breaking 2018 letter states. Michael Cohen paid stormy Daniels with his own funds. Trump did not reimburse. Oh, geez. I wonder why it is that when the story first broke years ago, they did not move to indict Trump. Could it be that he didn't have anything to do with it? A 2018 letter from former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen's team to officials at the Federal Election Commission has revealed that the then president, that the then president was not involved in the payment of alleged hush money to Stormy Daniels. The letter obtained by the Daily Mail stated that it was Cohen who paid Daniels $130,000 out of his own pocket, quote, in a private transaction in 2016. Before the U.S. presidential election, Mr. Cohen used his own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to Ms. Stephanie Clifford. Neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was a party to the transaction with Ms. Clifford and neither reimbursed Mr. Cohen in the payment uh, directly or indirectly. Cohen's team went on to explain that neither Mr. Cohen nor Essential Consultants LLC made any in-kind contributions to Trump for president or any other presidential campaign committee, nor was Cohen a government employee at the time. Thus, they argued the payment in question does not constitute a campaign contribution or expenditure, and therefore the FEC lacks jurisdiction over this matter. Well, that's it. There goes the story. <laughs> there it goes. You can't indict him. I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy. Where, where is our country going 
if you're indicting a leading candidate for president on something which, by the way, this happened how long ago? Like, are we living in the past? This didn't happen recently. This, this letter is, is from 2018. So here, we have the actual letter right here. You can see it from uh, Daily Mail. It says, uh, McDermott, Will, and Emery, February 8th, 2018, to the FEC. So the question is, did this individual, Stephen M. Ryan, counsel for Michael Cohen, lie to the FEC? Likely not. It's more likely that it's been a witch hunt the whole time. Democrats have been weaponizing the justice system to go after Donald Trump with lies and smears. And this proves that it's all bunk nonsense. Yeah. And I would say Cohen wants payback because Cohen went to jail, which was really his own fault. He went to jail and he blames Trump and he didn't get a new job, didn't get money with Trump. And so he turned into an anti-Trump guy. And this was part of his scheme to be able to grow his star on the left, being the guy who yep. took down Trump. Like and Kinsinger, so he's willing to lie. Like Cheney, like Kinzinger, the, uh, like uh, was it Joe Walsh. Yep. These people know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. they, they, they're, you know what I think it is? People like Cohen go to prison. And then you'll see people like, you know, Joe Walsh or whatever. And they're like, I, I know who butters my bread. I better just fall in line with the deep state. hundred percent. Why would Cohen pay Stormy Daniels $130,000 anyway? That part never made sense to me. I mean, I think it makes sense. It's just, it's a question of personal issues that we're not privy to. Is it, right. Yeah. Is That's it possible it. that he's just super rich and it's like 130 grand is not much to take the pressure <laughs> off Donald Trump. I'm just going to do it for him kind of thing. Maybe it could be this. Michael Cohen was, he was the counsel for Trump, right? He was, he was a lawyer yeah. for Trump. Yeah. Imagine you're a lawyer for a client and the client says, listen, I need you to take care of these extraneous things. I'm not going to waste time with them, right? I'm busy with my campaign. And then Michael Cohen's thinking this Stormy Daniels lady is causing me a headache. It's my job to deal with it, but she won't shut up and go away. I got it. I'll pay her off. That will make my job so much easier. Now, Donald Trump in this scenario, this is hypothetical. Donald Trump doesn't go to Michael Cohen and say, pay her off, make her shut up. Donald Trump says, you know, I don't know what this is all about. Figure out what's going on. I'm going to get back to work. You deal with it. And then Michael Cohen says, instead of doing my job, filing paperwork and having to deal with this, it's easier for me to just pay for her to uh, go away personally and then just bill the hours to Trump. The Trump campaign likely then says, I have no idea what this is. Here's here's, the, you know, Michael Cohen. Here, this, this makes sense. Imagine that's what happened. They're, they're, they're claiming Trump paid the money to Stormy Daniels and called it legal fees. It's entirely possible Michael Cohen, according to this letter, did it himself and then without Trump's knowledge, billed Trump for the payment he made to Stormy Daniels. And Trump was just like, I guess we owe legal fees. And so that's the 35000 that Trump 100. paid. Well, Trump paid Michael Cohen $35,000 a year later in October of 2017. There's a check from Trump to Cohen for 35 grand. Sure, and that can be anything though, man. Right. Look, when, when I get a legal bill, I don't, I tip it for, my, for the company, like we get legal bills because of the, all the legal work that we do. Like I got to call a lawyer, I'm like we're gonna file this, we're gonna file that, you know, new company, old company, copyright. I don't go through this whole itinerary. I call the lawyer and say, here's what we need done. I need this song cop, you know, trademark. I need this thing trademarked. We're launching an LLC for here. Get it done, send me the invoice. They send me an invoice, I click pay. Yep. The thing is, though, if I had a lawyer and and I owed and I wanted and, and they just went and gave someone one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, that would be the most insane you would situation. Know. If you but were a billionaire, my lawyer, dude, they're trying to make you, money you, off you, me. You, you, yes, I, I explained that already. If I go to a lawyer and say I need four, five new companies formed in the state of Delaware and I need it done by next week, 
he goes, right, okay, us, I got please. it. Gets off the phone and then starts sweating, being like. It was painful for me to listen to it the first time. So we're just going to cut to the chase. If you're a lawyer and you have a law firm and you got a client like Trump and you he's a billionaire and he's got a lot of business, you probably get a healthy retainer and money coming in just from handling Trump's account. And Trump might say something to Cohen, like this thing's going on, take care of it. And if you want to keep my business, you just take care of it. That's what he, that, you know, he's not going to beat around the bush. Bad pun. Speaking around beating around the bush, uh, Cohen could have set Trump up with Stormy Daniels in the first place for the purposes of blackmailing, which is what he eventually tried to do and, like you know, revenge and these sort of things. So I don't know. I believe that Trump probably did have relations with Stormy Daniels. I don't see why he wouldn't have. I mean, see, that's I mean I, she's not my type, but, you know, <laughs> she seems like right up, you know, she works near Trump. It doesn't the strip club near his place. And like, you know, that seems like a realistic situation. Uh, is it traditional for people to pay off women like that? They were for hire in the first place. There was probably a fee. What about Bill Clinton with Jennifer Flowers? Anybody? Anybody? Right. There's like events like this all through history. Why is Trump's like jail worthy indictment? We're going to cuff the president and do all these things. It's just like when they raided Mar-a-Lago over what nuclear codes that you said he had and he didn't have. And when we compare what the Democratic presidents are doing and how they're holding their records or even Bush, very not secure places. Obama's got eight million records in an old bowling alley or whatever the deal is, right? I mean, it's just crazy scenarios. So that's so it's not about even those nuclear codes in the Clinton administration. Oh wait, he's the one who hung himself and shot himself in the chest. Uh, yeah, because he has his connections with Epstein. So yeah, I'm just saying, you know, nuclear codes. You know, they've been a little loose over the past well, many administrations. They, they've been loose since uh, Hillary had that server in her bathroom. There's a lot of loose stools <laughs> going on in there, and. People slipping and sliding, China getting access to shared server information. Right. Don't talk about nuclear codes. She was Secretary of State at the time. And what qualified her? Uh, she stayed with Bill Clinton after Monica Lewinsky. That's what qualified her for that position. I mean, she's a cunning lawyer from the Rose Law Firm. She yeah. was there during Watergate. She was there during Iran-Contra. She survived all that stuff. So, I don't know. It's kind of like... Uh... Can't trust any of them. It's like good like to, you know. I'd like to believe her. Yeah, you know, they try to groom those that they think can participate in their machinations. So you're trying to find the ones that'll play along, you know. So just like in Goodfellas, where he's like, he didn't rat out when he was younger. He's like, ah, he'll be good for us. Now, when uh, Trump hires Cohen, Cohen might say, might have said, hey, at some point we're gonna have to pay somebody off, and Trump said, well, here's a hundred grand. And then after negotiations, Stormy Daniels demanded 135 grand. So he's going to have to make up that 30 G's or 35 G's at some point. Maybe that's what that other connection goes to. But even if that's all true, if we weigh it on the scale, it's not outweighed by, I mean, I mean, it's outweighed by Hunter Biden and all these other things that go with uh, Joe Biden and that whole administration. It's outweighed by the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the Iran-Contra under Reagan, Obama. Oh my God. If yeah. There's a long line. I mean, I mean get in line of, inst of intense corruption. Equal application of law, please. Otherwise, it's kind of meaningless and it's just used to mask thuggery. Exactly. It also begs a lot of questions as to what's up with these sort of potential false dichotomies or the propping up these the press these precedents have been set against going after former presidents, whether it's Mar-a-Lago, whether it's this potential arrest. 
with this whole Stormy Daniel situation. Like it just it's well, sort of you strange. know, I can see their point though, strange. Tony, because Orange Man bad, first off. Mm-hmm. Secondly, he is still precipitating chaos in America, even though he's not president. Specifically, Ohio is his fault. SVB is his fault. I've heard all these claims on those networks all the past couple of weeks. Everything's his fault. And you know what happens? When you're a victim group and everything is Orange Man Bad's fault, guess what? You'll never stop being a victim. You can't because you've taken no self-responsibility over your own situation. And you're waiting for your enemy, Donald Trump, to fix your situation. Great plan. You guys are fucking brilliant. Brilliant. Keep keep at it. Keep at it. It's very entertaining. I'm going to make some more popcorn. In the meanwhile, we're going to go to this video by Greg Reese because he has something intelligent to say that I think should be shared with folks. I haven't seen this video, so I'm just going based on trust. Greg. You've been, you've been good. Don't, don't make me look bad here. I haven't yeah, the, seen this clip, yeah, but Tony's bringing it to the table. So plausible deniability. But what do I know? That's the that's the answer right there. We'll comment on it afterwards and see what you think. Yeah, let's check it out. On December 19th of 2020, President Trump announced a big protest in D.C. on January 6th, urging his supporters to be there will be wild. On January 6th, InfoWars was invited to help bring the crowd to the Capitol building, where Trump would give a speech. To do this, we were formally escorted out of his official speech early. InfoWars was shown a map of the Capitol grounds, with a stage on the backside where we were to lead the crowd to meet President Trump. When we arrived, there was no stage, but there was a false flag being executed by the FBI. Trump never showed up and he turned his back on the hundreds of innocent supporters rotting away in jail for being at the Capitol that day. All this, on top of his constant shilling for the deadly Pfizer shots, has caused many objective Americans to see Trump as potentially another tool of the shadow government. And so last week, when Trump announced that he was going to be arrested and called for protests, many people saw it as a red flag. While the world economy is collapsing, Trump and the media are there together as a mindless distraction all week long. And on early Friday morning, Trump threatens death and destruction if he is arrested. This should be a major red flag, but many can't see it. Shortly after being elected in 2016, he begins to tell the crowd an anecdotal story about the Clintons. And when they start chanting, lock her up, he admits that was all just empty rhetoric to get elected. Scheduled Michigan unexpectedly. It was like all of a sudden with President Obama and Michelle and Bill and Hillary, and they were going to Michigan. No, it's okay. No, they got it. That plays great before the election. No, we don't care, right? The Trump loyalists will claim that he was joking or he didn't mean it. They are likely blinded to all the glaring red flags. This is how the divide and conquer game works. Tribalism. And for many, America first became Trump first. Acting as if completely ignorant to the fact that our elections are rigged. The ultimate objective of controlled opposition would be to control the leader of the opposition. So that you can lead the opposition over a cliff. Whether or not this is Trump, he is not America. We, the people, 
our America. And the only way we the people win is to get active, put our faith in God, and unite. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And while the nation is being destroyed by the federal government, millions of Americans are focusing on a 2024 election that we already know will be rigged more than ever. This is insane behavior. We need to stop seeing politics as a spectator sport and start actually getting involved. If we are unwilling to take control of our local governments, then why should anyone listen to our grievances with the federal government? What originally made Trump popular was an overall disdain for our government and a love for America. And this is all we need to be focused on. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Damn fine reporting. That was bet worthy. Could have bet on that one. That was good. So uh, what do you think, Tony? Do you think it was, am I, do I have paradigm blindness? Is there something that I was missing from that? Because I no, tend I mean, to every- agree. Like it, Trump has never said anything to the contrary. He's never even made a speech to push back against all these political prisoners that are held basically in his name right. that went to the people's house that is funded by the American taxpayers who are the bosses of the people who work there. Oh, the people can't check in on the people that work for them. Well, that's fascinating. All oh, national security. That's called insurrection. It's the biggest thing since Pearl Harbor and fucking nine 11. Oh, really? That's fascinating hypothesis in your echo chamber where your paradigm blindness keeps you from uh, hearing the tones that ev- everyone else is hearing. We hear the bells tolling. Yeah. And they're not tolling for us. They're tolling for tolling for people of a broke belief system, a broke epistemology that yeah. is no longer connected to reality. And it's not something we're seeking to medicate people for. I think you need to educate people back into reality and they have to be willing to say, I'm a learner and, and be of a, a a growth mindset. But a lot of people are in that fixed mindset and they are not set to change. They might even still be like all masked up and stuff because fear has an immense effect on our activities. Doesn't it? If you don't check it, with diligent knowledge, understanding, wisdom, experience, and and cross-referencing these things to see and and increase your certainty. A lot of people don't don't have any time for that in their lives. Here's That's a CD killer. Yeah. Um. I, so there's a lot of anecdotes, whether or not they're true or not, in regards to Trump. That one thing I think, based on the evidence of his behavior is regardless of whether or not he's a deep state actor, which that's a very spurious accusation. Trump, the one thing I can, I can make a case for it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we both could make a strong case. That's for sure. But it's somewhat circumstantial. Like the, the bigger thing that we can note is Trump and his behavior and his personality. Trump is Trump first. He's a classic case of a megalomaniac. So in that case, or an extreme narcissist at the very least. And so However, Trump cares I can about agree with you, Trump. but I would add to it. He has also merged his ego with the American flag and it's evident exactly. in, his, in his uh icon. Like and he has the right. American flag trans transparency over his face. Yeah. So now it's his brand. He wears the American uh first movement, the American flag, etc. So if he betrays that band brand, he's got nothing weapons. left. And the people he would betray it for do not like him. He knows yeah. that too. He's yes. a black sheep in that group, even though he's not like uh, you know made of uh you know uh all things uh sugar spice and all these things nice i mean i think his dad worked with the mob and that's how he got the comeuppance and did the things with the casinos that he did right. so he's not like a, a clean person but show me one president who's made it that jfk's dad was a bootlegger and worked with a whole bunch of 
nefarious people too. So it's like, where is it clean? Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, presidential history is dirty. Oh, for sure. And it goes back to King Charles I. (laughs) And we've taken the position before. It seems as though he's nothing more than an unwitting sort of participant in this larger game because he's more concerned with how the people will perceive him and how he'll be, how his legacy will be perceived more than he's care. He has a care for the actual Amer- uh, American constitutionalism. And I think and correction, capacity, it was uh, John Longshanks, King John Longshank for the one from uh, freedom. Uh, oh, sure. Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah. Braveheart. But yeah, I mean, that's, if nothing, I mean, we could make a, a strong case for a deep state actor. Make a case that he's just a classic narcissist that cares more. Is making creating a false equivalency with himself as being America when America is founded on principles that uphold in, inalienable individual rights. Most people um, in America separation can't relate powers. very much to Donald Trump's everyday no, life. No, it's what the completely. Donald Trump doesn't know what a, a gallon of milk, a gallon of gas, any of these things in reality cost. I mean, so that it does it separates them from the concerns and observations and the the reality that most people are in. Yeah, and since uh, what what happened with the election, you can just you know, I've noticed like you know the the digital card system he put out, like these the iconography associated with him, these action figures, like he's presenting himself as though he is America. Uh, there's this weird false equivalency. This is weird sort of perfect dialectic being played in regards to you can see how demonstrable the Biden administration is at being essentially nothing more than a puppet of the build back better what economic forum sort of plans they have for all Western nations not much just like America. many other countries yes and I did notice that similarity that is not American but that's very conspicuous so what best to have someone that maybe also you know doesn't fully agree with everything about it but is you know willing to capitulate if his legacy or his perspective is on the line but just in a different way and so i don't know it's just i think it needed to be put on the uh in the time capsule just to clear the or give a a whole rounded sort of perspective on how to view the trump phenomenon it, make, it reminds me of corbett's um uh mini documentary he released about uh, i forget the name of it now but it had to do essentially with how much of it was a stage play Trump and and building up his campaign presidency and how much he sort of retracted from many of the campaign promises he made throughout um, the campaign season out to him becoming president. Um, so it's just Do you think he could have became president without having a reality TV show? No, no, he didn't have the no. nationwide branding. He needed the brand. So that was a necessary step. That's a star and, suckers. That's a behavioral like that documentary star suckers from back in like 2009. That's a behavioral conditioning um, and then Corbett sort of follows it up in a different way with this media documentary he released, um, talking about how much of an impact the medium of, and this is the cybernetics paradigm, how much the feedback of information through a TV screen or through a screen in general has had on the, the conscious and subconscious parts of our brain and how we tend to get in a situation. Whitney Webb alluded to this with this ad veracundium, whether it's an alternative media, whether it's in mainstream media, whether it's politicians, whether it's corporate people. Like these people get put on a pedestal, you know, it's, it's this tribal mentality of follow the alpha, follow the alpha, follow the alpha that get, you know, from a psychological disposition, that's where a star suckers documentary gets. And there's, you know, and we can get way beyond that. It just sort of conspicuously clarifies how that all manifests in the human condition. It's just all various forms of tribalism. And so we have, in order to break ourselves away from that, you know, we need to develop our own reason, our own judgment and, you know, band together in local communities and start hedging against these larger abstract forms of tyranny that perpetuate on us day in and day out through media, through policy, 
through warfare and all this sorts of nonsense we're experiencing. Well, maybe we're wrong about all that. Is there any evidence to the contrary? Can we test our hypotheses to see if there's any certainty in our position? Well, uh, let's see. There's in regards to Trump, you know, he built up the energy sector in America, much of which is now trying to position itself to export much of that energy production to yeah, they built it up uh, enough for Western us. Europe yeah. after they blew up Nord Stream pipeline. So that's strange. He took a donation from the major pharmaceutical companies right when he got in the office when he wanted Robert Kennedy to come in and have like a task force essentially to review the evidence of the efficacy and safety of vaccines in general long before the, and then the he mRNA listened to shots. Bill Gates, who and didn't even graduate college. And he had he allowed Anthony Fauci as part of this task for Corona Task Force initiative, along with Deborah Burks and a number of other dubious individuals. Uh, to sit up there and pray to the public the importance of locking down, the importance of wearing masks and all this sort of stuff. And he did run counter to that narrative as time went on, but it was all in such a very sort of dramatic stage play scenario, like him standing after getting COVID and taking off his mask. And then, of course, the the media from the left, you know, just takes that and runs with it. Look, it's sending the wrong message. How could they do it? It's it's a weird, you know, we know about the Hegelian dialect, we know dialectical processes, we know about the false dichotomies. It's something to be aware of. How much is this is all very, well, somewhat crafted, at least from a narrative construction in the media to create a boogeyman. And it never seems to disrupt their plans. These no, things, it always seems like to be one direction. That's right. Nordstein blows up, but they've got all this energy. They're prepared to sell to Western Europe, but they won't buy it because they're getting cheap stuff from Russia and bada bang. Yeah. And then they they try to blame it on the Russian, like uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainians now, yeah, like First they blame it on the Russians. So it's like the Tony Soprano gang from Ukraine. They go out in a boat and like bada bing, they just blow up the pipeline. They Easy. think that's believable, right. and it is to their select audience that already supports them. So I don't see how such <clears throat> uh, statesmanship and diplomacy are effective with actual conscious thinking people. But they're they're not seeking to widen their demographic. They're just playing to their audience, which is already ignorant and gaslit and wanting more of that fear. And much of and from that thought. little power base, they control the rest of us, by the way, because they do get urgent activity out of their group because they believe the world's going to end any day and all this other stuff that's not true and gets people into action nonetheless. Exactly. A lot of Trump's face are people very dependent on government through handouts and whatnot, not to say like it's created a, a dependent culture. And so well, he and Trump himself is funded by Pfizer. So yeah, there you go. So, I mean, it just North of Grumman, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, they all it's... set a chair at their table for him. So one level we can analyze it and showcase. Yes, there's obviously this Trump derangement syndrome. And we mm. showed Sam Harris many times. He was just recently on Lex talking about it again. Um, he TDS. doubled down. He doubled down. It's unreal. Like I mean, Mikey and swingers. <laughs> no there was another guy called double down right i know that was his nickname i forget it's been 20 years oh, that's, that's a good callback though john favreau he writes the, yeah. he writes the mandalorian these days yeah. that's a good creative outlet for his extended adolescent situation so getting back to these stories mm -hmm. that we need to cover tonight i yep. think the trump one we're done with that we got that right? off the table yeah, yeah do we have any more about uh the former vice president or can we get away from that and uh, uh not nothing there's one we need to play later we can probably say this for after intermission that i think is that we should absolutely talk about the multipolar facade potentially um that's by john bound called g, g w g jinping unveils the new world order 
and talking about how much it relates to Goldman Sachs and World Economic Forum and how these plans have been in motion for well over 20 years, promoted by Western multinationals, building up to them, which becomes Chinese state policy and diplomacy and international policy. So that absolutely has to go on the record. We can save that, I think, for after intermission. Um, for now, it's wherever you want to go. Um, there was a funny, if you want to get some laughs, Alan Dershowitz lost his mind on Kim Iverson when she asked him about Epstein and said, he'll never go on our podcast again. And just, I guess hung up or something like that. So that was entertaining. Um, but anymore. I'm going to take, I'm going to take part of uh, your suggestion. We're going to go with a Kim Iverson clip and it's going to be on the crypto setup of these banks, the crash crypto to be like a bottleneck to control mechanism, right? A way that they can say, we need legislation to, to go cover this thing, make sure it never happens again. That's what they do all the time. But before we go to that, I've prepared a request to the control room. We're going to have another musical interlude. I know we had Radiohead tonight. You know, that was really exciting having Radiohead here talking about uh, the former vice president. This is a clip that's meant to illustrate the multiple uses of artificial intelligence technology, which is both uh, a little scary and highly entertaining. Not the whole thing because it gets repetitive and you're like, I get it. But the point where we're going to end this video is where my Qua my favorite Quaker Oats pitch maker wilford brimley he's going to tell you a story about getting together and getting things done and that'll make more sense uh in a few minutes and then we'll have some fun so let's check that out and then just roll kim iverson after brimley so, is I done with his pitch kim iverson had two about the um collapsing crypto i think the one you're referring to is called the federal reserve digital currency is coming and it'll be used to control dissent that one i don't think older. no this one's uh, called banking collapse choke point Choke point 2.0. Okay. I just yes. want to make sure. Yeah. I both. I had notes this time yeah. on it. Yeah. Choke point. Yeah. That's the one above. Perfect. This show's getting more organized. We're fighting about little, little. against the chaos. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, Joshua Hale had passed this to me and I was like, oh, we got to play this on Sunday because this is, uh, this is upbeat. It has nothing to do with uh, David Bowie from whom the samples were stolen to make the original song that was then morphed into this video that you're going to see. So it has a whole lineage of like meme, like history to it, but this is the latest iteration. It's called ice ice oh. matrix. Take it away. Morpheus. <laughs> Kick it. Ice, ice, baby. Ice, ice, baby. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. Ice is back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. To the extreme, I rock a mic like a vandal. Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Dance. Rush the speaker that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom. Deadly. When I play a dope melody, anything less than the best is a felony. Love it or leave it. You better gangway. You better hit bullseye. The kid don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook. While my DJ revolves it. Ice, ice, baby. Vanilla. Ice, ice, baby. jumping with the bass kicked in and the vegas are pumping quick to the point to the point no faking cooking mcs like a pound of bacon burning um if you ain't quick and nimble i go crazy when i hear a cymbal and a hi-hat with a 
souped up tempo. I'm on a roll, it's time to go solo. Rolling in my 5.0, rag top down so my hair can blow. The girlie's on standby waiting to say hi. Did you stop? No, I just drove by, kept on, pursuing to the next stop. Busted a left and I'm heading to the next block. The block was dead, yo. So I continued to A1A, Beach Avenue. Girls were hot, wearing less than bikinis. Rockman lovers, driving Lamborghinis. Jealous. Cause I'm out getting mine. Shea with a gauge and vanilla with a nine. Ready for the chumps on the wall. The chumps acting ill cause they're full of eight ball. Gunshots, rings out like a bell. I grabbed my nine, all I heard were shells. Falling on the concrete real fast. Jumped in my car, slammed on the gas. Bumper to bumper, the avenue's packed. I'm trying to get away before the jackers jack. Police on the scene, you know what I mean. They passed me up, confronted all the dope fiends. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Nice. These are rhymes you can vision and feel. Conducted and formed is a hell of a concept. We make it hype, and you want to step with this. Shea plays on the fade, slice like a ninja, cut like a razor blade. So fast, other DJs say, damn, if my rhyme was a drug, I'd sell it by the gram. Keep my composure when it's time to get loose. Magnetized by the mic while I kick my juice. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while D-Shea revolves it. Nice. to your mother. Hello, welcome to the Kim Iverson Show. Thank you guys so much for being here. Well, what did I tell you? While everyone else, all the other shows out there, were screaming about the bank collapses being about deregulation and bailouts, the reality is more and more evidence is mounting that the collapse of SVB, Signature, and Silvergate was in fact a targeted assassination on crypto. Now let's go over the evidence. Starting off back on March 9th, four U.S. senators wrote a letter to the bank regulators accusing them of attempting to debank America. The four senators were Bill Haggerty from Tennessee, Mike Crapo from Idaho, Tom Tillis from North Carolina, and Steve Daines from Kansas. Now let me read to you some of what their letter says. They say here in this, uh, th this letter was written to the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the OCC, collectively the banking regulators. They say the banking regulator regulators and the White House have released several statements calling on heightened supervision for crypto-related activities. These releases have caused banks to reevaluate their decision to provide banking services to the crypto sector, resulting in crypto firms' bank accounts being unexpectedly closed. This coordinated behavior seems disturbingly reminiscent of Operation Chokepoint, 
which, as you know, was an Obama administration initiative where federal regulators applied pressure on financial institutions to cut off financial services to certain licensed, legally operating industries simply because certain regulators and policymakers disfavored those industries. Legal investigation found that government officials illegally targeted lawful businesses in an ideological crusade based on personal disdain. They later go on to say, it appears that the desired outcome from the banking regulators is similar to that of Operation Choke Point, the debanking of the crypto industry in America. We are especially worried that overreaching behavior by the banking regulators will inevitably bleed into other legal industries. Any industry could be potentially disfavored based on a given regulator's ideological perspective. So they wrote this on March 9th saying, we believe that this is Operation Choke Point 2.0, essentially uh, reminiscent of Operation Choke Point. So that's the first piece of evidence that this, in fact, was a targeted assassination, that these bank collapses were a targeted assassination, that they were not about deregulation and uh, banks being crooked and corrupt and them going and trying to you know, uh, the, help themselves out that this was a targeted assassination on crypto. Now, on March 9th, just a few days ago, the Wall Street Journal editorial board confirmed it was crypto. They wrote an op-ed entitled, Barney Frank was right about Signature Bank. And the first line in their op-ed, we never thought we'd write that headline. They go on to say in their op-ed, uh, but on Sunday, the Federal Insurance Corporate, now this is this last Sunday, okay, this is recent. But on Sunday, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation announced that New York Community Bank Corp's Flagstar Bank will assume all of Signature Bank's cash deposits except for those of crypto companies. This confirms Mr. Frank's suspicions and ours that Signature's seizure was motivated by regulators' hostility towards crypto. And that they go on to detail even more of the, the deal between Flagstar Bank's bid, which did not include the approximately $4 billion of deposits related to the former Signature Bank's digital asset banking business. And by the way, similar restrictions have been put on SVB. Now, many in the crypto world were aware of the war against them and had been talking about it for quite some time before those of us on the outside even took notice. Here's a well-known crypto enthusiast and commentator, Coin Bureau, talking about Operation Chokepoint 2.0 back in early February, which, by the way, this was written off by many as a conspiracy theory. Here it is. The U.S. government is at war with the crypto industry, and it is employing a sneaky new tactic to try and bring it down. It's become increasingly apparent over the last few months that the U.S. administration, along with various other arms of the state, such as the Federal Reserve and the Justice Department, are targeting any banks that work with crypto companies, basically trying to cut crypto out of banking services. Over the last few months, they have been making life increasingly difficult for any banks that work alongside crypto companies, doing things like launching investigations into their activities and also denying these banks key licenses that they need to operate. Now, this looks to be a resurrection of something called Operation Chokepoint, which was a scheme launched back in the Obama era that aimed to try and cut industries that the government didn't like 
out of the banking sector. These included things like online poker and also payday lenders. It basically used the same tactic we're seeing here, lock them out of banking services and make it as difficult as possible for these industries to operate. And now they are using this to turn their focus onto crypto. This is basically just a stealthy way of cutting off oxygen to the crypto industry without having to go to all the expense and bother of legislating against it specifically. Now, Operation Chokepoint was shut down under President Trump, but it looks like it is being resurrected in some way in order to go after the crypto industry. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that it's going to become increasingly difficult for crypto companies to operate inside the United States. Now, although this isn't great news for crypto, it isn't terminal either, because fortunately, lots of other countries and jurisdictions are drafting sensible sounding regulations that will make it possible for the crypto industry to operate in those areas. However, it looks like the United States is only becoming increasingly more unfriendly to the crypto industry. And let's face it, even though crypto is designed to eventually replace the existing financial system, for now, it really needs to be able to work with the banking sector. So there you have it. People have been screaming about Operation Chokepoint 2.0 for a while, those in the crypto community, but uh, that word had not really leaked out much. And when it did, people said that's just a big conspiracy theory. Yet here we are today. What Coin Bureau said absolutely happened. It happened in front of our faces with U.S. senators screaming about it, saying, we see this, this is happening, with people in the crypto community saying, we see this, this is happening. And here it is. It has happened. And people are still turning a blind eye to this, this targeting. This is a mechanism for control. If they can control your money, they can control you. And that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to consolidate all of the power to the top at the Federal Reserve so that they could control the dollar. They're trying to shore up the dollar. They're trying to ensure, as they see, as uh, we've had guests on this show, uh, like Ed Dowd, when he was talking about, look, the banking system is set up and it's just doomed to fail. The way that it was set up from the from the beginning, it was it was bound to ultimately at some point collapse and they see it collapsing. And so what they're trying to do is control that collapse. They're trying to uh, ensure that those who are the power players remain the power players when the whole thing comes crumbling down and they have to rebuild it from scratch. So they're scrambling. They're scrambling to save it. They're scrambling to consolidate that power to the top. They want to control the dollar, that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to shore up the global currency, the global value of the dollar, and they're trying to ensure that they can roll out these CBDCs. That is part of it. And getting in the way of those CBDCs has been the crypto community. So more evidence of this, what we've been talking about on this show, that other shows have been talking about the deregulation, they've been talking about the, uh, oh, this is just a, a bailout for the banks, but we have been talking about, no, this is a concerted effort to control the money in America to control the global money supply, in fact. And here's some more evidence to that. We've seen now that all of these small banks are now losing loads of cash. $1 trillion in deposits have been run out of the small banks in America. And they were saying this has happened. The, the majority of the outflows have happened since March, since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. More and more small banks have lost depositors. They're running to the large banks. They're saying, whoa, I don't trust you. I'm not sure. I need to go to a too big to fail bank. One of the Fed banks, Chase, 
right? That's that's a basically um, Chase is the one of the the second the Chase and Citibank are the largest. Uh, they're the largest shareholders of the New York Fed, which is basically the Federal Reserve. Now, also, we see, so you've got all these banks in crisis, right? And we've been saying that the goal is to consolidate all the small banks into the large banks. We heard this from Richard Werner, uh, a brilliant economist who was on this show, saying that is the ultimate goal is they want to collapse all the small banks, the community banks. They want to, write, they want to consolidate them all to the biggest banks. That way they can control the money supply completely and they can roll out the CBDCs. And if you get everybody's money into the same place, then it's a lot easier to start controlling it. It's a lot easier to roll out those CBDCs. So all of the little banks are now in trouble. You see $1 trillion leaving those little banks. It's a run on the little banks. And what does the Fed do? What did the Fed do this week? What did they do? They raised interest rates again by a quarter point. Why would they do that? If the banks are already stressed, and they're already stressed to the max where they're about to collapse, why would you then stress them even a little bit more? In fact, if the Fed really wanted to help out those small banks, you know what they would have done? They would have cut the interest rate. They would have cut it by, by a quarter point, or they would have at least done nothing. They would have announced nothing. Instead, they're squeezing the little guy even more by raising up a quarter point. Now these little banks are getting it from everybody. The, the Fed is not helping them out. People are running on the banks. They're putting record numbers of deposits into the big banks. Chase said they've received a record number of depositors running to their bank as they squeeze it out of the little guy. That's the real thing that's been going on. So this is about consolidating all the power to the top, to consolidating all of the power over money in one place. That includes controlling crypto. And if you have to collapse it, get rid of it, then that's what you've got to do. That means controlling the money supply. If you have to collapse and get rid of those little guys, that's what you have to do. You have to get it all to the top so the Fed can control it and roll out those CBDCs. Sounds like a big conspiracy theory, right? Yeah, well, uh, what Coin Bureau said back in February, what many in the crypto community have been saying about Operation Choke Point 2.0 had all been a big conspiracy theory until it's not a conspiracy theory. And that uh, seems to be the theme of the day here in this country at this point, everything that seems to be a conspiracy theory is actually not a theory at all, but conspiracy reality. All right, we need guys, to learn. you can- oh, I, was, I thought she was gonna pitch. She's got, a, she's got a pitch at the end. She's got a call to action. She's a, a classy reporter and she can still have calls to action like that. Very industrious of her. All right, so um, they want to control the money. They want to control the money. Well, Federal Reserve notes are their product, so it is their prerogative to control it. Instead of us worrying about how they're going to control their product, may I humbly suggest that we should concentrate on our own product, services, relationships, understanding, education, camaraderie in this situation, strengthen ourselves, embolden ourselves, because what we can control, our product, is what's between our ears. And they have no rights on that. They have no rights on agorism, free market exchange of goods without Federal Reserve notes. Like there's a whole land of being able to be successful and being able to be parallel insulated to this catastrophe. These people took over our banking system. Congress did not have the right to outsource the printing of money. Congress did not have the right to print money. It could only coin money. You can't coin infinite money out of nowhere. So there was a limitation, a scarcity that was natural to it. When they start printing notes, 
that are debt notes. Eventually it took time. There's a history to this. Uh, and then detached it from any form of value. It became a bond of trust with no backing. And they've continually broken and abused trust time after time after time. And there is no way that I think the Board of Governors or the Federal Reserve have any right or claim over any of our lives or should have any influence because they were not elected by us. If we're going to play that game, they're not elected rulers. They definitely have influence because their product buys politicians, it buys district attorneys, it buys prison wardens, it buys all the people in, the, in between. So you can frame up your enemy and have a monopoly of force and have political prisoners that don't see the light of day and are treated as if they are 9-11 criminals and Gitmo. So there's a problem. They built a rigged machine and they can't even manage the rigged machine. They had us and now they want to let everybody go. Because if you crash the market, nobody's going after that magnetic money that they're printing anymore because there's there's no nothing to do with it. It's worthless. It becomes wallpaper. Seen it happen in Zimbabwe. Seen it happen in Germany right before World War II. It's not a good story. It's not you know, trading a wheelbarrow full of money to get some bread. Or even in the time of George Washington, it took uh, a wagon load of money to be able to buy supplies and things like this that were used to be very cheap. Uh, the, the British... Very coyly, they counterfeited a bunch of colonial script and uh, flooded our market with it. They would have printing presses and boats right off the shore and just flood it in. And it's not that much different than what they've done with the Federal Reserve, only they don't do it offshore. They do it in various regional Federal Reserve offices around the country. I think there's like 13 of them. So they literally sit in meetings and have plans. Now, they've made movies about this. Hollywood has made many, many movies in the past 15 years about these financial crises. And uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Paul, that, uh, that used to work at Merrill Lynch, who was uh, the director. He's he's epitomized. I think it's in Wall Street, too. Uh, uh, Broken Trust. No, that was my interview with Pilato. Wall Street's dead end, I think. Broken Trust. Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, Wall Street, too, with Oliver Stone, I think they do show uh, uh, that whole uh, meltdown at the table because that one guy goes, and he's like, it's just gone, man. It's gone. There's nothing you could do. It's going to crash. So these types of incidents are going to continue to precipitate. There's a long history of bank crashes and bank runs and all this stuff because the people at the top complicated history are crooked sure. gangsters. And they're running scams. So instead of trying to hope to win at the three-card money that they're running with people's lives, figure out what you need to do. Because the part that we're responsible for is between our ears. That doesn't have anything to do with Federal Reserve notes. It has to do with getting straight with your education and aligning your mind with that which exists in reality so you can make decisions that bring about consequences that are desirable to you. And then you're no longer locked in that uh, time of quiet desperation. You can actually take action. And uh, have agency in your own life instead of being an agent for the matrix. Yeah, the debt-based economy, they can build bubbles all over the place. 2008 was just one. There's the tech bubble in the late 90s, in which case, you know, they're printing the money out of thin air, backed by supposedly the productive capacity of the United States, as well as supposedly gold to Fort Knox, which has never been audited. But then you have a situation. Isn't there a James which... Bond movie where they rob Fort Knox and then they probably don't tell the Americans that it got robbed either? <laughs> you know, it, these stories out there very interesting indeed i must no say. audits of fort knox could they be guarding not so much as they claim that's interesting <laughs> where oh, did yeah. all the gold from under the world trade centers go that day that's a good question that's a very that's a question you asked that really had my jaw on the ground when i first discovered your work you know it's to note that um 
money creation happens even on the uh, smaller. And spoiler level. alert: the people who look to be the the perpetrators of the event also had security and custody of the gold that went missing. So yeah. nothing to see there. Go ahead, please continue. That's true. That's true. Um, but with smaller commercial banks as well, lending institutions, they also participate in money creation. Um, the, the issue, I guess, comes down to the globalists can't control the, the actual notes themselves, the, the, the money that gets into circulation. They don't know what people are necessarily spending their money on. They just know a certain amount of deposits have been made or a certain amount has been withdrawn, where that money is going and how it's being used. They want that level of control. That's why through this, this um, debt-based economy, through the printing of trillions and trillions of dollars of quantitative easing they, and manipulation of interest rates, they can create various bubbles, which they've done throughout the entire economy now, and slow and getting these banks to invest in bonds and mortgage mortgage-backed securities and other, you know, supposed assets that are supposed to be safe, and then slowly crash it based on the interest rates. We saw with SVB and Signature Bank and then Quitted Suisse over in Europe. So that's like all these, and they're still putting pressure to Kim Iverson's point. They're still they're raising it again putting constricting them more and more after they've basically got them into a situation they're going to leverage themselves by buying these assets these bonds and these mortgage-backed securities to to hedge against the deposits they have and the, the lending they're doing and because of that that's a perfect situation to create a crisis not just in a housing bubble or a tech bubble but in multiple various major asset classes across the country in which case Oh, what? Oh, the, now we have to bring in a whole new model. What does that model look like? Oh, it's that model that Quigley talked about in the infamous page 900, whatever it was, where he talks about the central banks want total control. Uh, run out of the central banks, the central banks, you know, the, the Bank of International Settlements. And you look at like Ben Karsten, you look at Larry. And it's not about the money. It's, it's not about, about the money because they print the money out of thin air. Right. It's not about the money. It's about being able to know that you spent money on a cheeseburger, which relates to a carbon credit which relates it's to about slavery your, it's, yeah, it's literal, literal slavery in a technocratic format technocracy being social engineering through technology so they're going to engineer you to do or force you and your activities and your behaviors through your literal transactions your social credit your carbon credit scores whatever other nonsense are going to attach to these cbdc's so they know exactly what you're doing with your energy time and investments you make it's really just it's a manipulation quite literally it's not just a metaphor of energy you know, right, the, exactly. So the, there's a group that seeks control and they have a product and that product magnetizes and attracts people to go do their bidding for that product. Yes, We call it money, Federal Reserve notes. And then it trickles down from there. Federal Reserve isn't coming to the average American and saying, here's the $100,000, have fun spending. Yeah, most of that hits Wall Street or the major banks, like and they, they invested in corporations or the bailouts. Bailouts is a big place like where that, it goes. But, but commercial lending. Like on the smaller front, when, they, when like a small business goes to get a, a loan from a local bank, that's a different story. That's a different type of money creation. It's the same type, but it's on a different format. So there's two like essentially active streams of energy coinciding at the same time, and they want control over that. That's the big thing they don't have control over, and that's where they're gonna. It seems like they're 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 squeezing the neck of these local lending institutions and smaller banks, so that way they can create a crisis potentially popping multiple bubbles, which will necessitate them to, in order to prevent a worldwide depression, not just in America, but in much of uh, the first world nations across the world, they'll have to introduce a ma this magical solution, which will be the CBDC, which gives them the ultimate control they've been looking for, or one of the, one of the main mechanisms by which they can gain ultimate control. That alongside 
you know, uh, mRNA and synthetic biology and the, the whole of fourth industrial revolution by Klaus Schwab, you know, that corresponds with it certainly as well. Now, I do have uh, an artifact. I'm not going to call it a reference because I'm not going to claim this to be true. I am going to say this book exists. And in this book, it has some words. And I can show you the book and tell you about the words. But I don't want you to think that this is my evidence of something. This is rather evidence of an artifact that contains some statements that we're going to take a look at as adults. Let's check this out over here on the split. Let's do the book cam. All right. So first off, this comes from a book that's available at every Barnes and Noble. Classic. It's called Behold a Pale Horse by William Cooper. Has some interesting artwork. Um, Portending the manifestation of revelation. (laughs) Now, this man, Bill Cooper, William Cooper, he had a radio show. Uh, I think it was called The Hour of the Time, something like that back in the day. He was killed November 5th, 2001 on his property. By police officers in a sh- in uh, a shootout where I don't in know very if he was precarious armed. circumstances. It, I remember witnessing some of the footage, the very limited footage we have of that situation. It's very strange. Yes. So this book is uh, on it many years ago. Is filled with various pieces of information and claims and statements. And I'm not asserting uh, anything other than Bill uh, Bill Cooper existed. He had a radio show. He wrote a book. He made statements and claims. I'm not here to testify to the veracity of those things. I just what was to his you, in the military, naval intelligence? He worked office something. in naval uh, intelligence. Office, allegedly, yeah. there's people, of course, that want to, you know, challenge his his assertions, and rightfully that's, so. That's he fair. should have that's some fair. evidence. But there's a lot yeah. of evidence in this book, but not everything in this book is factual and actual. So, yeah, hundred percent. He had no internet access, uh, questionable research capabilities, but he came across a lot of weird stuff, put it into a book, and it became a underground type of thing. That have you read this book? Right. So this is page 42. He's talking about electronic science and resistors and economic capacitance. That's capital and money, economic conductance, goods, production flow coefficients, economic inductance. These are the services. Right. And then he says, Mr. Rothschild's energy discovery. Now, this is a metaphor. It's not an actual energy discovery. And if you follow it over here to page 43. Apparent capital as paper inductor. Oh, fascinating. In this structure, let me zoom in for you. Let's give you the royal treatment here, as it were. We'll get as much of it on screen without more ado. In this structure, credit, presented as a pure element called currency, has the appearance of capital, but is, in fact, negative capital. Right? It's a debt note. Hence, it has the appearance of service, but is, in fact, indebtedness or indentured servitude might be a a way to say it. It is therefore an economic inductance instead of an economic capacitance. And if balanced in no other way, will be balanced by the negation of population, war and genocide. The total goods and services represent real capital called the gross national product. And the currency may be printed up to this level and still represent economic capacity that's the idea you can still print money out of nothing but as long as it's tied to productive production such as goods or services related to gross national product yeah that's that is true that's but currency printed beyond this level is subtractive represents the introduction of economic inductance and constitutes notes of indebtedness so the more you have the more indebted you are that's interesting dynamic for people to consider war is therefore the balancing of the system 
by killing the true creditors, the public, which we have taught to exchange true value for inflated currency, and falling back on whatever is left of the resources of nature and regeneration of those resources, Mr. Rothschild had discovered that currency gave him the power to rearrange the economic structure to his own advantage, to shift economic inductance to those economic positions which would encourage the greatest economic instability and oscillation, which plays back into war and the repeating processes. The final key to economic control had to wait until there was sufficient data and high-speed computing equipment to keep close watch on the economic oscillations created by price shocking and excess paper energy credits, paper inductance inflation. So the internet is an electronic inductor in this metaphor. So things that are true about what we just heard. Uh, Rothschild family is an international banking family with many history, many centuries of history. And they were up to a lot of things. I don't think I've ever read in their biographies or autobiographies, anything about uh, energy as a capacitor or any of these hypotheses that were just leveled and attached to the Rothschild name. So they exist. They got a lot of interesting history. That might be a metaphor about what they do, but it's not something that they, I don't think operate on or look at it like that. It just, you know, they discovered before you like uh, a circuit board was invented. So like they discovered this, the ability to, to, you know, create debt notes and utilize that to their advantage long before so that, you know, we could draw metaphors or analogies to the way energy flows through a circuit board. Just like Claude Shannon's mathematical theory of communication is an answer to a question asked by the ruling class because they have a need that trickles down to, oh, can we uh, talk over wires uh, better, faster, cleaner, cheaper than telegraph? Because that's what the Rothschilds had adopted 100 years earlier. They're looking finance is looking for an upgrade in telecommunications. And all of a sudden out of Bell Labs comes this thing th- that couples up with the silicon tran- uh, uh, semiconductor. And then all of a sudden we have a computing age, which now is being used not for our freedom most of the time. It's being used for our enslavement. So that's why I think little operations like this hobby of Grand Theft World, plus other stuff I do during the week, is a substantial contribution to push back in a way that's legal and it's not taking away anyone's free will or violating anyone's volition. And it's a good start by informing other people, getting them on the same page, making them competent, able to express themselves, able to know their rights and hold their ground. Because then when there are more of us in that situation, we're a lot better off. We're a lot stronger and we can take care of ourselves more readily in life. So Bill Cooper, good to know about, not necessary reading, not something that you would lead first with. He's right up there with uh, John Coleman of the Tavistock and Committee of 300 uh, books, books that I own, that I have read that I would not use as lead evidence in anything, but it's, you you want to know what the terrain's like. And those are like muddy, uh, boggy areas. They're not the areas I would travel. Right. Well said. Mm-hmm. There you well go. Said. Facts. <laughs> but not from this book, but it's interesting. You can take stuff good, in here. It's you a know good what? Me- I'm going to go, I'm gonna go one step it. further. Let me it's double a- down. Cause Tony Fauci brought up AIDS earlier. Right. And I'd already written down like, Earlier tonight, I was like, some people believe that, you know, somebody messed with a monkey and that's how we got AIDS. And it wasn't the bio labs for the CIA was running in Congo. Yeah. Right. Simian virus. But if you knew they were running virus messing like bio labs in the Congo secretly, 
at the time when that stuff's popping off, it's a whole different perspective. But there is a document in this book that I recall pertaining to the development. I remember this of a pathogen in the 1970s that very closely resembled what Fauci oversaw in the 1980s. And so is it, is it possible that Fauci has in the past been a front man for the release of some sort of biological weapon on the public? And he's been playing that role and then for stands 50 to years. profit from the medications associated as that, what they call therapeutics for that specific virus that causes those specific symptoms. Well, he does pro he does profit from it because he was sitting down when he did it though. All right, Club of Rome, David Rockefeller, the committee of two committee. No, no, no. But there's a lot of stuff in here that actually look, here's the Reese committee, right? Like there's a lot of things in this book that if you dig into what's being claimed by Bill Cooper and you say, is there evidence of this in reality outside of Bill Cooper's claims? You'd say, oh yeah, there is. There's uh there's a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm trying to trying to find that. Yeah, you sort of it's the way the best way to use something like a Bill Cooper is you take the evidence he presents and you try to verify for yourself. Some of oh, it will check out and some of it won't. And that's, you know, you use it as a stepping stone to get to more reliable information and artifacts. Okay. Hold on. This one's prescient. You guys know what prescient means? Timely. Page 444 from a book in 1991. Big Brother's Coming. Revealed secret plan to tag every man, woman, and child. This is just him putting a news clip into the, the back end of the book in the appendix, right? So uh, RFIDs by injection. Something that came up during COVID that's actually, it's a lot smaller than that now, and they could tag you and track you without that uh, that big device. But just those things were on the radar. It was something in the appendix, but this is why we're here. Department of Defense appropriations for 1970. This is a hearing subcommittee. Oh, look at this. It's the ARPA. It's the preface to DARPA. It's Advanced Research Project Agency. Those are the good folks that brought us the interwebs, right? And uh, then DARPA comes along later. It's kind of just a little subsidiary. And this is about synthetic biological agents. Interesting. Huh. Let me get this locked in on the focus so it doesn't keep booming. And oh, yeah, that's a polite thing to do. Now, uh, this is from Tuesday, July 1st, 1969. This is, I think, page 129 of that report, or maybe it's from his newsletter that he's transcribed in here. But this, we gave you the title page here, and you should be able to find it with this type of information. So good. We can get to the document. Uh, there were two things about the biological agent field that I would like to mention. One is the possibility of technological surprise. Let me see if I can get it on the screen for you guys. Technological surprise. Molecular biology is a field that is advancing very rapidly. And eminent biologists believe that within a period of five to 10 years, it will be possible to produce a synthetic biological agent, an agent that does not naturally exist and for which there is no natural immunity that could, have, could be acquired. And then it goes down into... Within the next 10 years, it would probably be possible to make a new infective microorganism that would uh, differ in certain important aspects like gain of function uh, than any known disease-causing organisms. That's because it was artificially... Oh, wait, it's not on the screen. Artificially created in the lab. I'm reading down here in the footnote. Uh, most important of these is that it might be refract uh, refractory to the immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease. And that goes on and on. And then he notes on the next page 
this article about AIDS and children and uh, the United Nations. And this is something that uh, Fauci was all in the midst of. And these are Bill Cooper's notes here on this, on this clipping. So if you haven't ever peered into that book, that's uh, page 447. And again, it's not a necessary read, you know, but for something printed 30 years ago, uh, some ominous foreshadowing and considering the limitations of uh, his research acumen, access to libraries, the fact that he's around people that always are telling him hyperboles and mistruths yeah. and national he's security. He's also very uh, religiously right. biased. Right. Which is, so which he is had nice. his own blind spots. He's a fallible right. human being. I don't think he did anything worthy of getting shot. No, right? not at all. And uh, remember, remember the 5th of November, Bill Cooper. Rest in peace, but your your work is still here doing doing some good to people because at least it gets you to be incredulous and look it up to see if there's something about the Knights of Malta. Maybe so. Something about he talks about UFOs in there. I don't buy into that. I all I've seen through human history as a forensic historian is human beings playing tricks on other human beings. Not saying it can't exist, but I am saying that according to their beliefs, like Darwin evolution type of beliefs, right? Like their story is um, human beings are like this the evolution of this it's going to be supreme and they're going to uh turn into silicon life forms and the singularity and all this sort of stuff right forever yeah. when also in their story human beings are an accident created by some meteor that ki- killed off the dominant life form that existed here for hundreds of millions of years called dinosaurs so if you're going to find life in the universe you're more likely to find a planet with di- by a fucking meteor or something to that extent or maybe david ike was right another guy right up there with bill cooper very interesting, charismatic the comment personality. Brought the uh, the mushroom. Well, he's uh, he, he's the originator of the lizard people memes out there. Oh, uh, David Icke. Yeah, everyone knows yeah. about the lizard. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, and Kratos Mutwa. Kratos. I, I was just thinking about Kratos. Kratos <laughs> Mutwa. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can never. I mean, anyone who's been down the alternative research, if you at some point will run into David Icke and his. Very... But again, seemingly, you know, all over the place. If you look yeah. at it real time during his career, but when you look back on it, a little bit of wisdom pickled oh, in there, here. And yeah. I mean, I could pull out David Icke and... books, like the bloodlines, the Illuminati as well by Sp- Fitz Springmeyer. Like, oh yeah. Fritz like Springmeyer. That, they all are like within the same sort of family of books and research notes alongside Will, uh, Bill Cooper's work. Good to know about. Course. Like interesting uh, artifacts, hyperbolized, yeah. somewhat, uh, if, if not just hyperbolized, completely just ungrounded in reality. Yeah, oftentimes, you know, in their conjecture and their commentary on it, but there's still interesting artifacts that you can look up and verify for yourself. Not all of it, but certainly some of it. And well, you just have, you have I think to, a lot of times you need to understand to it, you know? what type of lens of interpretation the author is wearing when they exactly. make these descriptions, right? Exactly. So, like, um, in Springmeyer's case, like you just get back to the who, what, where, what, why, when, and how, and get away from like that author's predispositions. Yeah. And oftentimes a good author doesn't have their predispositions like on their sleeve during their, their telling of the story. Like it, they try to reserve that and be objective and not try to persuade their audience That's with these sort of things. Be done, right? Other people use it as the opportunity to uh, evangelize yes. their beliefs that they themselves, I mean, there's some crazy stories in those belief systems. And I asked myself, Hey, how do these things add to uh, the betterment of my life? And I keep the good things and I leave out, you know, the crazy bondage, torture, kill stories and stuff like that. Cause yeah, you know, much agreed. 
I'm sorry. The uh, and strange covenants and weird voices. What was Mel Gibson's movie called? The Temptation of Christ. Was that no? That was uh, no, no, no. no. What's the, who's the other one? Who? Sorry, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson's Jesus. Uh, Mel movie. Gibson. Oh, the Passion or something. The Passion. That's the what passion, that's called. Yeah. It's not a bondage torture kill story. It's the Passion. <laughs> passion. People had heart attacks viewing that apparently. Well. You put a crown of thorns on a carry cross around too, Tony. You probably have a heart attack. It's a little you're bit sadomasochistic. Too. Well, it's at least uh, which one's the one that likes to give pain, not receive pain? Is that the sadist? I always forget the relationship. Mm. But you get my yeah. point. It's very, uh, yeah. It must be the sadist. Yeah, the sadist, masochist. Yeah, sadism, the masochist likes yeah. to take it. So in that case, you know, it's a very heavy play on sadism. And now we cut to a, a video of Rudy Giuliani and Trump. <laughs> oh my God. If you guys don't know the clip I'm talking about, we're not going to show it. Yeah, but there's we've, we've had it on the show. Spicy mayor's conference video with those fellas back in the day. I didn't know Rudy was uh, trans, but he was ahead of his time and very brave. A lot of courage. Brave. Believe all mayors. Um, <laughs> I think that was a hashtag that uh, we just made up so in an effort to control your mind and not have other people control it we're going to have an intermission coming up soon tonight and uh it'll be the first of many such intermissions we're going to play little slices of uh, a longer piece because many people i think haven't seen it other people have seen it but it's been a while including myself um and the dripping out of this information slowly over time as opposed to like a one jam-packed session i think it's going to be efficacious because there's so many worthwhile questions that are asked during uh this type of dialogue that if you don't pause it and take time to consider it and parse through it and think for yourself then you're just probably going to forget 99 percent of it and uh then you'll think oh it's too long to watch again so we're gonna we're gonna pace ourselves Tonight's intermission will be the complete introduction to it. And then in future episodes, we're just going to play like, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then we'll have other clips that accentuate it and help you get more out of it. But for tonight, since it's like the intro of the the longer theme, we'll have the entire intermission about just one thing. And then you won't get uh, distracted. And even if you've seen it before, I think you're probably going to have a pleasant viewing experience. And you don't need to go look for episodes where it's rerun in Matlock. Because if you wanted to do that, you could just go to the White House and sit next to the former vice president because that's what he's doing right now. He has his uh, liquid, liquid stuff. He's got his insurer and he's got some yogurt and stuff. And he likes soft food at night. That he doesn't have to chew because that's too much work for him. And uh, such things go on. But in our lives, we have to learn how to uh, unencumber ourselves with ideas about the world that are not true that do not reflect reality because that's a lot of baggage that we've been bringing with us. And then we need to fill it in with how do we escape an indoctrination and how do we replace that indoctrination with education and how do we do these things for ourselves as a habit, as a lifestyle and not some like weekend seminar, you change over the week. No, that's not how it works. Freedom's a super marathon. It's not a sprint. So we're going to spend a little time tonight with the dearly departed John Taylor Gatto. And it's not AI. Nope. It's just the old fashioned recording. He will be here uh, in studio as it were, because it was filmed in my living room at the place we used to live. And uh, it was, it was a pleasure getting to know him, uh, hanging out with him, being mentored by him. And he is missed in the world, but he too, like Bill Cooper, he leaves behind artifacts 
and evidence and a good breadcrumb trail. If you want to find the names of they, them, those who didn't just mess with your education, mess with your parents' education, mess with your grandparents' education. It's been going on a long time before people could discover it, articulate it, get it published for people like me and Tony to read and be like, oh, we should let's talk to this guy, you know? So what tonight's intermission amounts to is it's a layer cake. Like you're going to see on screen uh, wisdom and brilliance from John Taylor Gatto. You're not going to see on screen the volunteers around with the cameras, microphones, lights, and all this sort of stuff to enable us to capture this conversation in high quality audio and multiple camera angles to give you a feel like you're there in the room to have this experience. And then at the bottom, there's layers of we're talking about something on screen. Here's the footnotes. Here's the references. There's over, there's over a thousand references for what we're going to be digging it's into. It's multidimensional. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The ultimate history lesson uh, is going to play from my YouTube playlist. So I have a playlist. It's the official playlist. And uh, if you continue wanting to watch it, you could just go to my YouTube page, which is at, or not at, on Tragedy and Hope Mag on YouTube. Because MI6 thought it would be good for them to have Tragedy and Hope and to run a likeness of me out there that collects all the people who don't pay attention too much but think they're following me. That guy gets all my my subs. So over on my actual channel, you'll see the ultimate history lesson. And this was something that uh, I tracked down Gatto for six months, a year. He was a hard guy to get a hold of. He was traveling the world. He was doing all this sort of stuff. And one day, doing a lot of speaking engagements. Yeah. So he, was yeah he was very, very, busy. very wanted speaker. And, and I was, remember you, know, you handed me a manila envelope of all your research um, into his research, wanting, yeah. you know, and I, you said, no matter what, you have to make sure this gets in front of him because I went with your wife to go pick him up that night because you were busy getting everything set up. And yeah, and so I hand him the envelope and he shows up the next day. And I think he says something to the effect of Richard, if we had an entire week, we wouldn't even get through half of this. I have what I do and we'll, we'll cover it. Don't worry. And I thought that was very apt to the situation. Yeah, I think he might even say flow. that at the beginning on camera, because what we oh, did yeah, was okay. as soon yeah, as yeah. he came into the room, we, we would press record. Yeah. That's right. And so in the in the disc set, which I'm not saying to buy it because it's out of stock and I'm not trying to sell that. I'm just telling you in the disc set, you get to see all that behind the scenes talk. You get to see like talking about eugenics and all this stuff that's not actually in the lit part because we'll turn off the lights and air conditioning is on and there's just people mulling around and talking and stuff. I wanted that to be part of the documentary experience, too, because it's really a weekend with John Taylor Gatto. I think there might even be like we had a meal with him. That might yeah, I was going to say we had a meal that night with him. Um, and I remember we discussed topics such as 9-11, your experiences with 9-11. Um, you know, we had a big round table when Kevin was there, myself, you. Um, my buddy Rick flew in from Rick, Arizona yeah. just to be oh the my cook God, for all of us. Yeah, Rick. Yeah, Rick yeah, shout out to Rick. I haven't. Oh, and we yeah. funded it with uh, members of the Tragedy and Hope online community. And everybody threw in like 50 or a hundred bucks or whatever. And we were able to get John's plane ticket. Cause that's, that's the point I was leading up to. So finally, after trying to track this guy down and mailing to many addresses, cause I'm a corporate executive, I know how to get in touch with people. You got to be consistent and try many times. And then you get in touch with them. That's how it works. It's a science. It's like, boom. So he finally calls me and he's in his barn trying to chase out raccoons. And he's like, Hey, uh, I got your message about the internet. Now I had intended to go to his place in New York city or his place upstate New York to his farm low. Like I just travel there and do it. And he said, I'm, I'm coming to your place. 
buy me a plane ticket. Like, I, you know, I want to accept your invitation. I'm, I'm going to need a plane ticket to Hartford. I'm going to need a, you know, hotel room, this sort of stuff. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the way that I did that thing that I didn't have a budget for, wasn't expecting, I was able to say yes to the opportunity because I figured it out on the backside. I'll just ask my friends and subscribers for help and we'll get it done together. And I think there's probably almost like, I don't know, 500 associate producers for that oh, project. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a real show of not any, not, not nobody can carry all that weight by themselves. But if you get together and you do this thing and you, you don't divide and conquer, like this stands the test of time. Yeah. And we're going to see tonight that we all wish we would have learned this sooner in life and how, you know, we could feel woe is us. But the question is now that we know this, what do we have to do to get our thinking on track and that way we start achieving more of the things we want in life. And we have to endure less of this stuff that we don't want in life. That is freedom. Not being able to do that, having our options taken away, having ourselves dumbed down and surrounded by people who only make assumptions and won't use their God-given consciousness to think their way out of these simple problems. Like That's not a place we want to live purposely. So let's try. Let's just try a little bit. We'll try these little steps. We'll do it consistently. And I bet we're going to make progress with ourselves and with the people around us. Is there anything else we should cover before intermission, Tony, now that I've set it up? I would be say like we Lucy should and go... pulled away right before we kick it. Like, yeah, oh, no, I wait. think we should go right to intermission after that setup. That'd be tough. There's there's plenty of clips I would like to small clips I would like to get to after we come back, but it'd probably be good to go to intermission now and we'll come back for um the more discussion in regards to current topics throughout this past week that should get on the time capsule. But for now, with that setup, we should definitely head to intermission, I think. Okay, so before we go to intermission, I'm going to not take Tony's advice just real quick because I noticed <laughs> something. This pay, like it, this went off and I had to touch it, turn it back on. I couldn't find the header. So apparently the site works, but if you scroll down a lot, that's where the content is right now. So for some reason, our serving, our hosting company was under attack for a couple of weeks. We got everything working back up, but there's a big space in the middle of the website. So if you just be kind enough to thumb your way down to the content that's being loaded on there. You'll appreciate what, uh, what, what's going on over there. There's new books, there's all sorts of activities and there's new member benefits and sort of good stuff like that. So grantfworld.com. That's my quick plug. Here we go to uh, a site where don't click any of the links in this video. Cause they're all expired. <laughs> any calls to action and what you're about to see, uh, just go to my YouTube page or go to something more recent. Cause this is, uh, 11 years old at this point yeah 2011 12 years old at this point jeez yeah. time July flies and weekend, you will be able to see i think it was or is it 29 to be 2011 yeah. and so just so no one wastes the next you know intermission wondering the person interviewing the guy on the cover of this see this john taylor gatto the guy interviewing him is a younger version of me just to quell any ambiguity that you can you might, think of you the... might not be able to recognize but the same same dude the production is a time machine so don't think it's that. my younger brother just going back in time a little bit yeah let's go in the time machine let's go back to 2011 this is july 4th weekend independence day weekend the anniversary of tragedyandhope.com it was founded july 4th 2009 so this is like an anniversary celebration with one of the most treasured intellects living on the planet at that time and uh You'll get to see my intro. I made an intro. There's a green screen. I did chroma key. It's in my oh, basement. I remember the intro. So oh, I'm boy, I'm gonna walk away while we watch the beginning. And once we do the intro, then you'll start to see the interview unfold. But this is uh this is history. This is documentary style. And uh let's go ahead and roll the tape.
Hi, I'm John Taylor Gatto, and this is What You've Been Missing. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. Calvin Coolidge, 1933. Greetings and welcome. I'm your host and navigator, Richard Grove, and this is a very special interview episode of What You've Been Missing, featuring the gentle tone, scholarly insights, and wealth of wisdom that combines in the form of John Taylor Gatto, the legendary educator, author, and icon of liberty who offers a lifetime of perspectives on the origins, intentions, and destiny of the compulsory public school system. This five-hour journey represents a landmark in American history and was filmed over two days on July 4th weekend, 2011, in the Constitution State of Connecticut. This is a comprehensive interview session which not only memorializes John's life's work, but also embodies a return of our birthright as human beings. Truly an event which is relevant and relative to each and every one of us. This message applies to children and adults, parents and grandparents, students and teachers, administrators and politicians, blue-collar, white-collar, no-collar, everyone who uses words and symbols to meet their needs, everyone who depends on accurate information to thrive and survive in this world. The purpose of this interview with John is to provide each and every individual with the essential facts which pertain to our survival here on Earth, both as individuals and as a species, and yet have been censored from our public schooling. The envisioned outcome would be for each and every human being to possess the knowledge and understanding which allows them to exercise intellectual self-defense and self-liberty, thereby succeeding in pursuing and attaining happiness. It's designed to be shared and studied by individuals and groups to provide the evidence, organize the ideas, and facilitate the constructive conversations and actions necessary to address the root causes of our ever-growing incoherence as human beings. Since this interview contains over 200 footnotes and references and discusses the contents of more than 30 classic books essential to understanding life here on Earth, I would humbly recommend that your first viewing be invested into just soaking in this information and consider it for yourself, and after thinking about it, to then view it again with the intent of looking up the references to embolden your understanding and clarify the focus of your new, expanded perspectives. This interview session could be screened over five hours, five months, or five years, as it could take that long to consume the primary and secondary source materials referred to herein. Most importantly, what you get out of the Ultimate History lesson will be in direct proportion to the amount of attention and focus that you can invest into it. As each hour of the interview progresses into another, you are literally crossing thresholds of discovery. And by hour five, the layers of these discoveries 
yield a truly inspiring realization. That being said, the conversation which forms the entirety of this interview is almost entirely composed of facts and references pointing toward a preponderance of evidence, which is, for the most part, unknown to the general public. And it has everything to do with the myriad of crises which face humanity, starting with our own incoherence and inability to problem-solve our way forward. We're not asking you to agree with us nor to believe what we're saying. We're simply trying to provoke you into looking into these matters for yourself by providing you with an accurate map which leads to your own factual and substantial understanding of reality. For as Aristotle once wrote, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Through these interview sessions with John, you're going to be introduced to a variety of historical personalities and, we hope, curious to review the history which has led us to this point. And to that end, this is not about disproving or debunking what we've been taught so much as it is a journey of discovery to discern reality and to discover our birthright as human beings so that we might go forward in order to meet the challenges we all face here on this planet together. This is truly something that corporate establishment media, public schools, and universities cannot afford to teach us. So without further ado, let us begin, as they say, at the beginning. On December 15, 1935, John Taylor Gatto was born in western Pennsylvania in the coal mining and steel milling town of Monongahela, about 35 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. During his early school years, he spent a year at an elite Jesuit boarding school near Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where, as you'll soon hear, he learned to think dialectically and was beaten sufficiently by the nuns to create his outspoken temperament, which has endured lifelong. John did undergraduate work at Cornell University, the University of Pittsburgh and Columbia University, and then served in the United States Army Medical Corps at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Following Army service, John did graduate work at the City University of New York, Hunter College, Yeshiva University, the University of California, Cornell and Reed College, which is a private, independent liberal arts college located in Oregon. Like many famous American iconoclasts, John first honed his skills in a variety of professions before finding his talent for teaching, which proves to be his real gift to this world. After almost 30 years of teaching in New York City's inner city schools, he was named New York City Teacher of the Year in 1989, 1990, and 1991, and that same year was also named New York State Teacher of the Year. Later in 1991, he wrote a letter announcing his retirement from teaching titled, I Quit, I Think, to the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal, stating that he no longer wished to, quote, hurt kids to make a living, end quote. Soon thereafter, he was the subject of a show at Carnegie Hall titled An Evening with John Taylor Gatto, which then launched a career of public speaking in the area of public school reform. He then began a worldwide public speaking and writing career and has received several awards from libertarian organizations, including the Alexis de Tocqueville Award for Excellence in the Advancement of Educational Freedom, in 1997. John has been invited to speak all around the world to share his research and has spoken to audiences in 
Australia, Spain, France, England, Mexico, China, and Canada, as well as every one of the 50 American states. Since his public resignation in 1991, he has traveled over 3 million air miles, spoken at Harvard University, NASA Space Center, the White House, Smith College, Cato Institute, and many other places. He's also been a keynote speaker at over 30 state homeschool conventions, and he supports something called unschooling and open source education for personal learning. In his book, Weapons of Mass Instruction, here's how John defines open source education. Open source learning accepts that everything under the sun might be a possible starting point on the road to self-mastery and a good life. In open source, learning sequences are personally designed or personally signed off on, and everyone you encounter in life is a potential teacher. In open source, teaching is a function, not a profession. Everyone learns and everyone can teach themselves how to learn anything as well as learning how to teach others. In open source, students are the active initiators. You learn that you either write your own script in life or by default, without your input, you become an unwitting actor in someone else's script. The main thesis of John's body of work can best be illustrated, in my opinion, by asking the question, what do public schools actually teach children? and answering it with the main themes contained in John's first book, printed in 1992, titled Dumbing Us Down. He makes the following observations about how public schools are designed in form and function. Public schooling teaches confusion by breaking coherence. It presents an ensemble of information that the child needs to memorize in order to stay in school. Public schooling teaches them to accept their class affiliation. Public schooling makes them indifferent and suppresses natural curiosity. Public schooling makes them emotionally dependent on approval from authority. Public schooling also makes them intellectually dependent on experts and authorities to think on their behalf. Public schooling teaches them a kind of self-confidence that requires constant confirmation by experts and authorities, also known as provisional self-esteem. Public schooling makes it clear to them that they cannot hide, that they are always supervised, under surveillance, especially in today's society where everything online is tracked, information is sold in a variety of ways to a variety of predators. Bibliography. John's poetic prose and diligent documentation can be studied in his prodigious preponderance of publications, including Dumbing Us Down, the Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, 1992. The Exhausted School, 1993. A Different Kind of Teacher, Solving the Crisis of American Schooling, 2000. The Underground History of American Education, 2001. And in my opinion, this is an essential book to read as it stimulates your internal dialogue and draws questions as to why are children being methodically undermined? while simultaneously providing you with the answers and comprehensive references. John also published an article called Against School, published by Harper's Magazine in 2003, and last but not least, Weapons of Mass Instruction, A School Teacher's Journey Through the Dark World of Compulsory Schooling, 2008. John's website is johntaylorgatto.com, and you can help him fund his current projects, sample the underground history of American education, and browse his bookstore. 
We've also created a special website to support your further study of this project, theultimatehistorylesson.com, which acts as a single point of access to all the media, references, notes, and source materials and bonus features associated with this interview set. Realizing that releasing this information is not enough, We've invested a great deal of effort into organizing and providing you with the research library and all the tools, methods, and resources that you'll need to learn your way forward following this interview. Possibly one of the most useful tools is our use of the personal brain software to enter, organize, and connect all of this information into a comprehensive big picture, literally helping you to connect all of the dots of useful information and formulate a useful understanding. We use the brain internally to help us organize the plethora of prolific facts, artifacts, and personalities that we've encountered while attempting to understand the nature of public education. In addition to hosting the brain models, the ultimatehistorylesson.com also hosts the video files for this interview set, as well as the audio-only versions of this interview in MP3 and CD format so that you can listen to it on the go. This site also hosts the footnotes, links, references, and PDF versions of the classic books discussed, and in the near future we'll be adding subtitles and translation into multiple languages and much more. TheUltimateHistoryLesson.com links you to our educational media producing partners, as well as the Tragedy and Hope online community, wherein you can leverage the research, methods, and tools in an international online community designed to be a fear-free zone of mutual respect wherein individual explorations are shared to empower everyone with a comprehensive understanding. The Tragedy and Hope online community is free to those who need it and sponsored by the individuals who can afford to support our educational projects. And since this project was funded by more than 50 individuals in the Tragedy and Hope online community, I would especially like to thank those of you who gave us the ability to invite John and produce the ultimate history lesson so that this empowering information can be understood worldwide. We also produce the Peace Revolution podcast, a virtual classroom for adults designed to point out and provide useful perspectives, resources, and organized information. Each episode contains a subject of study essential to understanding a comprehensive view of reality, all of which is focused on providing you with the history contextual information and references, and the various methods and tools so that you can learn for yourself that which public schools cannot afford to provide. Specifically, we've produced episodes 41 through 45 of the Peace Revolution podcast, which feature all five hours of this interview coupled with historical analysis and commentary, which we provide to help you really understand what's being said. These episodes amount to another 15 hours of educational content, which is also available on TheUltimateHistoryLesson.com, providing you with the metaphorical handles, if you will, so that you can grasp this material and use it to your own advantage in everyday life. Unlike any other interview you've ever witnessed, the conclusion of The Ultimate History Lesson is actually the starting point on your own personal journey of discovery. Due to the fact that we're trying to do something that hasn't yet been done, I've edited each hour of this interview such that from the crack of the slate until the end of the tape, you're witnessing John in a natural and forthright representation of his presence, and nothing he states in the coming hours has been taken out of order, out of context, or otherwise adjusted for theatrical purposes, as I feel that it would not be to anyone's benefit to change the flow of energy as it happened. 
These interview sessions are designed to resurrect your curiosity, stimulate your use of reason, inspire you to look around, provoke you into asking questions, sparking your creativity and your inventiveness, igniting the solution-making process in each and every one of us. Its function is to provide you with a ramp to learning, discussion, respectful debate, and compassionate forms of communication as well as constructive action. Here's hour one of our interview with John Taylor Gatto. It's time to begin the ultimate history lesson. Thank you for tuning in and not dropping out. You know, if we're pushing that button, you get a camera credit. That's pretty good. Awesome. I don't even know that we'll need the slides necessarily. I mean, we can start by talking about that. Father, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So grammar is the Son, logic is the Father, the Holy Ghost is rhetoric, and God is the consciousness. And so the Christian trivium came from the Greek trivium, but they, they used a metaphor to encode it. Now my question to you is, is a metaphor a lie? Or is a metaphor something else? I think we better start a little <laughs> less abstract. <laughs> One of the things, a fatigued old brain. <laughs> Actually, I, I arrive at abstraction by arguing with myself through writing. So everything I write goes through about 20 drafts. And since I handwrite it, it's quite painful to re- and and throw it out, but I don't really know what I say, what I'm going to say, or what I believe until I actually argue with what I think I believe. So, what do you think you believe about schooling? I think I believe that the metaphor schooling clearly tells you what it's expected to deliver. The, we only use the the expression one other way commonly, and that's with the school of fish. And they are wonderful to watch. When one fin moves, all of them have thousands of fins move, and they're instantly receptive to what the group wishes. I don't know who gives the original signal, but, but education's diametrically opposite to that. I think it starts with the assumption that we get from a fingerprint or from DNA that no two people are alike and that the ultimate uh, realization of yourself is to find that uniqueness where your apparent physical resemblance to everybody else sort of dissolves as an illusion and you stand absolutely alone, or you can select when you want to be part of the larger group. Uh, it seems clear to me that the business of schooling has done what Orwell clearly saw you do, or what uh, 
Walter Lippmann said you do back in the 1920s. You steal the key language of the person you or the group you want to overthrow and you redefine it and people then become confused. It's new speak in 1984. So the, the schooling transformation occurs when they see that the language of education is highly regarded, highly respected, and even in people who don't participate, there's an urge in that direction. So you simply take the concepts and you claim that that's why people are being ritualized. Uh, yeah, so there. So you describe that individual beings, when in groups, kind of subvert their own individual thinking power. And the, the, the law of identity, none of us can change who we are, we have to be ourselves, and that is constant throughout life. So it's about figuring out how to remain individually self-reliant and self-sufficient as going through these systems that are trying to change us and to make us less self-reliant and more. Very much so, and I think the awareness of these contrary dynamics is what gives rise to the theories of dialectic. I mean, Aristotle all the way through history, the variety of them, but they participate in the same way as essentially asking you for your own self-defense, not to assume that what anyone says especially as they climb the authority ladder, is the truth. Often the misinformation comes from innocent self-delusion, but just as often as you move up the power pyramid, it comes from a malign intent toward your own individuality. So it's like a betrayal of truth that occurs, or you know, a betrayal of, of, of you know, belief in some authority structure that you want to believe in is true, and then little by little you realize that it's not necessarily how it might have been presented to you? Right. Even in your own individual inner life and consciousness, before the cameras rolled, I said, the way I learn what I'm thinking is to write something down that I think I believe and then I argue with it, and it never survives. How about that? Now, what scares me is that when I go back to it year after year, most of it doesn't survive. I mean, it takes years before I get to a core and I say, I'm not personally capable of moving beyond this, this thing, so that we're so well conditioned from infancy, uh, not to see the truth or relate the truth, but to shave it, that the first step in reaching for an education, I think, is to mistrust what you most are certain of, to mistrust that. Now, it may survive, but it needs tested not once until you're exhausted from testing it. Is the school system designed to get kids to grow into a thriving, self-responsible, self-reliant adult? 
or is it to whittle away curiosity and to kind of stop them from thinking for themselves? It's certainly not the former in any way for the simple reason that throughout history, management doesn't know how to manage independent units, even partially independent units. Why shouldn't we ask, and any school people uh, watching your, your film should begin immediately to ask politely, why are we doing this? It's a question you never hear because it's heresy. I mean, the beleaguered classroom teacher doesn't know why he or she's doing that. They're told to do it. Maybe they can give it 5% personal spin. That's why they're doing it. Does it make sense for this particular life that's asking you the question? You don't know, and if you started to care, the logic of schooling would uh, dissolve. You, the, no one is able. You can answer the question for yourself. I used to say to my classes, and over the course of 30 years teaching, I taught kids from the Gold Coast to the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I taught kids from the center of Harlem and Spanish Harlem. And I would say to all of them, you have a right at any time. You've got to be polite, though, because I'm just human, to say, why are we doing this? And if I can't produce an answer that convinces you that I believe it, then you have a right to opt out and do something else as long as you don't run wild and bring the whole house down. Uh, it, it helped me grow year after year. Not that it, they ask very often because they're conditioned not to do that. But enough did ask that I was put on my own metal to say, why am I doing this? And uh, it was a continual uh, expansion of my own insight until politically I couldn't do it any longer. The school, oddly enough, made me so internally famous that it drew extra attention and my system couldn't survive under the scrutiny because they would see the disparity between what I was doing and what the protocols were. So, so there. So it sounds like uh, the, if I'm trying to get to the root cause of why your teaching career ended, it sounds like you started asking questions, John, and it sounded like the question started with why, with a question mark, and then maybe you were asking some other, like, you know, the five W's plus how, and you were actually getting observed Constantly knowledge. asking myself right. questions, then forcing my classes to ask me questions and themselves questions. And eventually, the productive output of my classes was so great, inadvertently, I didn't care how the school measured product, but it was so great 
that I would get visiting delegations, sometimes on a daily basis, for months, and they would leave baffled because they wouldn't see the drama unfolding that they understood as schooling, and they were right. It was less and less schooling, and eventually the pressure became impossible since I set out at the beginning of the year with an, an inner intention, if I had 120 kids, to have 120 individually written curricula. I never succeeded totally, but I got close enough that when the principal would drop by and only find nine people in class and say, where are the rest, that I ran out of strategies to explain where the rest were. So, so uh, yeah, I couldn't operate. I couldn't function any longer because my physical strength wasn't up to it. So... How did part of the strength of your actual teaching come from releasing children from the classroom and letting them go out in the world and actually gain some useful oh, huge experience? huge amounts of it came from releasing anyone who had an independent course to follow, becoming that boy or girl's assistant, always with the mother's permission because they couldn't deal with that kind of additional political pressure. So what they would learn and bring back would be like food for me. I would be like I was 120 people simultaneously. Oh, I learned much more than I learned at the two Ivy League colleges I attended. I used to say to my wife, and it sounds fanciful, as though, oh, he must love children, which is not true. I, I love people, and people can be five years old, but but people who suck their thumb and, and, and rattle and extend childhood, school's intention is to artificially extend childhood. And there really is no practical terminus for that. If they can extend it through graduate school and postgraduate. What is the actual reason that their childhoods are being extended? What, how's it start for the I style? think what we never discuss, or that the extreme left is preempted to discuss, so they marginalize themselves, is the intimate interrelationship between the economy and the way we train the young. To the extent that we once had a wildly variegated economy. I'm quoting Abraham Lincoln in 1859, famous speech of the Wisconsin Agricultural Association. Lincoln said, I call this mudsill theory because he used that term. L Lincoln said the British are financing the whole Western movement and they're attempting to reinstall their class system. And so they send their young sons over to make sure that not a whole lot of attention is paid to ordinary people or people who live in simple homes that have mud sills. He said they're not, according to the British thinking, they're not worth 
training or worrying about because there's no way they can possibly improve. Lincoln said, look around you. Three quarters of our population has an independent livelihood, and the quarter who doesn't works to put a little stake together to set up on their own and write their own script in life. He said, as a consequence, we don't have proletariat as they do in Britain and Germany and, and the European nations, and we aren't able to have a factory system where it exists in this country, which is in New England, in the textile industries, a factory will have 30 or 40 employees. They'll usually be young women waiting marriage. They'll be served tea at their machines, and there'll be opera performances staged just to keep them at the machine because these independent livelihoods lead to you know, totally private, independent systems of value. So the British are wrong, but of course, the Civil War changed that. We're sold that it was a great crusade against slavery by the school system. The major historians who've turned their attention to that say, I mean, to a person, that slavery was already dead. It was staggering through its last couple of generations, not because of a moral transfer, transformation on the part of plantation owners, but because the wives of the plantation owners were scratching their head and saying, you know, the boss, my husband vanishes for a couple of days. We have all these new slaves and they're not black anymore. They're various shades of brown. So they, he, he, I'm thinking right now, I think Vern Parrington, but a, a number of historians 50 years ago said slavery was on its last legs because the Southern womanhood wouldn't stand for it any longer. Uh, Russia, I believe, had freed the serfs. Uh, Britain and the continent had done this thing. We were going to do it too. But it gave a nobility to the necessity to get rid of the southern politicians who were trained in dialectical thinking, in rhetoric, and could run circles around the northern politicians in Congress. They could produce the most compelling arguments for this or that. And so the South had to be gotten rid of. From my understanding, those dry goods like cotton from the South that were produced by slaves were then going to uh, factories in the North. And the factory owners in the North figured out that the slave owners were paying too much overhead. It cost a lot to keep a whole oh. family fed, et cetera. And there sure. were letters exchanged, and they actually discovered it was cheaper. Why not make everyone uh, a, a slave who doesn't know that they're a slave? A wage slave. Right, right. And, and think, think only about the welfare idea, if you have a plantation 
family and you require harmony, even though some people are very subordinate, if somebody gets sick or too old to work, you can't, in fact, do the Simon Legree bit and get rid of them, or what happens is morale collapses. So you have to care for them. The discussions on the highest level among northern industrialists, why should we have to why should we have to support Deadwood here? And we could do that if they were wage slaves. Yeah, yeah. They, and, and furthermore, people like uh, Count Tolstoy was well aware of the hardcore underneath the romantic arguments, and so were a number of other people. But the public dependent upon media and pulpits, which were subsidized by the owners, could they couldn't find a zone where they could think clearly, or someone would say, yeah, here's the truth, think about it. Early forms of mass media propaganda, by from the pulpit or the newspaper. Or the Chautauquas. Oh, absolutely. The Chautauquas were put together by intense, the, the family that uh, began Harper's Publishers and had the very prestigious journal of the time, Harper's Weekly. Uh, Louis Lapham, the Lapham family? Well, was Lapham's a very latter his day. Dad, well, his, his grandfather was in charge of Harper's though. And he was mayor of San Francisco, I believe. Mayor, he was uh, when the UN uh, came in, and he he told me that uh, his boyhood was filled with foreign dignitaries yeah. in the home as house guests, or putting the throne back glass of wine. So you can actually trace the small number of families behind the Chautauquas, which were the most compelling mass media of the day and you'd hear about what was going on in Boston out in Cincinnati and you'd want that and selectively ideas and ways of thinking were introduced to the best people and they used their local prestige to make sure that you know it's a, a natural process so so what we got was a second American Revolution between, oh, I don't know, 1865 and about 1910. This time the British won again, but they didn't win by force of arms, but by force of insight into the way opinion is created. And when the skilled workers who had intense pride and really were the key to the prosperity of uh, early industrial operation, commercial operation, when the skilled workers understood their power, then industry and commerce were mechanized intensely and you wiped out the need for skill. You took less quality, but now you had less contention, less argument. Carnegie was uh, was instrumental in eliminating the, the influence of skilled labor and it continued right through the 20th century.
what influence have the Rockefellers had on organized labor, Forms. skilled labor, uh, education? The, the Rockefeller family can actually be traced way back in Dutch history. There's a, an ancestor of the Rockefellers who set up a rather detailed plan for global government hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And that is one of these flow charts that showed how you were going to do that or not. But uh, or the great irony, of course, is that Rockefeller and Carnegie's families were fringe people in the United States, but using their using their brilliant insight into leverage and how it works, both were able to take nothing and pyramided into quite a bit. Rockefeller actually, his uh, father, I believe, but it may have been his grandfather, fled a rape charge, sort of like Strauss-Kahn's up in Bainbridge, New York, he had been charged with rape of a maid and fled. They threw their, uh, a Rockefeller threw their weight behind, this is it's emblematic of how they were, behind Horatio Alger, who also had been charged with rape up here in Connecticut, and the Newsboys Lodging House. And if you read a wonderful book that exists, uh, a limited edition, but it's kept continuously in print, called The, uh, the Rise of the Dangerous Classes in New York City by the creator of American Adoption. When I started to research, school, I kept running into the same people who put the adoption institution together and the school institute, one much more important than the other, but still the same names float in and out of one another. Charles Loring Brace, who I believe his father was the publisher of the Hartford Courant. I'm almost sure in his early diaries say, I must find a way to become nationally famous. I mean, in Yale, he wrote that he didn't have any idea how he was going to do that. But finally, it occurred to him that with these masses of immigrants being brought in to break the Irish labor monopoly in the mines and the mills, that the easiest way to lower the unit cost of labor was to bring the husband and the wife into the labor force. You double the size of the labor force, you cut the unit value of the labor in half. But you couldn't do that as long as they were worried about their kids. So now you have the impetus to enlarge the social work industry, to corrupt the legislatures, to give it the power to break families apart, and what do you do with the kids? Well, the expression put up for adoption tells you you don't want them anywhere in the neighborhood. You want them far away. So you put them in boxcars. This great secret 
monstrous event in American history that goes on for 40, 50 years. Boxcars full of the children of the labor sent west. They started upstate New York, but that was too close. So they kept going farther and farther west. And then they'd stop at a whistle stop and a platform would be brought out. The boxcar would open. The children would be put up for adoption. They had a preference for who they wanted to adopt. They wanted Lutherans to adopt because they had the Episcopal idea of hierarchy, but they were just dumb farmers. They couldn't think clearly. Here was free labor. Hey, and that will that will end the future uh, career of these immigrants. What stopped putting children up for adoption was the police chiefs of the West. I think the year was 1888, but give me a few years either way. They wrote a stinging attack on this practice, not on moral grounds, but they said crime is everywhere in the West. And if you go to the uh, psychological abstracts, you'll find that an enormous number of adopted children, for example, six of the ten leading mass murderers in American history, but all forms of crime, because when you break the bond with the natural, you can't put substitutes in place. Again, not morally. There's a recent uh, physiological theory called mere neurons that you learn to use your own biological equipment by watching people who have the same or nearly identical biological. When you remove that, even if the family that you're transferred to has money and savoir-faire and civil, they're more civil, doesn't matter. You're actually imitating things that your physiology can accommodate. As a consequence, you get incrementally more and more crazed inside and angry. Uh, one of the things, of course, school does is it prevents these kind of connections between different areas from occurring. That's what the short answer test is about. And Oxford and Cambridge got rid of it a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago because they said people who do well on short answer tests, they memorize bits of information, but they don't connect the bits of information. And when they seem to be able to connect the bits of information, it's because they've memorized someone else's connections. The better the school, the more sets of connections you memorize. But you can't do that for yourself. You know, it's, it's like these machines. You guys are all too young to remember. They used to sell machines that would relieve the stress of lifting weights. You'd put the weight in your hand, but the machine would lift your arm in the way. Only trouble was, your muscle knew the difference. 
but the people buying the machinery didn't. Well, it looks exactly the same. Anyway, I, I put me back on course here. Is there any connection between frustration and aggression? And what effect does schooling have on that? Well, you, you, I mean, you answer your own question by asking it. I mean, the connection's intimate. School removes your volition in all important ways, even who you speak to are not the arts of association as valuable or more valuable than anything else you learn when you're young. I read how executive hiring is done, and it almost never has to do with your training in whatever you're being hired for. It's, is this the kind, I'm, I'm thinking of Apple now, I believe. Is this the person we would like to have around three years from now? Have bend an elbow with, or play golf with, or just talk with? I mean, and that's why you're passed from set of executives, set of executives, so they can sign off, yeah, he's okay, you know, we can, uh, but we don't tell kids that, right? It's people who have the highest grade point average and the highest uh, SAT scores. Well, I spent an hour, years, well, not so long ago, within 10 years, with the admissions officer for Harvard College, and about 30 years ago, an hour with the admissions director at Princeton. And let me tell you, their polite dismissal of grades and SAT scores was intimidating to listen to, as if you'd have to be crazy to let somebody in. Let me see if I can uh, condense how you get into Harvard or Princeton. Of course, you get into both by donating a building, but, but how do other people get in? They're being analyzed on the basis of their ability to either become wealthy or famous. Either one will work. Famous, like wearing a billboard saying, I went to Princeton. There's that actress Jodie Foster, I went to Princeton. Look at where the rest of the actors and directors went. They didn't go anywhere, but Jodie did. So that's one we hear about. Uh, it's... The Harvard lady said, we look for a record of excellence. And what does excellence consist of? It's sometime in the first 18 years of your life, figuring out how to add value to the people around you. Although she didn't say this, in a way that catches public attention. So you might walk across the United States or bicycle the perimeter of the country or row across the Atlantic Ocean as a physical way. You might start a little charity or set up some weather service or some pollution monitoring around uh, Hartford. There, there are a substantial number, a small fraction, but a substantial number of kids doing this as we sit here. They're writing a record of being able to add value to the community around them. 
And then the other fellow, the, the Princeton guy, said the same thing in different words. I asked him, what is about 68 roughly? I asked him, what part of a resume submitted do you look at first? And the answer metaphorically caused my jaw to open. Hobbies, he said. I said, I've been taught all my life, leave that off because it's not germane. He said, on the contrary, it's the only honest information you're likely to get. How does someone spend their time when it's their free choice to spend? He said it's a window into their mind and their heart. <laughs> what kind of hobbies? He said, well, ideally someone would have a physical hobby, an intellectual hobby, and a social hobby because that would show they're exploring these large, well, physical hobby. You mean football, baseball. Well, he said, it's better than nothing, but we would prefer not to see teams. As I've been told all my life, the team sports identify your ability to work in a team. He said, what happens in a team sport is if you decide to dog it, it's very hard to tell which guy on the line has dogged it or not, or which running back has gone down quicker than he should have gone down. There, He said, we prefer uh, solo hobbies that involve physical danger. You mean you want kids to put their necks at risk? For example, what? I said, he said, well, horseback riding is a dead giveaway. The horse weighs a half a ton or more. Uh, if you do trail riding, you don't know what you're doing. Your head gets caught on a branch and, and you're the headless horseman. If the horse doesn't like you, it'll roll over on top of you. And I know immediately, because that last time I rode a horse was down in Veracruz, Mexico. The horse didn't like me. Took me out on the main highway with crazed Mexican drivers going 100 miles an hour and 18 wheelers and it laid down on top of me. I was terrified, because I could see these trucks coming. Didn't like that the last time I rode. So he said, you have to actually know what you're doing. You can't say, is this an A job or a B job, if you live and are intact at it. Then he said, sailing a small boat, these little 12-footers outside of land, uh, if you don't know what you're doing, you end up in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, or, you, or, or if wind comes up, you can't see landmarks because of the waves. Uh, I said, but those things are associated with uh, the prosperous classes. What, what could somebody in ordinary circumstances do? He said, well, we just let somebody in. This is probably one of the nicest factoids in my mind, in my life. We just let someone in who invented his own sport, 
and kept records competing against himself, his past performance, his present performance. It was, get ready for this, visualize this, seatless unicycle riding over broken terrain. If I had 10 lifetimes, the thought of doing that wouldn't occur. Started getting on a unicycle, let alone one without a seat, let alone riding it over broken terrain. So they let him in because they knew he was on the fast track. <laughs> so, so we tell these lies, and of course many of the people who tell the lies believe the lies. Well, surely they're going to take valedictorians. Well, last year Harvard turned down eight out of every 10 valedictorians who applied, and the two they took in, they didn't take in because they were valedictorians there. So by, by removing this component from the student imagination, you can control to some extent who even applies to Harvard and then who gets in who applies because they don't know what they're doing. What's the IT garbage in, garbage out? So what I would do was I would examine. I have a friend who started a tutoring service called the Princeton Review. And, oh, 20 years ago they were charging $300 an hour. I have no idea what they charge now. But what they did was crack the code of the questions on standardized tests. And he, Adam Robinson was his name. Adam took his money and left the Princeton Review to his partner. Uh, but Adam has written a book well worth, I think, your group looking up called What Smart Students Know, Random House. What smart students know. Uh, Adam was certain that you could pass standardized tests without having any knowledge of the, the subject as long as you understood the constraints, the tests, the question architects were under. For example, two of the four answers offered are always so absurd that if you know that, now you're left with a 50-50 guess. I had figured out when I was in high school that if you had some way to measure the angles on the little uh, geometric figures on the test that you didn't need to know, you could arrive at the answer simply by, you know, a simplistic means. Uh, the evidence that all of us know, standardized tests, don't measure what they claim to measure, is that nobody, I mean nobody you encounter on the upper reaches of society would dream of hiring somebody on the basis of those tests, or in grade point averages, you'd be playing Russian roulette because they measure nothing. The grades largely measure 
that you memorize what you're told to memorize. I mean, there are a few other things, but that's the heart of it. So now you know you have somebody obedient, and probably for a clerk, that is a good measure. Not for someone who has to adapt to changing circumstances, you know, by the natural selection process of reality. Uh, it, it, it's fairly easy without being a wise guy or very learned as long as you retain the ability to think independently from the data in front of you to penetrate the masks, the contentions that don't conform to everyday reality. So no one will hire you as a CEO and ask you what you're saying. But, but if you examine the, uh, the data that's available about big-time politicians, now we have, and I don't think it surprised anybody, that George Bush, the most recent one, was a C average in high school, prep school, and a C average at Yale. What does surprise people is that the candidate he ran against was a C average in prep school and a C average at Yale and a lower C average than George Bush's and the Kerry of Massachusetts. The fact that the, the, the best evidence that the nation has been schooled to the point of extinction, is that they were fraternity brothers at Yale in a fraternity, I'll skip its interesting reputation, it only has 15 members. And they were fraternity brothers at Yale. There's 308 million of us. I mean, mathematically, I wouldn't know how to set the odds, but they would be stupendous. No one mentioned it, or if they did, it was to quickly get over that. That should have been headlines with the New York Times and the Washington Post. Fraternity Brothers at Yale run for president. You wouldn't need to mention that it was the Skull and Bones fraternity. So when the skew from sanity is that of that magnitude, you should not expect much to come from the watchdogs of, of our liberty and our best interests. How could that happen unless but there's a, a Jewish expression, chutzpah, unless this feeling of contempt for ordinary people was very dramatic. We could, I'm sure someone in the councils who allowed that to happen said, maybe someone will notice. To dismiss that shows you how powerless to believe, for example, another example, that the recent banking crisis, you know, the real estate bubble, the, uh, it is an oddity in American banking 
There have been five such since 1961 savings and loan technology bubble. There have been five of those, and the central figure in all five is the Citibank of New York. Now, sometimes it's called First National. That's back in 61. Then it becomes Citibank. Then it merges with another huge core, and it becomes Citigroup. But the mentality loose on that level shows utter contempt for the safeguards built into, you know, the founding documents or built into tradition as ordinary people, and that includes upper middle class ordinary people, expect it to be. It doesn't exist. Now, what we've run into is a people infinitely more sophisticated than us with a 5,000 year civilization who are even more amoral than we are and look at starving 3 million people to death as they did 20 years ago. Is there any shortage of people? I mean, they're already running circles. I've spoken in China half a dozen times for various groups, and the Chinese government is a little bit worried, not a lot, that their system of schooling, very like ours, except more disciplined, uh, it seems to constrain the inventive imagination. The reason they're not worried is they don't recognize copyright law or patent law, so they have access to anything there. But they will not accept, they keep asking me by, they will not accept that the system they're applying to the young mind is guaranteed to foreclose the imagination that produces invention. So um, I mean, I'm happy to take their money and get a chance to see uh, uh, Xi'an and Shanghai and Beijing, but they will follow the course we follow. It'll just take a little bit longer, that's all. Your turn. In China, they have the outcome-based education system, but they're seeking to tweak it so that they can, they can kind of improve it. They said, we want to keep our people under control, but we want them to be more creative and productive and efficient and happy while they're doing it, yes. right? Now, the question is, if America has become more incoherent, wouldn't that be a function of the Prussian education system, outcome-based education being used to control the workers and make more profits, and now it's just run its course? The, uh, it's run its course. We're exhausted now. Our schooling is exhausted, and the national vitality's been exhausted. The uh, I'm glad you used uh, the term incoherence. About three or four years ago, the Financial Times of London, on the editorial page, accused us of being an incoherent, you may have read the same piece I did, an incoherent society that we had lost a reason to be a nation at all because subsidizing 
bankers and drug companies wasn't a sufficient reason to proceed in history. Yeah, we're incoherent. We don't, nation comes from the root uh, family. And, and we, we no longer have a concern other than a rhetorical concern with one another. I mean, obviously, there are many individual exceptions to that. But the government clearly has no such concern. We have evolved an economy that depends upon constant warfare. And even though it was stretching it in Iraq and Afghanistan, when those are over, we must have another conflict. We're going to have to stretch it even further. And maybe attack small islands, Fiji maybe, because they represent a menace. Being a child of World War II, the idea of calling something a war where the enemy has no army, navy, air force, intelligence service, where they blow up their feet in their underwear, it just stretches the bounds of the ridiculous to call it a war. Uh, but we we got a we got an object lesson from uh, oh, a television comedian who said when you fly planes into a building, it certainly shows you have courage. And that was temporarily the end of his career. You do not speak in opposition to the main force driving events. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, to look at to look at America between, let me roughly say, 1800 and 1865, and then from momentum right up to the First World War, there's this explosion of invention, and it comes from the unlikeliest places. It does not come from university-trained inventors. It comes from everywhere. It's the way people saw the world around them. They saw this the elements, the raw material. They processed it a slightly different way, and then they had the expands the rhetorical capacity to say, hey, look, there's a better way to do this. It was happening so frequently that a crisis occurred in capitalism. And without understanding this crisis, you really can't understand why our schools are the product of the Rockefeller family, the Carnegie family, the Astor family, the Vanderbilt family, the great capitalist families. They understood that the real problem in successful capitalism is assembling capital, getting people to give you their savings on the promise that you'll give them more back. But if you have people in a, an inventive matrix who can look at the way 
the expansive businesses doing things open up across the street and either do it cheaper or better or simply open up somewhere else where no one is doing it. Capital is always at great risk. So in or, oddly enough, I don't want to claim credit for what really is a brilliant insight, but I want to crave credit. It was openly discussed, let me say, from 1880 to 1900. We were being forcibly converted from an economy of small farmers, small engineers, entrepreneurs, into a corporate economy. And these men doing it, they weren't intellectual dumb coughs. They could see that as long as the American inventiveness was loose like a wild beast, they were going to have a lot of trouble pulling characters. Someone would say, but I saw, you know, Jack, and he went belly up. So Prussian schooling, which had, for a different reason, had been out to destroy the imagination. And let me say to anyone listening to this, when someone makes a reckless statement like that, you make sure they can document it. And I will document it as long as you're willing to walk to your local public library. Because in every public library worth its salt in the United States and in every college library, you will find a collection of essays by a Prussian philosopher, Johann Fichte, who was the immediate heir to the University of Berlin's philosophy department, which had been under Immanuel Kant. Fichte wrote a series of, it was over a dozen public essays to the Prussian king from let's say, let me say, 1808 to about 1818. They're called Addresses to the German Nation. And the provocative event that set the first one off was the Prussian army, which was the Prussian economy, renting soldiers, stealing other people's stuff, had been whipped by Napoleon's amateur army at the Battle of Jena in 1806. And Fichte said it was because this demon imagination was loose among ordinary soldiers and in situations they would override the orders from headquarters about what to do and that's why we lost. Now what should fascinate anyone listening is that's exactly what the so-called liberal philosopher uh, Spinoza in Holland had said in 1690 in a book called Tractatus Politico Religico Politicus. Tractatus Religico Politicus. Spinoza said that the ordinary population was so psychologically diseased, murderously so, there was no way to heal it. Just as Fichte, 125 years later, said there was no way to heal the disobedience gene in people who thought for themselves. 
Fichte said we have to set up a system of forced schooling, universal forced schooling, in which we destroy the imagination. Bells, ordered lessons, constant testing, rankings. Now, if it were only those two major figures, but you now can go back a few hundred years in history to John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is this thick, tiny print. But if you ever go mad and actually force yourself to read it, rather than to read what an encyclopedia tells you it says, you'll find that Calvin says that the saved are saved before they're born, the damned who are 19 to 1 are damned before they're born, and no amount of good work or behavior can save the damned, and no amount of evil behavior can damn the saved. The expression that used to be pretty common, but has vanished, I think on purpose, is justified sinners. The saved are justified sinners who can do anything. They can carpet bomb civilian populations, whether they're Nazis or Americans. You know, you've done no harm, according to Calvin. Calvin said the only way the, the elect, he called the saved, the elect will be ever be safe because they're outnumbered so heavily, is to set up a system of universal compulsion schooling with the intention of destroying the imagination and filling the head with garbage. Spinoza said the same thing. Fichte said the same thing. I think we just ran out of tape. Is that what happened? Is yeah, that one still running? Yes, but it has no mic room. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take uh, a 10 minute break. Oh, good. We're going to change the tapes. We're going to turn all these lights out. We're going to turn the AC back on and cool you off. If you want to get up and move around, use the bathroom. I was just checking over here to see if that University of Reason thing is going on. Is that still going on, Tony? Have you heard about the University of Reason lately? Let's see. I'm going to type in something over here. I need to press a button so you guys can see. New tab, University. Oh, there's an offer lately. Some sort of checkout. Oh, there's an obstacle course. That's where the obstacle course lives. Holy shnikes. Continuity. Now, we don't have that fancy uh, elephant logo anymore, but it is uh, universityreason.com, and that offer was brought to us by the letter. Let me go back a page and see what the actual page name was. Lifestyle Liberty is what it was. Universityreason.com forward slash lifestyle dash liberty is how you would have gotten that page. But that's from a month or so ago. I just wanted to show continuity. 2011. We didn't have a university of reason set up, but we had a good idea for it. And then John laid out all these things. Like uh, we probably need more imagination. We probably need to bring back authenticity and communication between people and all these other things that they had to take out of our education system in order to make it indoctrination and schooling. Maybe we should put that stuff back in. 
And maybe we should proliferate it sooner than later if we want to keep enjoying freedom in our generation and future generations inherit at least as much as we were given. And hopefully we get to give them more. But right now we're in the deficit. <laughs> We've lost a lot of freedoms in the last 20 years, 23 years, kind of specifically, um, due to things that are not true that we were told lies about and they were actually perpetrated by the people who accused innocent people and then bombed and killed them for 20 years around the world. So we have kind of like, we got some work to do. We're going to have to fix this situation. I don't think we should uh, leave an inheritance that is negative in the uh, geopolitical uh, uh, politics category here that we're, we're talking about this milieu of a population that has been undermined mentally allows a uh, uh, non-elected ruling class to become much more ruthless, despotic, tyrannical, and power-hungry. And if you don't think the pharmaceutical companies and the companies that John was talking about still existed, like it, that's what he was describing. Those things left unchecked for another 10 years brought us the pandemic sponsored by Pfizer. So, uh, <clears throat> Tony, weren't you behind one of the cameras there when we filmed that? I was indeed. Yeah. So one of those shots, one whichever one. shot looked the best, you can say that was Tony's camera. Uh, the best shot would have been the hired cameraman we had. He was he had the the reel he was using back and forth. Well, I guess he wasn't using it there. We had a static shot for him, but uh, that's we had the main HD cam set up there with him. But yeah, you know, certainly one of the uh, cut shots that was useful. And Kevin was behind the other one, so there was also All a mention were used many times. Certainly, and, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whichever camera was on was the best shot. That's 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 weird. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Right there. Um, it's there, there was mention of Fort Knox. I forgot that John served at Fort Knox. I didn't mean to refer to Fort Knox earlier in this episode. That's just something the universe put in front of us tonight. Yeah. Interesting little there. additional uh, synchronicity. Yeah, and synchronicity, uh, sure. wow, the number of places he studied. Right. <laughs> he wasn't like education light. He was like all all up in it. And he tells like the way he does it is it's like a, a grandfather sort of telling stories. So he's not going to necessarily give you the references straight up, but he tells you facts about history that you've then put in the footnotes, some of which are quite large footnotes because there's a lot of context there. Yeah. Yeah. And so it shows just the, 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 the voluminous nature of his mind, his knowledge, how much he's read, you know, um, it's what, what John Taylor Gatto's genius was is he is actually reminds me. Well, I shouldn't say this, but it's it. He leaves a trail of breadcrumbs. You know, he he's been critiqued for not providing references in his books. It's like one of the main critiques you'll see out there. But at the same time, if you go and look up those references, you'll find they check out more often, almost always. So I don't think I've ever found a reference that didn't check out in his publications. And in that regard, yeah, the only correction in there so far was Jodie Foster went to Yale, not Princeton. Right? Yeah, I remember that when we were filming that. The um. But I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to encourage individuals to go out and sort of see for yourself. You know, here's some breadcrumbs. See if you can see the same things I've seen in my, or in this case, his research. And I think that's the the true, because um, what he's really doing is engaging you in a dialectical process that he talked about in the very beginning. It's like, this is sort of the dialectic I went on. These are some of the, the artifacts from history I found interesting. Maybe, you know, so instead of just giving you the, the source itself, he tells you in almost like a story-like format, gets your imagination clicking, gets your internal dialogue sort of going back and forth. The next thing you know, you know, that's actually the process by which 
we discover our own freedom internally in our mental process. It's engaging that dialectic. It's what actually Plato attempted to do in a very sort of uh, uh, sort of um, uh, in his format was the idea was like in order to train the philosopher king, you have to train him to actually read between the lines, if you will, of what's being said. There are words on the page and then there's deeper meanings behind it. You need to go and figure that out for yourself. And that engages the mind. And the, the process that engages that mind is the process that leads to your own internal freedom. And that's a very, very powerful sentiment that I think, you know, reviewing, you know, viewing this now again, I've seen it so many times, but it's been years really since I've like sat down and actually watched it. It really struck me as like he's actually what he's doing is very clever. Whether he's really conscious or not, not of it, I think he might have been, is that he's actually not forcing people, but he's given people the, the means by which they can uh, engender a sense of their own intellectual freedom by researching, yeah, start by thinking. conducting their own dialectical processes, by using critical analysis to think. Yes. This let's just sum up to exactly what you start saying. not assuming. Exactly. And so he tells you stories, and a lot of the stories might seem fanciful. I remember earlier on, um, a friend of mine, uh, you know, w- stopped watching it right after as a high school friend or a friend from my childhood. And it stopped watching at the point at which John Gatto made the statement about the Civil War. And I was like, right there, like, why don't you go and research? You know, why don't you go see, right? Why don't you go see if that checks out instead of doing that process? Like, that's right there. He shut down. He just, you know, and it's unfortunate, but it's not not compute paradigm blindness cannot see. But if you were to go down that pathway, this is also a charge that's been made on the actually back on the the Ning community. Yeah, tell him, make sure he doesn't ever look into C.D. Jackson then. Yeah, right. Or in the Tragedy and Hope Ning community that we had for before the Discord and the forum and stuff. Um, This was another charge against Gatto that I remember, you know, Kevin, myself and a couple others jumped on it and said, well, look at the people who, you know, proposed this theory, you know, well-credentialed, well-established ethos, backed up by a lot of interesting facts. And, you know, it's also substantiated to a large degree by what happened after the Civil War when, you know, we had slavery, then it moved to segregation. And de facto in the North, the, the Jim Crow laws in the South, and that man, that maintained itself over, well, a century until the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Which was led by the Democrats who were the party of slavery, slavery traditionally at the time and supported the Confederacy, whereas the Republicans were founded as an abolitionist party. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah. Which is ironic. And LBJ was the leader of the Democrats at that time. He was obviously a racist and ran with a whole bunch of Southern mafia racist type of individuals who didn't see. uh, Well, first off, they saw primarily skin color before the character of the individuals. And that was the problem. And today, under Democratic leadership, they have identically flipped that back to like racism straight up is the thing that everyone has to lead with by by law basically yeah it's a paradoxical way to force ourselves back into full cultural racism it's it's abhorrent and evil and unconscionable but it's a if it's a clever mind trick and that goes america is going america. too fast and you can't stop it well then send it in a, a u-turn <laughs> yeah, exactly and i like the fact like he you know he points out because like that's the level of narr- narrative control how do you sell this this conflict to the to the public how do you babies get... from incubators bro so and it's, it's the, the same, same things thing you know, if it ain't broke don't fix it yeah. and he also this thought... file contains anthrax whatever yeah. colin powell said for yeah, the next iraq war i mean they got a whole famous series of lies that got us into wars and this is you know when you think about it him acknowledging different, though. The, the british reinstating their 
their principles of a class society and their banking system. Mm. Uh, really, after 1865, he didn't mention that, but he he I'm sure knew about it. And so that's what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. And so those westward movements, of which many of them are associated with religious pseudo-religious movements of the the Christian denominations out west, or Babylonian, because he said like five thousand years, I think, in there. <laughs> and that's the money power history story. Babylonian woes. Check Just out a bunch book. of Moloch and child sacrifice. Don't worry about it. Yeah. No Bohemian Grove there. <laughs> yeah, sometimes literally carried out, other times metaphorically carried out, still being carried out. So. It's a uh, it's wealth of knowledge, his process of engaging the dialectic in a very sort of subconscious uh, way, I think, for the individual is very powerful. And, you know, reiterating that for an audience and being able to preserve that, because uh, tragically what happened right thereafter, if people were unfamiliar, he suffered a, a very terrible stroke, I think, only a couple of weeks, Probably like weeks. two weeks afterwards. Yeah. yeah and like we that. didn't find out for like a year and a half that he had had a stroke. So we just thought he didn't like the stuff we were sending them and like the reels and like, here's tests of the DVD and right. no response, no response, but yeah, no response when you're in a hospital yep. and fighting uh, for your life yeah. essentially. And he yeah. never really uh, quite recovered from that to gain full capacity of his mind. And he, he gained a, somewhat of a quality of life, but it was, it was very difficult road after that. Well, I think so. he had full capacity over his mind, but the left side of his body was paralyzed. Yeah. So in his, his right side of the body was like his, it was very strenuous for, for him to write. Right. But uh, the joke that I had with him the one time was he was pissed at the keyboard or he was trying to type something. And I said, John, you know, since the stroke, like you've only lost half your capacity for typing. I said, cause at best you were hunting and pecking with two fingers. Now it's just one finger that you're over there with. And he laughed cause he was a hunt and peck typer. Cause he came up with the typewriter, typewriter. and those, those keys had more resistance. He never adapted. Whereas I've always learned to type like this. Cause I used the mechanical typewriter when I was a kid, but not really. I was probably still hunting and pecking back then. I didn't yeah. learn keyboard skills to like third grade. Yeah, or those old triggers that was quite intense. Even mechanical keyboards at gamers use these days are nothing compared to what typewriter resistance was like. I so. just got a compact keyboard for down here because I got a number pad and it gets in my way all the time. Yep. But I tried it yesterday and it was so clickety clackety. I was like, oh. I guess yeah, silent yeah. ones. You have to get the silent keyboard. I mean, this one down here, it makes noise, but you can't really hear it. This yeah. other one, you could definitely hear the noise. And I don't know what I just pressed. I pressed yeah. a button and now stuff won't popping off. But it's a testament to his knowledge, his research, his ability to share that, especially in a story like four. One is his, his talking about excellence. I mean, I teach autonomy students all the time. It's like one of the rules is be excellent to each other. And we have a culture of excellence and the things that those mean. And I had uh, forgotten that those were the qualifications to get into like Ivy League school, but they were also the qualifications I was taught in my entrepreneurial endeavors in college. Right. Excellence and creativity. Yeah. Like for your story, it was student painters. It was your ability to really be an entrepreneur while everyone else is being schooled. And like, that's a huge, huge um uh, leg up on the competition so to speak well it makes sense that a lot of times when i'm working with students and clients that they can't see the vision that i can clearly see for them even though i'm explaining it it's because they've lost their ability to imagine yes because unless the teacher tells you to do that they're not used to like well what would it look like if you could live life on your terms and do these things and what skills would you need and how long would that take and what is your plan oh you don't have a plan you'll never get there without a plan right just getting these couple basic things together gets people back into their stride but it was instrumental also in sort of reverse engineering like this is what they've done now can we reinstate or build a model that puts back in to 
you know, ethics, integrity, self-reliance, creativity, imagination, um, you know, individual persistence and perseverance. Cause that's essentially what they've been removing. Like, like John alluded to the biggest problem that, you know, Ficta and Spinoza, I guess got done revisiting Spinoza with my girlfriend, actually. It's interesting what he says in his ethical theories. Um, and it's, it's Spinoza well came up with calculus at the same time as Isaac Newton too, right? He's the, he's the dude. Uh, you're thinking my... of um, Leibniz. Oh, that's right. Leibniz, yeah. Which there's yeah. a interesting story that in my brain, they're just both Northern European type area. And Spinoza Dots. was the atheist that was excommunicated from his uh, Jewish community. And I guess it was Holland or somewhere in there. And it was a small Jewish community and they didn't want to bring any sort of uh, wanton attention to them. Unwanted sort of wanton. They, they got so. rules. Yeah. So he was uh, in that regard, I guess, a philosophic martyr, if you want to consider that martyrdom in philosophy. So, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, um, what he's able to show is a long chain of both philosophic history, theological history, leading up to present day sort of secular history of people's attempt, rulers attempt uh, to gain power over the individual and to collectivize them into groups to abide by their will. And it's not as philanthropic endeavors either. No, they didn't and even think to cloak it back then as like, oh, it's for your benefit. King's just like, pay me. Exactly. Pay me. I'm taking your stuff. And that's continued, you know, the whole way up into models and systems. We can call it behaviorism. We can call it uh, um, all sorts of isms associated with a tyranny. We can call it uh, New World Order. We can call it, you know, whatever, uh, fascism, socialism. You know, all these break the will of the individual specifically. And that's what he's he lays out a, a, a trail of evidence in all these different, you know, knowledge areas of human inquiry that, lay it bare that this has been the number one thing pursued by people in power over a long period of time. And they're trying to mechanize, they're trying to make a science or have been, or have, you know, made a science out of it, especially by the time we get up to the 18th, 19th century, where they're, how do we break the will of the individual? You know, and they write books about control. it that we can read. It's not like the, you know, the Chinese emperors figuring this out. Oh, I don't read ancient Chinese scripts. Sorry. I can't access that knowledge. No, they've done it more recently and they write it in English and, there's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of books about that that are easily accessible, that paint together a whole mosaic of it's not accidental. It is highly desired, sought after. They have meeting after meeting, experiment after experiment, all funded by the same group of people over hundreds of years, searching in a quest for what is the final answer to controlling human humanity and destroying freedom and our ability to resist their tyranny forever. And what's the that's essence? their quest. What's your quest? You got a goal for this week? They got goals. Yeah, right. Right. And that essence is arresting one's creative thinking capacities. Arrest your development. They'll make a show and make you laugh about it, but you won't undo that arrested development with that show, which is ironic. <laughs> so kind of throwing yeah, it back at ironic. the individual who's laughing at them when you should be laughing at yourself. Cause it's kind of like a mirror at that point. But anyways, so that's the idea. I mean, they, they need to somehow take away uh, the critical thinking capacity, the volitional capacity of the human being. Just get people to assume, Tony. It's a lot easier than like brain chips. Yep. But they have brain chips too coming. Yeah. Okay. So there is also in for them. Yeah, they're they're trying everything, or have tried, or will continue to try anything that they can conceive of and possibly instantiate in the form of technology or philosophies or social engineering or whatever it might be. So there are sheep that think that the wolf is well-meaning, and then there are sheep who know better and stay away from wolves. Which one are you? <laughs> 
Very true. Interesting. They have uh, yeah. sheep's clothing. No, they've just uncloaked. They're just like, you'll own nothing and like it. Yeah, like, at this point, Klaus Schwab's straight up wolf. He's like, I'm 100%. not even pretending to be a sheep. Yeah. And he talks like a Bond villain. Yeah. I mean, you can't have a more conspicuous caricature of a Bond villain and instantiated in a person named Klaus Schwab who had a, a, a global community of multinational corporations, the largest powerful corporations, including heads of state. You know, they Welcome get together to the Spectre meeting and discuss what they bad, plan. Uh, bald guy with German accent at a Swiss <laughs> ski resort says he has corporations that can shut down the world and you have to own nothing and like it. I mean, that if that was a Bond character, you wouldn't even believe it. You'd walk out of the theater saying it's not realistic. They've ruined Bond. Right at Davos and Switzerland. Bring back Jonathan which is very Price. isolated and very, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, it just has all the hallmark, hallmarks, excuse me, of how you would organize such a community and make sure that they're well protected and can host these large summits and meet together without, you know. And it's it's, it's like, um, <clears throat> there's a story of this guy, Richard Melville is his name, and at a dinner, he slapped Donald Trump was sitting down and he was standing up and he walked over and, and took out his member and slapped it on Donald Trump's face. This is the story, according to Richard Melville, AKA Moby, you might've heard of him. And that's kind of like what they're doing uh, to America over and over right now with ins- the entire situation where they're like, you must uh, sacrifice, but we're going to fly uh, to meet our friends in private jets and have secret conferences. But you cannot drive to the mall and you shall have 15 minute cities. I mean, they've completely departed and, and, and you know, uh, breakaway civilization or something. That's what they want. There's to a see. bifurcation and they're, lo- they're no longer tethered to our reality. They are tone deaf and they are soon to be disconnected from the system. The Matrix has no use for them. Yeah, just, you know, they have to be careful who controls the plug once they up- upload their consciousness. Yeah, meanwhile, these people are making like silicon it. artificial intelligence entities that are going to take over and be dominant anyway. So, like, <laughs> why, why are we fighting about Trump and I, Storming Trump Daniels? Right, exactly. Yeah. Come on, man. Has anyone thought of like uh, who Kurzweil's students are and where they are right now? <laughs> I mean, he's been training people in dystopia like chief dude over at google is anyone keeping an eye on what they're doing yet is anyone concerned about cern that con game over there billions and billions of dollars oh we're just making little mini black holes and time travel whatever they're doing sourcing in demons and entities through their spiritual seances and, and that's not even made up that's not even hyperbolized there's like two or three videos I know we've probably played them over the past 125 episodes at some point. So yeah, there's the one of the mock. You let your fingers do the walking and do a search. It's hard to verify, but it is weird stuff that may or may not be. So not to mention the tunnel that was built. the tunnel. Yeah, that's the one I was yeah. specifically talking yeah, the about. The tunnel that that's not accidental. Yeah, all sort of druidic, weird, it's definitely on purpose, with, like very satanic overtones. And as a big international science type thing why would you make things that are like provocative and make people concerned about the nature of what you're doing that's not good for pr unless you're into the chaos game like yeah grandmaster soros <laughs> but sith sith lord soros sorry sith yes, lord. Okay, there you go yeah, yeah you promoted be a, be a yeah. Good, 
Yeah, so Florida's a good analogy. All right, so as we're rounding third base and headed toward home, or as we are uh, put your uh, tables in the upright position and positioning for a landing here with this episode, what other essential elements are not yet included in this week's time capsule that we should uh, note and uh, stuff them into? So there's a, a number of interesting ones, but the three that you know I always like to highlight or suggest we highlight towards the end. Um, we already played a Greg Reese, but Greg Reese had another really good one um, about the world economy. That there's a Greg Reese, there's a John Dunn, and there's a Brian Wilson. All small clips that capture, I think, some major news topics that sort of went under the radar, but are very interesting and important in regards to the movement towards world order, and yeah, also some of the. Uh, potential psyops brian wilson regards the ufo psyop and gregory said a brilliant bit on the, the banking collapse the the continued the, the continuation would happen with svb credit suisse signature bank so forth and so on those would be the three i would say need to get on um but you know i i've deferred to you as to any of those or any other ones that you can think of that you would like to highlight I like your options and i just want to say that credit suisse was one of two big suisse banks they're known for their stability and one of them just got gobbled by the other UBS used to be a client UBS. of mine. And, uh, last time I was at UBS offices, they were here in Connecticut down in like Stanford, Stanford, Connecticut area. And they had the largest open air trading room floor in North America. It was like a football field inside of a building that is all open, but it had acoustics. So there was no sound. So you, you couldn't hear the, pre, the people next to you, right? Because they had these, these baffles in the ceiling. And um, <clears throat> that was for an artificial intelligence application that I was a director of sales for that company. And I thought it would be a really cool account. Like UBS is a really big bank. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot about banking during that time, but I had no idea of uh, the, the Jekyll Island history or any of these other things at the time. So, you know, yeah. back then uh, I was pretty oh, naive. Grown a lot. And I learned how to grow a beard right after that ultimate history lesson. Say there's some sort of twist. You know, I was in my thirties if I was in uh, the ultimate history lesson, because I have had a beard since I turned 40. So that's how you can tell with the old videos, how old I am. It's the, now you got the key. Hey, aging with grace couldn't tell a difference besides the beard. Everybody ages. So if you think time is uh, undefeated, if you have, if you have thoughts, it will happen to you when you get sports. older. So just yeah. they boomerang. They're not, you know, that's true. That's I try to respect everybody on their aging path. And I think hopefully if we do it right, we get more graceful. That's right. Yeah. It'd be even really graceful. Oh, I want that. Do we have a, uh, was, she did something on Trump, Baron Trump, uh, time machine, and uh, the prediction right around the time he's supposed to be arrested. There was like some video uh, that was earlier this week, but I think we should go with the ones you've already demarked yeah. for uh, playing into the time capsule. And then uh, I so think I we've think done deal. Which ones were those particularly? So that would be the Greg Reese inside the economic reset. Would be the first yep. one. Then I would say John Bound, spelled J O N, and he had Z unveils unveils the new world order. That was a big topic this week. That was actually covered by Tucker, um, but didn't go into, you know, the detail that Bound does. Um, but still, you can shout. Out and then Brian Wilson. And then Brian Wilson and the UFO 
section talking about the Pentagon paper that was released this week. That is, which is ironic because Brian Wilson from Pet Sounds Beach Boys, he also saw some UFOs when he was playing in the sandbox. Seriously, Uh, yeah, no, not real stuff. I have two Brian Wilson posters in the other room in the in the music room break room over there. There's, I've seen Brian Wilson play many times, but the Brian Wilson who works at Infowars, I've never met. So let's check out these three clips and then we'll move into uh, locking the the landing gear down and we'll come in for a not so screechy landing, hopefully. Signed in 1787, the U.S. Constitution states that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. In 1791, to help pay for the revolution, Congress established the first National Bank of the United States. Within a decade, it became evident that taxes were being sent to the crown and the bank was not renewed. A political battle ensued, which resulted in the formation of America's first two political parties, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. The framers of the U.S. Constitution left out any mention of political parties because they saw them as corrupt relics of the British Crown's divide-and-conquer system. The second central bank was chartered in 1816 and shut down in 1832 by Andrew Jackson, who wrote that the bank was unauthorized by the Constitution, subversive to the rights of states, and dangerous to the liberties of the people. For nearly a century, America thrived without a central bank. Until 1914, when the privately owned Federal Reserve banking system was quietly given power over America's wealth. In 1933, the U.S. government declared bankruptcy and the Fed shifted to a debt-based economy. And after the U.S. dollar was made the world reserve currency, the entire world became dependent upon debt. A currency backed by nothing but debt and IOUs was doomed to eventually fail from the start. And that day appears to be coming soon. These big banks have funded wars and criminally profited off human suffering for decades. Credit Suisse alone has been fined over 50 times for over $10 billion for money laundering, fraud, espionage, drug trafficking, and stealing money from the people. Every person in the civilized world is now feeling the same financial pressure being subjected by the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. Nations of the world are buying up record amounts of gold. Three quarters of the world have joined BRICS to prepare for a new world reserve currency after the end of the U.S. dollar. Zimbabwe and Mexico are now joining BRICS. But it's important to remember that the Federal Reserve Bank is operated by BlackRock. BlackRock is operated by the Rothschild City of London banking cartel. And so even if the Fed collapses, BRICS is most likely another proxy of this old banking cartel. The idea for BRICS was born in 2001 from Goldman Sachs. The Federal Reserve Bank's digital currency, FedCoin, is already hugely unpopular. CBDCs are being rejected upon arrival. But that isn't stopping the federal government and the failing big banks 
from luring the population into their new nightmare system. This July, the Federal Reserve Bank will be launching Fed Now and managing practically every transaction made in the United States. Then all they have to do is what the Nigerian Central Bank just did, shred and destroy mountains of cash and stop filling the ATMs. But we're not slaves yet. And if we want to have financial freedom, then it's time to fight back against the CBDC concept and return to lawful constitutional money. Oklahoma has a law in the works that will protect Oklahomans from being forced to adopt a CBDC. And Florida is now working on a law that will expressly prohibit the use of a CBDC. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, is calling on other state governors to do the same and fight back against CBDC nationwide. At least a dozen states have passed laws to begin accepting gold and silver as cash, on the path to returning to a lawful constitutional money system. Several states have begun printing their own gold backs, a currency shaped like notes made of thin layers of pure gold with a polymer coating, making it easy to spend a dollar's worth of gold. And the free market has been busy figuring out blockchain banking since the Bitcoin white paper. We don't need a central bank or a government to manage our money, but we have to act now and prepare. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. The communist tabloid, The Global Times, explains China's Global Civilization Initiative as the third major global initiative presented by China after the Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative. This narrative deceptively claims the initiative calls for respect for the diversity of civilizations. The Chinese government has clamped down hard, putting in place restrictive rules and reforming the way Hong Kong is run. MPs who are directly elected by the people will also have less power. Upholding the common values of humanity and pursuing peace, development, equity, justice, democracy, and freedom. If there is no threat to Americans, if there is no threat to our data, privacy, security, why did an internal memo from TikTok corporate headquarters explicitly coach senior management to, quote, downplay the parent company ByteDance. Why, if you had nothing to hide, would you need to downplay the association with ByteDance in China? Congressman, I have not seen this UK. memo. And promoting robust international people-to-people -people exchanges and cooperation. Hunter Biden's business associate sent over a million dollars to three of your family members. Any reaction to that report? Not true. House Oversight says they've got bank records showing a Chinese energy company paying three Biden family members through a third party. What were they paid for? Look, I'm just not going to respond to that from here. He's telling us that he paid around $11,000 uh, to complete the strip that's either paid to a cartel or different human smuggling groups. But he just arrived here uh, in Texas, once again, just highlighting that this sector is leading the nation in those illegal crossings from Chinese nationals. The emerging BRICS countries quickly fell in line behind President Xi's illusion. I agree, totally agree that the world order, the way it is built today, doesn't make any sense. That is, is not in line with the economic 
powers like India, Brazil, or Germany, you know, that they don't have a, they don't have a massive role in the, in the international order. But to me, the big question is, so how we are going to go through this transform? It has to be, it cannot be gradual. It has to be, has to be driven by a, part, for, by a certain shock that will happen. We have lost a large part of humankind to the pandemic because we were all selfish, we, did, we were not willing to share, we were not willing to cre use the global institutions to deliver uh, responses to different parts of the world. We have lost people. Now, how much more bloodshed do we need to understand that the, the transition is upon us? South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said that he fully agrees with Xi's initiative. South Africa is grateful to the People's Republic of China for its support throughout the pandemic and particularly for working to ensure that Africa has greater access to COVID-19 vaccines. Nothing can change our friendship of steel. While UN water-carrying Serbian President Alexander Vukic also said that nation should uphold the principles of equality, mutual learning, dialogue and inclusiveness. Equality from a Chinese government that is conducting a mass genocidal sterilization campaign on its citizens known as the Uyghurs. Before eating, we have to praise or say that we, ha we are grateful to country, we are very grateful for China's Communist Party, and we are grateful for Xi Jinping. This desperate man says he and his wife and children are starving. Uyghurs were barely allowed to leave their homes during the COVID-19 lockdown. Mutual learning from a cover-up of a global lab leak that has killed millions and damaged millions more through the initial virus and its subsequent vaccine. As you note, Brett, uh, the FBI has for uh, quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. And dialogue and inclusiveness from a country where of the over 100 foreign journalists that took part in the Foreign Correspondents Club of China survey, 99% said that they felt working conditions did not meet international standards. Okay, Barry, call the consulate now. Once the layers of propaganda are stripped off, that even American media gleefully engages in, Xi's speech is laid bare for what it is, the announcement of the impending emergence of a new world order carefully constructed by globalist think tanks for decades. John Baum reporting. Why did the Pentagon predict an alien mothership would visit Earth? On March 7th, the Pentagon published a draft document which stated, quote, An artificial interstellar object could potentially be a parent craft that releases many small probes during its close passage to Earth. Why are they discussing spacecrafts and their deployment? Are they concerned about an extraterrestrial invasion? Titled Physical Concerns 
constraints on unidentified aerial phenomena, the draft is an official document from the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Essentially in charge of addressing and resolving unidentified aerial phenomenon or UFO sightings. Written by director Sean Kirkpatrick and Harvard's astronomy department chair Abraham Loeb, the document goes on to say, quote, These dandelion seeds, referring to the probes, could be separated from the parent craft by the tidal gravitational force of the sun, or by a maneuvering capability, implying that the craft could be in intelligently designed and controlled. They go on to say that, quote, Once an Earth-like planet is targeted, an interstellar device can plunge into its atmosphere. In principle, a multitude of tiny devices can be released from a mothership that passes near Earth. Clearly, the Pentagon director and Harvard astronomer are describing an extraterrestrial visit to Earth, just like we're inundated with in movies and television shows. So why are they choosing to disclose this information now? What do they know? They go on to say, quote, Astronomers would not be able to notice the spray of mini-probes because they do not reflect enough sunlight for existing survey telescopes to note them. As the Pentagon office solely dedicated to resolving the unidentified aerial phenomenon, why are they suggesting that the invasion of extraterrestrial probes won't be visible to anybody? If they aren't being seen, then what have people been seeing in the sky around the world that are classified as UAPs and UFOs? They also say, quote, Earth would show spectral signatures of liquid water and vegetation that might attract selective attention. So basically, they know extraterrestrials are the aerial phenomena, or they're just publishing a paper that's basically imagining what ET aliens would be. Speculation versus a disclosure of information. Which is it? They say, quote, Are there any functioning extraterrestrial probes near Earth? We do not know. This leaves open the debate on what some objects are, specifically if some observed unidentified aerial phenomena are of extraterrestrial origin. Are they preparing the public for a full disclosure on alien craft? Or are they preparing the public for a staged alien invasion? Another report published at the end of 2022 by the Director of National Intelligence, the head of the U.S. intelligence community, was titled 2022 Annual Report on Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. It says, quote, UAP reporting is increasing, enabling a greater awareness of the airspace and increased opportunity to resolve UAP events. The UAP reporting rate is partially due to a better understanding of the possible threats that UAP may represent, either as safety of flight hazards or as potential adversary. In regards to the Pentagon office that wrote the Mothership report, they say, quote, The establishment of the Department of Defense All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office should facilitate more coordinated UAP efforts and will allow for increased coordination 
coordination of efforts against the UAP problem set. The intelligence head says the reports on unidentified aerial phenomena are based on, quote, accurate recollection of events and or sensors that generally operate correctly and capture enough real data to allow initial assessments. They say, quote, the majority of new UAP reporting originates from U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force aviators and operators who witnessed UAP during the course of their operational duties. Unidentified aerial phenomena appear to have demonstrated unusual flight characteristics or performance capabilities and require further analysis. UAP continue to represent a hazard to flight safety and pose a possible adversary collection threat. Clearly, a threat from an extraterrestrial invasion is being planted in the minds of the public through these two reports, simultaneously trying to suggest that they don't know what the UAPs are, but they know that they're a threat. So what else do they know? Are we being told everything? A fairy tale? Or will we be told an even bigger lie in due time? I guess we just gotta keep watching the skies. This is Brian Wilson with Infowars.com. That's some curious psychological warfare they got going on there. Oh, yeah. Big time side war. In the absence of evidence, let's just say, yeah, it's like a dandelion seeds and it comes down like Merv missiles and multiple reentry vehicles. And, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Put the car before the horse a little bit and their uh, assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. And you want us to do what to prepare to help you? Oh, you've got it under control. We don't need to worry about. It. Okay, I don't think and maybe the constant drumming up of adversarial considerations. It's <laughs> it's hilarious and absurd. Yeah, I don't think they're telling us the truth, Tony. No, I just got no. this feeling. But they are planting a lot of those scenes. That, that they lie a lot, and that's that's their goal. It's probably not the thing we need to pay attention to. But it's interesting that they're publishing that p- report to the public, and that report that we just watched is letting you know that those social cues are going on and feel free to uh, buy into it or to ignore it and dismiss it as arbitrary. Yeah. It's a uh, strange, I guess, part of the DOD that strange AA or like the uh, all domain anomaly research organization oh, yeah. or whatever, like the fair, the fact that that even exists and set yeah, up. Sounds like a disinformation campaign yeah. research. That symbol group. is pretty interesting with the Eagle with a trident. And then they has anyone see seen the chick for the, dis- the disinformation? Uh, Remember the thing that from last summer with she's a yodeler? Oh yeah, I forgot about yeah. Nina Jankowitz, right? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Thank Nina. you. I forgot about her. Maybe she's working with them. <laughs> Actually, maybe we'll find out next week if Nina maybe Jankowitz. She's, maybe she's the alien. Maybe we'll find out if she's in this book, the Deep State Encyclopedia. <laughs> Have you heard about this? I've not. Oh well, it's a it's it's a call to action in uh the really graceful series. There, maybe if I zoom out one more time, there we go. Get it on the screen. Oh, it's her. It's her yeah, opinion. she's been cleverly weaving in promotions for her book that came out a couple weeks ago into her recent, uh, like uh, Robert Barron's documentary mm-hmm. and these other pieces that she's been doing. So, yay, freedom, entrepreneurism. It's a, it's a sizable read. This was sent to me as a gift from Joshua Hale, and I think I'm going to dig into it this week. So maybe next week I can report uh, if Nina Jankowitz and the the what was it the ministry of disinformation what were they called yeah, something like that something like that yeah. censorship ministry of truth i think is what they called them ministry of not truth yeah. very orwellian again they're tone deaf to orwell i mean the fact that they took a you know 
they, they excerpt lifted Orwell quite literally. Yeah. 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 And then I, and then the other thing was, uh, think back, like maybe, maybe an hour ago during the intermission, um, the most important thing on uh, a student's application to these Ivy league colleges, they didn't look at your GPA. They didn't look at your SAT scores, right? Let's just take a moment to appreciate all the time we all spent trying to jump through those hoops that never even mattered. And all the anxiety and frustration that came with that. Yeah. Let that go. And let's talk about that fact about the hobbies. Cause that is real deal. You got some good hobbies. People want to hang out with you. You're easily like integrated and all this sort of stuff goes on. Right. Well, Tonight, Grand Theft World, this is our hobby. This is not any of our, this is not what we do during the week. This is not the highest and best service we can offer to the world. We do those things during the week. This is our hobby time. And my point to you, listener, who's still here at this point, even in the replay, is um, if we take our hobby this seriously, don't you want to come over and see what we do for our profession, what we do to serve people at the highest and best and uh, most timely type of situations so autonomy season nine lecture one starts this friday if one were motivated you could easily go to getautonomy.info forward slash ignite click the buttons make it through the obstacle course have your call and be there for lecture one or at least by week two and catch the replay we don't close the doors throughout the season so you can enroll anytime 365 days a year we accept new students for the first couple weeks of a season there's a whole bunch of classmates getting to know one another making these important connections and getting all learnified for the next season in their life. So consider it a challenge, something that you might not owe me. I don't really care if you sign up or not, but you might care if you get these results in your life or not. And this is the opportunity through which it's being offered. There's nothing else like it on the planet. I guarantee you. And the people who make their way through the obstacles, much like yourself, you got an attention span, you made it to the end of this episode, you could probably see what's going on and be curious enough uh, and the transparency is there so you're not taking much of a risk to get started. So think of it as uh, an opportunity for yourself. It's up to you. I'm not giving you scarcity pressure, but I am trying to lead you with inspiration Because I'm telling you, the people that I treat season after season with these methods, strategies, principles, and tactics, they appreciate it. They use it. They keep coming back for more. They keep bringing in more friends and family. And I think you, the skeptic who hasn't had enough information on the other side of the the fence here, I'm giving you transparency with the obstacle course. You haven't had that time to give yourself the the benefit of the doubt to check out the opportunity. So get autonomy.info forward slash ignite. Check it out. That's my pitch. And now I turn it over to LD, who's going to load it up, and he's going to help us thank all the fine people, all the members from Grand Theft World. Thank you guys so much. You're incredible. Town halls, the book uh, club, uh, yeah, all quick, the membership. Let me give a shout out right, for please that. Do. Um, yeah. So uh, first and foremost, um, if you're interested, become a Grand Theft World uh, subscriber. Go to grandtheftworld.com, top right-hand that. corner, and choose your donation tier. It's right here. There's your button. You click it. You watch a video. Then you got options. Yep. And so the idea here is uh, on Tuesday night and this Tuesday, there'll be another town hall. It's starting at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. You should run from 7 to 10. All replays are made available for GTW subscribers. Uh, Come participate with like-minded individuals, very erudite, very intelligent, well-spoken individuals, very friendly. 
it's been a wonderful uh, exercise and endeavor, and it's been much more successful than I had at first envisioned. So come join that Tuesday night. That'll be at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. And then also Maddie Bannon and myself are hosting uh, the book club for One Nation Under Blackmail. We're reading volume two. We're at the end of volume two, but even if you haven't read it and you want to jump in and listen to or even have a discussion on it, it's totally fine. It's uh, We're very lax. Um, and we've been getting great turnouts and having great discussions. I think we're in the last three chapters, or the third chapter from the last. I forget which one it is. I think it's about uh, Prince Andrew, if I remember correctly. So that's uh, and Epstein and the connections there. So we're going to do a deep dive into that chapter. And uh, there's still, well, after this Friday, so including this Friday, there's three more left. Come join. That's also at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, Friday night. So lots of events going on this week for the Grand Theft World subscribers. And also, I've mentioned this, um, I'm working on building out a Quadrivium course for those that are interested. It won't be hosted until later in the year. Just wanted to get plant the seeds in the minds of individuals that would find that interesting. And uh, I'll have more information as I continue to develop it. And that'll be hosted, like, like I said, towards the end of the year, uh, late summer, fall, somewhere in there. Outstanding. LD, how are you doing? How was the ride tonight? It was actually turbulence. Woo. No. Cool. Very little turbulence. Um I mean, and by that I mean none. Cool beans. Good to hear. Good to hear. Uh, (laughs) Actually, I have a question before we load up the list. Somebody in the chat, you were talking about the origin of anti Semitism. And uh what what was the fellow's name that you had brought up in the blue history blueprint? Was this tonight? I don't remember talking about I don't think we talked about that tonight. Okay. <laughs> then at some point. Yeah, uh, we did know. we did talk about it. Um yeah, I don't have that reference in front of me. I know I know I've heard you speak about it, but it's been a while. It was one of those. Oh, uh, you, are you talking about, sorry, well, I mean, you might be talking about Benjamin Friedman, but I don't think that's a specific claim that I've attributed to him. Like that was facts a modern facts. 20th century <laughs> facts or facts was his book. He had a 1961 speech at the Willard hotel. Yep. It had to do with uh, the Zionist contingent at the Versailles treaty in 1919 and how he worked with the Zionist contingency and they were a conspiracy and he had uh, blown the whistle later and he left some artifacts to that effect. But I don't think that has anything to do with the, the origins of the concept of anti-Semitism. And then we had referred to 1911 encyclopedia entry for Semitic, the word, not anti-Semitic. And it was the Semitic definition, 1911, 11th edition of encyclopedia that talks about uh, Arabs as well as other people in the area. Before the night, like late. From the tribe of Shem. Yeah, you could could also relate it back to that, if you will. But, you know, the people that populate sort of those areas um, in the well, what would be modern day Levant, Palestine and the Middle East um, uh, that sort of origination but then in like 1879 some claim that like Vil- Wilhelm Marr or something came up and, and used as a term to describe hatred towards Jews specifically mm. not just anti-Semitism against people general people of that area or those ethnicities or that ethnicity, um, but to a specific religious credo. And so that it's sort of been, and I don't know if that's the best reference. I mean, there's probably more to it, but that's just like 
That's off the top of our heads at yeah. the end of a show at 4 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, so sorry for the curveball. Best we could do. Oh, that's because good. I was, yeah. yeah, I was trying to we look at curveballs. The, the internet's not clear, but I did come across Wilhelm Marr and then some other names, but uh, we could table that for now. Um, yeah, what, what, what should be noted, though, real quick, is that there was seemingly arguments that the term may have been possibly used beforehand not to denote a specific re- religious um uh qualification of of hatred or hostility it was or if um it was more general and then it sort of was appropriated to a specific religious sect in this case being the jewish people over time whether vilhamar other individuals are involved in that that's We'll have to do more research, but that's that's generally the claim is that there's two sort of understandings of anti-Semitism. You look at it etymologically, yes, it refers to those people that I just mentioned, that region of the earth, sharing that ethnicity or those ethnicities. But at the same time, it sort of was appropriated over time to mean specifically religious hatred towards or hostility towards a religious. But in the time frame of 1911, it was classified as many groups of people including yep. arabs palestinians right. in that area and under that definition from 1911 when uh semitism when england is working with lawrence of arabia mm-hmm. and the arab contingent and they betray them you could say that the british were anti-semitic against those arabs because yeah, it also fits according to the definition at the time would be the yeah, they the were position. still using Semit, like Semitic, to refer to all those, like the Arab populations and the religious, the various you know religious subsets within those regions. That's exactly right. But anti, though, what the anti sort of what did Gatto uh, say? Over time, the non-elected rulers will just change the meaning of the change words, the and then words. that's the, how that's how they have leverage because they control the political opinion of the country, and then that permeates down through control of the press. And they figured it out, and he he said it. There was a second revolution, and we lost. They came in not with arms; they came in with economic, political, and media savvy, because yes. they're a thousand-year-old empire with and Oxford at the savvy. heart of it. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really stand a chance, but we're still around because they find us useful. They've kept us around. They haven't scuttled the country yet. They've tried to like weed out individuality, yeah. and they. They are not winning because they don't understand freedom. It's very hard for them to destroy it. And freedom is much more resilient in the hearts of human beings, especially in this part of the world, because we've had a taste of it. And I'm sorry to think about how many people have lived and died and never had a chance for freedom, a breath in their life. Yeah. The one thing we we have have opportunities and we shouldn't take them lightly. Yeah, we have a strong cultural foundation rooted in individual individual rights, constitutionalism. That's why I think they've really pushed for what happened in the East, especially with China and those who have adopted a cultural revolution that has completely cut off the, the future generations from their historical past and any sort of identity with it that's cultivated the ground for a technocracy to emerge. So the social engineering through technology, having a complete break with any sort of sentiments of their past and their culture and, you know, all those in individual will for that matter. So, and this is what we mean by making the culture of poverty and ignorance obsolete. Yep. It's all we've done all night. And if you watch the ultimate history lesson, that's what I've been doing for a long time. Tony's been doing it too. So look at the consistency and see where we can go from here. LD back to you with thank yous. All right. We can do that. 
No, it looks good. Again. Well, yeah, computers, computers, doing funny things, <laughs> just computers, changing so. things, yep. changing settings on me. Well, uh, yeah, huge thanks to the Grand Theft World community and uh, big thanks to tonight's Rockfin tippers. Just kidding about the 10 cent beer night thing. That was just a joke. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good group in there. Jen Jones, $5. Thank you for the tantalizing intellectual stimulation. Thank you, Jen. Ross Guy, $5. Thanks again, Mr. Guy. PW, $10. Thank you for the weekly dose of reason and hope. Are you guys planning any new documentaries? We have some ideas. I got three little documentary projects, but I also have other projects on the back burner I need to finish. So I'm just going to stay focused on what I'm obligated to do right now. And then we'll consider those assessments this summer. Thank you, PW. Uh, we had $2 from Sabogus, and I'm just going to paraphrase, but uh, he's saying germ versus terrain is a straw man. And uh, simply the laws of identity and non-contradiction apply to the methods section of virology papers. He's requesting that you know we talk to some people like Eden, Bailey, Cowan, and Kaufman. But uh, thank you, Sabonis. Yeah, I mean, but the problem, I didn't get it to mention this, and I should just state it. Like, So the evidence presented by those individuals, I found good evidence that calls the way in which they presented the evidence into question. So it's not so much a straw man. It shows that the identity even on the side of those individuals is very questionable of the way in which what they're interpreting as evidence or not as evidence and uh, how they're sort of castigating genomic sequencing and isolation methods. It's uh, very trite and not well substantiated by a long history and not only history, but modern commentary on the, uh, on the different methodologies that exist. In other words, it's not an issue of law of identity. The problem is both for virology, standard germ theory, and terrain theory is that we're left to specific individuals to try to interpret that evidence for us in the absence of our ability to have access to all these different methodologies and these te techniques and instruments that are available to these researchers. And in that, in that absence, we have to make a judgment as to which one we feel is, might present the evidence the best. And I've seen really good arguments on both sides presenting evidence running counter to those specific individuals you mentioned that needs to be considered. And that's why I hold out that there's not enough evidence for me to conclude that train or germ theory is uh, truly substantial. And I only go with germ theory slightly only because it has a causal mechanism involved in disease ideology that I can verify with my own lived experience. But knowing that as more information comes in, that can quite well change. Um, but right now, a lot of those individuals you mentioned, I've reviewed the evidence more than I ever should should have for the time I don't have for the interests I have in other areas, particularly in philosophy and, and found it to be quite wanting, but it's very convincing the way they present it. They, if anything, they present really straw men and so do virologists and it's, it's a lot of work. And that's the, I think Gatto said it best. You have to argue with yourself over and over again and you have to, it takes a lot, a lot of time to find but really what good you arguments go against your position. What then if you won't just, go out and argue? What if your science is settled and you don't talk to anybody who won't agree with you? Right. It's, this isn't about an issue of the law of identity. I don't it's have an issue of the judgments a, associated with the interpretation of evidence of what's been possibly identified or not. Like, I agree with the reasoning of the commenter because that sounds great. Yeah. Unfortunately, when you compare it back to this other thing, here's the other thing I would extrapolate because I don't have a dog in a fight. 
I can remain agnostic on this. I believe in strong terrain for me, but also that there's bioweapons that they have been spending a lot of money on. And to that point, mm -hmm. if there's something really to the terrain theory, why isn't any research money flowing in to make uh, experiments equal to opposite on the other side? And money only goes over here in this one place and this other place. There's just a couple people who promote it and there's no research being done. It's kind of like not to be disrespectful. But it's kind of like flat earth. There's yeah. no research, development, like inventions, practical applications, and any of that stuff. It seems exactly. to be a recurring loop that doesn't lead you to, it actually keeps your brain from processing all the other things we have to process to stay alive, to survive, and be able to communicate cogently, calmly, coolly, collectively uh, amidst each other as individuals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a situation whereby which, they're negating anything that's been identified, but then offer no meaningful resolution as to how disease really emerges in the first place. There's a lot of competing theories. Right. Where are the, the new patents? Where are the new and, patents, the new nomenclature, the new medical dictionaries, the new medical schools, and the people who say, I'm so much healthier in this new paradigm that reflects reality? Which they use, you know, vitamins, organic compounds, uh, very small compounds to help to bolster their terrain. So I mean, we, as Rich and I mentioned earlier, it certainly could be an also and perhaps through pleomorphic interactions. Disease is generated by cells and then passes on as an actual identified thing that can pass on between individuals. Maybe it doesn't originate, uh, maybe it originates in toxic environments such as that, but then something fundamentally as exists and can cause path, you know, pathogenesis in individuals. And that's something that has to be considered. And maybe in that regard, it's once it is produced by toxified environments, it's released as a genetic, unique organism that then can pass along and be weaponized. Um, you can also, Maybe if you don't like the idea of virus, us, Tony, if you don't like the idea of virus, you can take the David Martin position that you can call it a toxin. It's uh, I don't care what you call a bullet. Uh, it's, you know, it's the same at the end of the day, there's a causal relationship between the, the individual that's sick and other individuals that tend to get sick and they don't have a very good causal theory of that origination. Perhaps they, and there's a lot of competing theories within it that I found to be lacking and unsubstantial, such as resonance theory and 5G and other sorts of things. Taking excerpt lifting elements of Luc Montagnier's research, which is very uh, poorly commented on by Thomas Cowan and Sally Fallon Morale, is just an example. And you know, so they don't have it's 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 quite a mess. Now that doesn't say that the virologists are totally uh, scrupulous in their understanding of how we isolate these viruses. And they, they acknowledge, to be However, fair to them, many of the honest ones acknowledge the difficulty. Luke Montagnier and in that whole situation where he's the guy credited with attributing AIDS to the HIV virus. Right. And when pressed, uh, what was the guy's name? Carrie Mullis Everyone. asked him as a fellow Nobel laureate, hey, what was your primary source? I'm doing this thing over here. And he's like, just smiled and walked away. Yep. like the Cheshire cat. And that's not a good sign for science. Yeah, exactly. So there might be validity to some extent. that's not yet accurately described, but and we when don't... accurately described both sides will reconcile and there will be like a, a bonding of that, yep. but it's not going to happen as long as one side's like, you're an idiot. If you don't believe this, or you're an idiot, if you don't believe that, I don't know. I don't go around calling anyone idiots because I'm not that smart some days and I make mistakes. So, and at the end of the day, um, it doesn't really matter in this case right now. Uh, this this particular issue has done nothing more than divide and conquer the community rather than recognize the facts that we all shared in regards to the response of the supposed disease, pathogen, causing disease, whatever. Um, 
at the end of the day, we should be focused on the fact that there is a high level of psychological manipulation, economic manipulation, elements that affect us much more perniciously uh, and objectively than the virus has for many individuals and or the vaccines have affected individuals. So in that regard, I just feel like considering that the evidence uh, on both sides is has issues, even with interpretation of those evidence and or those data and at the same time we don't have access to specifically verifying it ourselves and left up to making a judgment ourselves about how much weight we give to those particular individuals that are trying to interpret what these what the evidence is and how reliable their their techniques and uh, technologies are in isolating and identifying these these specific microbiological phenomena in the absence of that i sort of say the negative holds the field, we should be skeptical. And if anything, we really shouldn't get bogged down by this this endless debate that is really going nowhere at this point. And no, I'm sorry, at the end of the day, um, if you tear down this edifice, Ryan Christian made this point, um, he sees the argument is if you tear down this edifice, then everything else will fall. No, it won't. Um, at that capacity, that you don't think they're trying to weaponize other microbiological phenomena, the biotoxins um, from molds, uh, bacteria, and if you consider that all of them don't exist, then they'll make a synthetic nanotechnology, you know, from the war college that we showed many, many moons ago that presenter, I forget his name, talking about this, you know, this nanolipid particle structures and creating essentially just toxic, you could use maybe chlorine, I don't know, and the disaster that happened at East Palestine, that's, you know, you could you could weaponize all sorts of different toxic elements that maybe aren't fundamentally of a microbiological nature, but you can nanotize them, if you will, and put these delivery payloads of nanolipid particles around them and cause terrible disease in the body. So it's kind of it's I find it to be just an unfortunate red herring in the community. This this uh, it's just taking us off the path of objective reality, what we can comment on, what DARPA is doing, uh, you know, what Pfizer has been doing. Well, but, the other thing is, it makes me question like knowledge of history. Like yeah, Ebola exactly. is a virus. Ebola, Reston, is a virus that broke out in our country. Ebola broke out in Virginia. Did you guys hear about this? Don't you remember hearing about this? No, they didn't tell you. That movie Outbreak, where they have to firebomb a whole town, mm -hmm. is based on the fact that experiments in this country led to an outbreak, and Ebola shows symptoms soon enough that people can catch it because you're like bleeding out of your eyes and ears and all of your orifices and skin contact and fluids. So if you're infectious, you're it's visible that you're infectious. Yeah. Right. So it's not a good candidate for a global pandemic, but it is hella scary to read about. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So to try to convince, you know, if you want me to take viruses out of my vernacular, then all these instances that are pretty well documented Pretty graphic photographs before Photoshop, by the way, yeah. black and white and color in these types of things. Right. And if they didn't exist, why would they have billions of dollars in labs to, to make these things? Right. If they just existed in nature, they wouldn't need the labs. And if the labs didn't work, they got other interesting things like nuclear weapons and crazy shit to put money into. Yeah. So I don't think the labs are just there as a farce or a fear thing because they don't really tell us about them and they lie about the existence of these they things spend billions, all the time. Billions right. trying to do something there. If you don't want to call it a virus, call it whatever you want. But two billion dollars just to replace the air systems in Wuhan after the accident, and then they still shut it down anyway in October. Yeah. The problem is it didn't is fix it. Epistemologically, theory of knowledge, we've 
we've progressed beyond what our five senses can immediately perceive. So like, because we have telescopes, because we have microscopes. Well, that's that like enhance- Al-Qaeda. They started with Al-Qaeda, but then they went to COVID. Well, the idea is like, we can now enhance our perceptual capabilities. And then we have to model it when we don't have the best visibility. And we have to use these very um, uh, te- sophisticated technologies. And it's it's a difficult situation. It, uh, no doubt. It's the same issue with like, does an electron particle really exist? Uh, or it, like not th- something is happening. The phenomena of energy transfers going into my computers, you know, hitting the transistors and the um you know the the power yeah shit turns on something's going it. on something's going on drawing of it yet probably exactly. not. we have a perfect model of it you know uh, uh was it jj watt i forget the one i think he was the inventor jj heisenberg thompson. no it was me as thompson no jj um, thompson yeah it's, that's who you're talking about no. the uh shell model of electrons maybe it was him maybe it was him i think I thought who are you thinking we're going back into physics class here yeah, J.J. Thompson. That's right. J.J. Thompson. Particle, he called it a hysteresis of the ether. So he said it was sort of a, um, uh, sort of a uh, interference pattern. So the electron yeah. is not really a, a, a like a subatomic particle as much as an interference pattern of fields, field interactions, like so a current. Like, see, like, like yeah, there you go. So like, what model do we choose here? And so that's one of these, but still the same phenomena is happening. Same with disease. So it's like one of these situations where. Uh, considering the 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 problematic evidence on both sides, um, it's just it's easier to go along with what we can at least verify right now and draw conclusions based on that, which is why we we you know do what we do on the show. I do appreciate your question. I know it's a, it's a difficult situation because the 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 earlier epistemological idea was naive realism that only what we sense with our five senses is real. So therefore, like the stars. Or, you know, the sun, like the way we perceive them through these incredible telescopes now and the, the clarity of detail and infrared um, patterning and being able to see in these different spectrums has totally revolutionized the way in which we can understand the nature of our universe and reality. Um, but if you were to just take a naive realistic approach, you would say, you know, you can come up with all sorts of wayward, abs- abs- absurd ideas like flat earth and, you know, holograms in the sky and a whole bunch of other obnoxious uh, uh violations of Occam's razor and one anyway so without continuing on that tangent that's sort of where we fall we over delivered value on that super chat that's how we roll all right well thank you Sabogus. nonetheless morgan let's go five dollars i was just thinking about making my annual listen through the ultimate history thank you for all your work Love hey thank morgan. you morgan nathan martin G. $10. Thank your dad for inspiring us all to use the question mark more often. <laughs> he was brilliantly courageous to do that back in the day. Nathan Martin, $10 says, thanks for the show. And a rem through us $50. Thank you very much, Mr. Rem. And that will conclude the reading of the list. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you everyone. All right. Well, we were showing up uh, for takeoff and one of our key crew members hadn't logged in yet. And I was like, he's going to be here. He's going to be here. And then he rolled right in and he enabled the stream to kick off. And thank you, uh, Cody, for uh, for doing that behind the scenes stuff. Thank you, LD, for running mission control. You have not crashed a rocket yet, bro. We got 125 launches (laughs) under our belt and you're like, you're, you're, you got, you got the stride. 
and uh tony for thanks for helping like to navigate around the meteors and the asteroids the assholes tonight and all the other things that go on in the news stories. And it's like Macron, like, I don't want to see Macron, but we got to talk about that guy for a minute. Right. And the name Rothschild came up many times tonight. I assure you it's completely coincidental. We didn't plan to bring that name. Up. It just, theory, right? History is connected. You know, it's not just the little pieces like Gatto said, it's about connecting them together and learning that understanding of what connects them together. Macron was employed by a multi-generational cartelish acting family that's very open about what they do. And they got documentaries out there you could go see with any Sir Evelyn de Rothschild or Jacob Rothschild or Hannah Rothschild's a filmmaker for the family. It's like, you know, there's books by Neil Ferguson. These things should just be more widely known. I don't have an aversion to it. I just disagree with that. They want to keep it secret because that's a different type of power differential. And what they're doing with that power, I don't respect because they're taking away people's freedom. They're incapacitating the eldest among us. They're subjugating the youngest among us. And those of us in between those two ends of the, the vice that they're squeezing people with are not so well treated. And they get a lot of choices that they could have, would have, should have made taken off their menu. And they get forced into uh, results of their indoctrination. Consequences that don't lead to freedom, happiness, satisfaction, substance, or meaning. And that's kind of slavery. So to avoid that little grand theft world, uh, grand theft world, one hour a day keeps tyranny away. You could think of it that way. That way you don't have to watch it all in seven hours. Just watch one hour a day in between uh, the weeks. You get the, like the whole episode in without stressing yourself out too much. Well, with that, what time? Yeah, it's about 4 a.m. So thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. And do we have something to play us out tonight? Let's see. Yeah, we got some oh. what's-her-face. How about some what's-her-face and then one of those Crowder skits from Jaws? Maybe the one, uh, oh. I don't know, either one could be good for the time capsule because people in the future have seen Jaws probably. They would get it. Well, give me a second. Yeah, right on, right on. You know, when I was a kid, Jaws came out. I was probably four. And it had that epic, first it was a book, Peter Weller, what's his name? Peter Benchley, I think wrote it, had a book. And the graphic artist ruined a lot of people's sense of what sharks were. And it's this woman swimming and there's this great big shark coming up to eat it. And um, they would run like ads in the newspaper and they have like the Jaws poster in there and stuff. And my babysitter said she was going to the beach. And I remember going and finding the newspaper I'm four. I'm like ripping out that picture and like trying to warn her, like these things are at the beach. These are in the ocean. <laughs> I realized like how silly that was a four-year-old thinking sharks are that big or sharks are that dangerous. But the average American has acted a lot different around the ocean with the notion of jaws being out there. than if those graphics were never uh, distributed or made visible by so many millions of people. And if, and if I, I'll tell you this, because LD's getting us pulled up. If Spielberg had showed shown you one more frame of that shark in any of those shots, yeah, yeah, you yeah. would have said this is complete bullshit, thrown yeah. your popcorn down and left that theater. But because he shaves one frame off of each of those shots, it's quick enough to be realistic exactly. and therefore scary. Because otherwise, that movie would be one of the biggest flop comedies of the 1970s he would never made any of these other movies yeah like his uh, his whole thing would have been crushed 
right yeah lucky steven spielberg that's who he is no you're waving the holly branch Casting yeah well spells. the holly Very berry falls next to the holly bush as they say all right i think i found it <laughs> so we can uh wrap it up we can wrap it up <laughs> if you've made it to the end of this episode you are a champion not many make it to the end of the episode those who do uh deserve a gold belt buckle or something like that maybe we should have rodeo belt buckles for people who make it all the way to the end of the show but that's a, a plan for a future week for tonight we'll let you go peace have a good night everyone YouTube slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. We were coming up on 700,000 subscribers when YouTube dropped a bomb. The Vox Apocalypse bomb. Over 600 videos on the channel. All of them restricted in less than 12 minutes. Didn't see the first video get demonetized for a half hour. An hour-long interview with Jordan Peterson. You know how to tell when your video is about to be demonetized, Chief. You can tell by how many misinformation warnings you see, by how much truth is actually in there. We didn't know. Because YouTube's policies have been so secret. No email notifications had been sent. They didn't answer any of our emails for weeks. We thought fellow conservatives would help join the fight. The very first week, Chief, the business of Big Con started screwing, so we formed ourselves, you know, into a tight group, a mug club. You know, it's kind of like the old squares in the battle like you see in the calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was Big Tech come along with Big Con, and coming to take control of our channels and we'd start pounding and hollering and sometimes big tech and big con go away sometimes they wouldn't go away sometimes those big conservative con men they look right in you right into your eyes you know the thing about a big con's eyes is they got lifeless eyes black eyes like a doll's eyes they come at you, doesn't seem to be living. Till you hear them recite tired rhino talking points, those milquetoast spineless eyes rule over white. Oh, then you get that terrible bullcrap cease and desist letter. Your channel turns red from a hard strike. In spite of all the fighting and the hollering, the supposed allies come in with YouTube themselves and you to pieces. Nobody said a thing when Mug Club moved on, lost access to all our subscribers. I don't know how many Mug Clubbers, maybe 400,000. Don't know how many unshipped mugs. We got emails every hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I get a letter from a so-called friend of mine. One of those big conservative networks, big money type. And I see the contract offered, scrolled up and down. Like 
was kind of a mistake. Well, turns out it wasn't a mistake. I know when the contracts came in, Chief, exactly what the other poor bastards were forced to sign. Literally 110% penalties against their own conservative content creators on behalf of big tech. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, seeing that so many people on our side were dead. Big tech themselves. I'll never be part of one of those networks again. So, the bidding war started with everyone wanting a pound of flesh, and instead we decided to go dark until March 20th, 2023. Anyway, we kept the mug club. And welcome to the Weekly Roundup, where we discuss just a fraction of the insanity that takes place in the world each week. Our top story today, Donald Trump is once again feigning relevance this week with a social media post that predicted his own arrest. Former President Donald Trump says he expects to be arrested in connection with the years-long investigation into a hush money scheme involving adult film actress Stormy Daniels and called on his supporters to protest any such move. In a social media post, Trump referring to himself said, the leading Republican candidate and former president of the United States will be arrested on Tuesday of next week. This dude's predicting his own arrests now? What, is he not getting enough attention? This is like the girl in your high school who buys herself a rose on Valentine's Day. It's from my boyfriend. He works for the deep state. <laughs> I'm so crazy about him, one of these days he's gonna have me arrested. <laughs> I surrender! Yo, didn't he leave you for DeSantis? No, he did not leave me for DeSantis! That's a rumor! At this point, I trust these Trump arrest predictions about as much as I trust the Canadian healthcare system, which, if you're new here, is... Not a lot. The Canadian Cancer Society is recommending cervical cancer screenings for men who identify as women. Oh yeah, that's exactly what we need in a country where it takes three months to see a doctor. A lineup of men screening their imaginary body parts for cancer. The Canadian Cancer Society has been providing guidance to males who identify as women on the female-specific cancer. Quote, if you're a trans woman, you may not have given much thought to pap tests and cervical cancer. And if you haven't, that makes a fair amount of sense. After all, in order to get cervical cancer, you need to have a cervix. That is, the organ that connects the vagina to the uterus. The Cancer Society's official website reads, It goes on to state that trans women who have had bottom surgery to create a vagina and possibly a cervix should talk to a medical professional to figure out specific cancer screening needs. You know, when we said these trans pussies were a cancer to society, we did not mean that literally. The Tiger King has announced his 2024 presidential bid. No, I am not kidding. Joseph Maldonado Passage, better known as Joe Exotic or the Tiger King, is currently serving a 21-year federal sentence after being convicted on multiple charges. He said that isn't going to let that stop him from running for the nation's top office. Oh, you mean the US could potentially have a criminal for a president? That'll be the first time that's ever happened. Maldonado Passage launched a new campaign website with a personal message. Thank you for your interest in my campaign. 
Yes, I know I am in federal prison and you might think this is a joke, but it's not. So put aside that I am gay, that I am in prison for now, that I used drugs in the past, and that I had more than one boyfriend at once, and that Carol hates my guts. This all has nothing to do with me being able to be your voice. Well, if anyone's gonna be the voice of Sodom, it might as well be an adulterous, drug-addicted LGBTQ criminal. Can't arrest a president for his crimes against humanity if he's already in prison. Joe Biden says he's not really Irish because he's sober and doesn't have any relatives in jail. I've been to Ireland many times, but not to actually look up to find my actual family members. And there are so many, and they actually weren't in jail. They were all, <laughs> but all kidding aside, if you go to County Louth, there's still a place called Finnegan's Pub, which is, uh, Reverend, it's related to my, my family. Now, I'm the only Irishman you've ever met, though, that's never had a drink, so I'm okay. <laughs> I'm really not Irish. Well, by that logic, I guess we can assume that Joe Biden is actually an untrained pit bull because he shits all over the carpet and preys on unsuspecting children. I'm just kidding. I know it's not their fault they attack children. It's their owner's fault. I don't care if you think I'm Satan reincarnated. Speaking of dropping deuces in unusual places, if you have a question for Twitter's press team, the answer moving forward will be a poop emoji. Twitter's communications team has been effectively silent since November when it was reportedly decimated in the layoffs that CEO Elon Musk implemented after buying the company. That means it hasn't responded to journalists' questions about any of the developments that have happened since. Now the press email address is active again, at least to some extent. Going forward, it will automatically reply to journalists' inquiries with a single poop emoji, Musk announced, via tweet, of course, on Sunday. That's a perfect substitution for the email response you'd get from literally anyone working at Twitter. I say they keep that energy going and replace all of Elon's tweets with a pseudo-intellectual autistic rich kid jerking off his gullible conservative followers. Emoji. Do we got anything for that? Mexican president says lack of hugs and embraces, not drug cartels, responsible for fentanyl crisis. Yeah. I actually agree with him. There is a lot of disintegration of families. There is a lot of individualism. There is a lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs and embraces, Lopez Obrador said, according to the Associated Press. That is why U.S. officials should be dedicating funds to address these causes. Mm. He's right. I don't feel like doing fentanyl at all. An LA meteorologist collapsed on live TV in a frightening moment. Count News at 7 on CBS, streaming on CBS News Los Angeles. I'm Rachel Camp. And I'm Michelle Medina in for Sheba. Who is ready for some sunshine? I know Me. I am. Let's start off with a check of your next weather with meteorologist Alyssa Carlson. She joins us live in the studio. Alyssa, this really is the calm before the storm. Not again. <laughs> no. Oh. You know, we're going to go ahead and go to break right now. Yeah. Huh. I wonder what's going on there. Maybe she couldn't get in to see a doctor on time because there was a gaggle of men ahead of her getting naproxen prescriptions for their imaginary periods. I'm just kidding. It's obviously a vaccine injury. And now for my favorite news of the week. A pro-Trump social network wants to corner the anti-vax jizz market. Getter, a struggling right-wing social media company, is looking to create a marketplace for men who won't take the COVID vaccines to sell their sperm. Again, turning a joke I made in 2021 into a reality. What do you think will happen to people like us who didn't get the jab? 
when those people start finding out they may be sterile due to the vaccines. I don't know, man. Maybe we will be like Handmaid's Tale people. I fully believe that any man with unvaccinated sperm, uh, I think that shit will be worth more than gold. I believe uh, men with unvaccinated sperm are either going to have a lot of fun or not so much fun because they're going to be like milt like a cum cow or something. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's so bad. Cum cow. I'm sorry. I do believe that uh, men, men with unvaccinated sperm will definitely become cum cows. Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there. Big props to Maria Broadcasted, that's where I'd hear And get hooked on the name of Richard Grove What he's saying is hypnotic Synchronicity came out like chronic All in full stride Compadres around all sides Seeking sources to provide solution The heavy-handed knowledge is Willie saying The peace revolution Never knowing I was missing the blessing The heaviest session recorded and revealed The ultimate history lesson In this quest and I'm a Midwestern Who's rocking it dope Subscribe to media produced by tragedy and hope and if you didn't know the gift and here's what you've been missing and listening is where conviction is revealed in descriptions in a brain model don't come all hollow but full throttle and dive in the deep end so history doesn't repeat and make it complete catch grant that world every week with richard and tony chop it up with the homies and i ain't talking about that public school baloney in a sec you should know me quoting gotta win the flow that i'm growing and ld's bearded is showing the time capsule stack of stats is open so spread it around
sound The show is ready to pounce Audience that abounds Seeking out what's profound I know it is challenging Fallacies in the balance When a forensic story in it Boring men while exhorting in Examination, contemplation, meditation Revelation, celebration Destinations planned Targets arrived Autonomy crew of souls that survive Broke free from the 9 to 5 And we doing it live Hey, with hope in our flow Where consciousness grows As opposed to You don't have to think about it, dude Cause it's a comedy show That be bombing truth, whoa Trying to make uncommon truths Be more commonly known That it's a grand theft world That I'm living in Ain't no reptilian skin Just some normal humans Who love to sin From their banking powers They aim to win Deceive and betray all men Making everyone slaves to them It's a grand theft world that I'm hearing at The sky's like a pyramid For those tuning in, they be feeling that Revealing that Things ain't what they seem So I'm fighting back and digging jack Containing knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts Artifacts, artifacts Yeah, neglected aspect That's what they lack Yo, trivium course, it'll deal with that Huh, be a rebel, bring the logic back Cause it's a grand theft world that they rolling out Got the growth model out, tracing Rockefeller dollars Straight to clouds, SEC connections are hard to doubt But most go the common route, walking with their head in the shroud Yo, it's a grand theft world that I'm peering at Disguised like a pyramid, but those tuning in They be feeling that, revealing that Things ain't what they seem, so I'm fighting back And digging jack, obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts not a video game. This isn't Grand Theft Auto, folks. This isn't a video game. This is Grand Theft World. All right, LD. It's a Grand Theft World that I'm peering at in disguise like a pyramid. For those tuning in, they'd be feeling it. Revealing that things ain't what they seem to invite back and digging jack, obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts. If you need a single location to get cutting-edge information and keep up with the rapidly changing world around us, tune into Grand Theft World, where a forensic historian and a logic professor break down the week's news in depth and in context. There's a ton more there, so go check it out. And don't forget to get your Freedom Vault on the homepage.